Well, hello there. Thank you for joining me today. You might want to um, schedule a nap in between. <laughs> this is the file of all files. I was struggling to put it together. Finally got it together. I have this kid that does the uploading. Well, <laughs> let the chaos ensue. So then several of the files got jumbled. Attention to details is a pretty key thing in life. But anyway, so moving on. So a few of the files got jumbled. I don't listen to the show until after it's been uploaded. So a few hours after it's been uploaded, I'm getting to the end and I'm thinking, well, why is he playing the intro music at the end? <laughs> so anyways, always a new solution, right? So I have another young gentleman who, um, young person who understands audio. So he is, he has compiled the files in the correct order. So what I'm going to be doing is a quick overview here because this whole thing about the United States is in fact about eugenics. Okay. And everything that I will be sharing with you in the files today will back up everything I've been saying, but in their own words, because I wanted to capture what they had to say about these things, okay? Because I have covered all of these things from the orphan trains to all of that in different shows. So anything I'm talking about today, you will be able to find a show about it in more detail. But I have discovered the time and when these people took charge. So first, a quick over, because they took, they took charge at a very specific time. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. So I'm going to be first, before the show starts playing I'm just going to give you I love timelines so I'm going to give you a quick overview okay eugenics the set of beliefs and practices which aims at improving the genetic quality of the human population played a significant role in the history and culture of the United States from the late 19th century to the mid 20th century the cause became increasingly promoted by intellectuals of the progressive era. And I will be talking about the progressive era in this timeline I'll be going over in just in a minute here. So while it has been about improving genetic quality, it has been argued that eugenics was more about preserving the position of the dominant groups of the population. So I believe this is true. It's about them preserving their position as the dominant group because that group is an all white group, right? Scholarly research has determined that people who found themselves targets of the eugenics movement were those who were seen as unfit for society, the poor, the disabled, the mentally ill, and specifically communities of color and a disproportionate number of those who fell victim to eugenics sterilization initiatives were women who were, who, who were identified as African-American, Asian-American, or Native American. As a result, the United States eugenics movement is now generally associated with racist and nativist elements as the movement was to some extent a reaction to demographic and population changes, as well as concerns over the economic and social well-being, rather than scientific genetics. So it became a matter of poor and this color of your skin. 
the American eugenics movement was rooted in the biological determination ideas of Sir Francis, which originated in the 1880s. Put that number in your hat. In 1883, Sir Francis Galton first used the word eugenics to describe scientifically the biological improvement of genes in human races and the concept of being well-born. He believed that differences in a person's ability were acquired primarily through genetics and that eugenics could be implemented through selective breeding in order for the human race to improve in its overall quality therefore allowing for humans to direct their own evolution. In the U.S., eugenics was largely supported after the discovery of Mendel's Law, led to a widespread interest in the idea of breeding for specific traits. Galton studied the upper classes of Britain and arrived at the conclusion that their social position could be attributed to a superior genetic makeup. American eugenicists tended to believe in the genetic superiority of Nordic, Germanic, and Anglo-Saxon peoples, supported strict immigration and anti-miscrimination laws, and supported the forcible sterilization of the poor, disabled, and immoral. So, um, the American and these names will come up later. The American eugenics movement received extensive funding from various corporate foundations, including the Carnegie Institution, Rockefeller Foundation, and the Harriman Railroad Fortune. In 1906, J. H. Kellogg provided funding to help to found the Race Race Betterment Foundation in Battle Creek, Michigan. The Eugenics Record Office, or ERO, was founded in Cold Springs Harbor, New York in 1911 by the renowned biologist Charles B. Davenport. Using money from both the Harriman Railroad Fortune and the Carnegie Institution. As late as the 1920s, the ERO was one of the leading organizations in the American Eugenics Movement. That's the ERO, Eugenics Record Office. In years to come, the ERO and the American Eugenics Society collected a mass of family pedigrees and provided training for eugenics field workers who were sent to analyze individuals at various institutions, such as mental hospitals and orphanage institutions across the United States. Eugenicists such as Davenport, the psychologist Henry Goddard, Harry Laughlin, and the conservationist Madison Grant, all of whom were well-respected during their time, began to lobby for various solutions to the problem of the unfit. Davenport favored immigration restriction and sterilization as primary methods. Goddard favored segregation. Grant favored all of the above and more, even entertaining the idea of extermination. By 1910, there was a large and dynamic network of scientists, reformers, and professionals engaged in national eugenics projects and actively promoting eugenics legislation. The American Breeders Association, the first eugenic body in the United States, expanded in 1906 to include a specific eugenics committee under the direction of Charles B. Davenport. 
the American Breeders Association, or ABA, was formed specifically to investigate and report on hereditary in the human race and emphasize the value of superior blood and the menace to society of inferior blood. Membership included Alexander Graham Bell, Stanford President David Starr Jordan, and Luther Burbank. The American Association for the Study and Prevention of Infant Mortality was one of the first organizations to begin investigating infant mortality rates in terms of eugenics. They promoted government intervention in attempts to promote the health of future citizens. Several feminist reporter reformers advocated an agenda of eugenics legal reform and there's a lot of them there all these movements um, and the one that came out of the group close to the united nations is the national league of women voters they're the first uh feminist groups all these feminist groups were um well <laughs> polluted with their people one of the most famous feminist groups to champion the eugenics agenda was Margaret Sanger, the leader of the American birth control movement and founder of Planned Parenthood. Right now, today, Planned Parenthood is dishing out hormones to kids on their very first visit. Go into Planned, Her Planned Parenthood, tell them you want to be a boy if you're a girl, and you will walk out with a prescription and a bunch of drugs in your hands. That's who these people are. Sanger saw birth control as a means to prevent unwanted children from being born into a disadvantaged life and incorporated the language of eugenics to advance the movement. Sanger also sought to discourage the reproduction of persons who, it was believed, would pass on mental disease or serious physical defects. That was Sanger. Um, so yeah, that is how, um, that was the founding theories right all the founding people that start all this industry and stuff well who are these people well i'm wondering there i'll get there in a second okay i have been rotating around new orleans for a very long time louisiana and something happened about this time okay and you'll understand why i'm going there in a minute okay because there's this group that became identified as the robber barons, okay? Ruthless group of businessmen that came out of this whole thing. And I believe that was a group that took over and took charge, the robber barons, okay? But they didn't just become known. They became known by that name in the early 1800s. But that doesn't mean they just start operating in the 1800s, right? <laughs> I believe they start operating around this point in New Orleans, because New Orleans has all of that past with all those people coming in, the immigration through New Orleans was lock, lots of loss of paperwork. Who knows where all those people that came in through New Orleans went to, right? I think a lot of the people from New Orleans ended up in um, Galveston, Texas. And what happened to all those people? Well, <laughs> who knows, right? Because the history of New Orleans traces the city's development, because always follow the money, right? I found the first use of French money being used in New Orleans. And I talked about this oh, a few years ago, okay? The first money I found being used was being used in New Orleans, and it was called Dick's money, D-I-X, okay? Dick's money. Always follow the money, right? So the first history of money that I have found so far is 
Dick's money coming out of New Orleans, right? Louisiana. Louisiana, I found a whole lot of other stuff there, but I've done complete shows about it, okay? So, the history of New Orleans traces the city's development from its founding by the French in 1718 through its period of Spanish control, then briefly back to French rule before being acquired by the United States in the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. During the War of 1812, the last major battle was the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. Throughout the 19th century, New Orleans was the largest port in the southern United States, exporting most of the nation's cotton output and other farm products to Western Europe and New England. And those boats were then bringing people back. Okay, so lots of lots of money going out in goods, which you want to pay attention to, right? Kind of a red flag with these people, money. So lots of goods going out of New Orleans and also lots of people coming back because they were loading those boats up with people for the return trip, selling them cheap steerage because they needed bodies in those boats to balance them out coming back empty, right? So, um, so yeah, that was going on in New Orleans, right? And then um, right there at that juncture, as the largest city in the South at the start of the Civil War, Civil War was 1861 to 1865. It was an early target for capture by Union forces. With its rich and unique culture, anyway, so yeah, that was New Orleans. So think about this, okay? Easy target for capture by Union forces. So what was going on in New Orleans at that time that somebody had to capture them, right? So 1861, 1865 is a civil war. And remember, they do not have pictures, any battle pictures of the civil war. They just have pictures of the so-called dead bodies left afterward because they claimed they couldn't take any action shots. <laughs> well, that was just lazy, right? So, and right at that time, because the civil war ended in 1865, and then right around that time, there was a big wipeout of people. And that happened in Galveston. It was a 1900 Atlantic hurricane season. It left between 6,000 and 12,000 fatalities. And Galveston at that time was supposed to be the biggest center for the United States as far as the money and stuff, right? So why did Galveston get wiped out right there at 1900, right? And also by a hurricane. <laughs> well, we know who created the hurricane, right? So yeah, all those people... Coming into New Orleans, I believe a lot of them got shipped over to Galveston. A lot of them, because they've only found about 8% of the African population of this country really came from Africa, because they're kind of tripping themselves up with those DNA kits, right? Because I believe, yeah, people came on boat from different countries as slaves. I'm not saying that didn't happen. What I'm saying likely happened was those boats went in all kinds of different directions, right? Because any of those boats coming in through New Orleans had very high likelihood of not being kept track of whoever was on those boats, right? <laughs> and I, I did whole shows about this, about how they were keeping records during New Orleans. So yeah, and any money being shipped out by those boats was also not being probably highly kept track of, right? So we're looking at that date. 
So then why in 1900, the strongest storm of the 1900 Atlantic hurricane season? Interesting date, right? So then I was looking, now, now I put together this little timeline, now that I've kind of given you some where, I'm, where I've been thinking about. So I started looking at hospitals. When did they start all these things, right? So, and I've talked about all these, but I'm just going to give you a little timeline here because I love timelines, okay? Okay, because the founding of electricity happened by the bankers, okay? The bankers seem to trace back into all of this stuff, okay? Whoever rules these people rules it from the banker's nest, okay? But first we start off with the Pennsylvania Hospital, founded by Benjamin Franklin, became the first U.S. hospital in the United States when it's opened its door to patients on February the 11th, 1752. Okay, so 1752, we've got them opening the very first hospital, right? Then, follow the money, the very first bank of the United States was established in Pennsylvania in 1790. So, so we got the hospital, we got the bank, right? Because the whole premise of my show today is what they did was they rigged the system from the very beginning. Whatever juncture they took over at, okay? What they did was they sent their people out to small town America. So each town was formed by a doctor, a sheriff, a banker, and the population. And so what happened was, was that that was how this entire structure was set up. It is so simple, right? So they put these things all in place. So each town, and I'll be giving you an example using the town in Nebraska that I'm in about how they set this up. And interestingly enough, while they were setting this up, they were also setting up mental wards. This goes along with what I'm talking about today as far as this eugenics. So, got them at the first hospital, okay, 1792. Is the first hot, excuse me, the first, that, was, that was a hospital. Okay, let me get back here a second. An actual hospital, like for treating sick people, right, was opened in 1752, okay. The first bank was 1790, and that's called the first bank of the United States. 1792, which is a year after the first bank opens, right? No, the first bank opens 1790. In 1792, the New York Hospital opened a ward for curable insane patients. So right after the bank opens, the hospital opens a ward, special ward, just for what they consider curable insane patients, right? And in 1808, a freestanding medical facility was built nearby for the humane treatment of the mentally ill. And in 1821, a larger facility called the Bloomingdale Asylum was built in what is now the Upper West Side. So now we've got a hospital. We've got a nut ward for the people, right? We've got the crazy, crazy ward for the insane people. we got a bank going on, right? What comes next? Well, the smallpox. Smallpox supposedly had been roaring along up until this point, right? So it's convenient that they have this bank, and they have the bank, they have the hospital, and all this stuff going, right? Uh, well, the smallpox vaccine came about in 1796. Isn't that convenient? And that was 
physician, Edward Jenner, and I've talked extensively about smallpox. So right along at the same time, this is why I keep saying, always look to how this stuff got started, right? So right about that same time, they come up with smallpox, right? And smallpox happened to be the first vaccine to have been developed against a contagious disease. Now, my oh my, right? And they used cows to cross-infect. It was the very first time they started cross-infecting us with animals. And they have ever since. All this monkeypox, which monkeypox, if you look at photos, the marks of monkeypox look just like the early cowpox. <laughs> just saying. Okay, so moving along. That was 1796. So, 1850. By 1850, that was only 55 years later, they had installed 9,000 miles of railroad had been built, okay? The federal government operated a land-grant system between 1855 and 1871 through which new railroad companies in the West were given millions of acres they could sell or pledge to bondholder. Big heist, right? They took a big, big group of property gave it to the railroads, okay? 1850. So, what they do next as they get these railroads going? Well, never waste an opportunity, right? 1854, they started the orphan trade movement. That was a supervised welfare program that transported children from crowded eastern cities of the United States to foster homes located largely in rural areas of the Midwest. The orphan trains operated between 1854 and 1929, relocating from about 200,000 children. The co-founders of the orphan trade movement claimed that these children were orphaned, abandoned, abused, or homeless, but this was not always true. They were mostly the children of new immigrants and the children of the poor and destitute families living in these cities. Criticisms of the program include ineffective screening of caretakers, insufficient follow-up on placements, and that many children were strictly used as slave farm labor. So they barely get the railroads going, right? And they're already putting children on trains to populate the area, right? Because they, they took over, right? They took over, and now they, they got to get those trades going because I've been saying all along, they are rolling out pre-existing technology, okay? That's how this is working, and it's interesting how the time frame always worked because they kept the trains rolling and didn't introduce cars until after they got most of the movement done by train. This is not genius-level stuff, right? Okay, so we got kids in trains from 1854, right? What happens next? The modern electric utility industry in the United States can be traced to the invention of the practical light bulb in 1879 by Thomas Alva Edison. So, um, and they had the first generating electrical plant in New York City in 1882. Okay, And there's a thing about Edison and J.P. Morgan. Um, J.P. Morgan was trained by his father to do the banker's deal, which was the theory, which is how they still operate. They get other people, meaning the depositors, to deposit money into banks, right? 
they use that depositor money for them to go out and buy things to get wealthy. That is the whole way that this whole thing was set up, right? To get poor people or working class people to put your money into a bank so then that bank has your money and they can take that money and invest it good, bad, or indifferent, right? Because technically that money really isn't yours because if you go right now to a bank, if you have, let's say you have $10,000 in the bank. Well, go down to the bank, tell them you want to get $10,000 today and just see what happens. <laughs> They're putting in some very tight restrictions about how you can get your money out because this whole thing was set up as a robbery set up by the bankers, okay? So what happened with J.P. Morgan, it's kind of an interesting story, but not that interesting. I'm going to go into a big old deal about it. But J.P. Morgan, his father trained him to only use other people's money, like in the bank, like the bank's money, right? But J.P. Morgan was the first banker to step outside of the banking business into investing. And what did he invest in? Well, none other than electricity. <laughs> Part of the eugenics program, right? Well, they say that he invent. They, they say this is how electricity came to be, okay? Because that was 1882. Now, this group of people, remember I was just at 1882, and they, they likely started before they became identified, okay? There's a group of people called the Robber Baron, okay? R-O-B-B-E-R, Baron, B-A-R-O-M. It is a derogatory term of social criticism originally applied to certain wealthy and powerful 19th century American businessmen. The term appeared as early as the August 1870 issue of the Atlantic Monthly Magazine. By the late 19th century, the term was typically applied to businessmen who purportedly used exploitative practices to amass their wealth. <clears throat> These practices included exerting control over natural resources, influencing high levels of government, paying subsistence, subsistence wages, squashing competition by acquiring their competition to create monopolies and raise prices, and schemes to sell stock at inflated prices to unsuspecting investors. The term combines the sense of criminal, meaning robber, and illegitimate aristocracy is a baron is a baron means an illegitimate role in a republic. It's, it means an illegitimate aristocrat is a baron, okay? Because they had the aristocrats from Europe, okay? This was the group after that group that purportedly came in and took over, right? So they had the old money and these robber barons, which what they these people would have considered the new money, okay? And there's all kinds of shows about these robber barons out there, okay, now. So they just started becoming popular because the robber barons happened during a time called the Gilded, Gilded Age, G-I-L-D-E-D-H. So, so by the late 19th century, the term was typically applied to businessmen. These practices, exhorting control, completing monopolies, and... Um, 
the term robber baron derives from Rob Ritter, robber knights, the medieval German lords who charged nominally illegal tolls unauthorized by the Holy Roman Empire on the primitive roads crossing their lands or larger tolls along the Rhine River. The metaphor appeared as early as February the 9th, 1859, when the New York Times used it to characterize the business practices of Cornelius Vanderbilt. Historian I've had to develop new skills. I can no longer just keep flying along as I'm talking. <laughs> they may have knocked us out a little bit with all this extra electricity, but trust me, we're, we're still moving along, okay? I don't think we have long to go. I'm not watching channel. I don't think it's going to be great, but all I'm saying is that keep those feet moving. Just keep those feet moving. Okay, so they used it first to describe Cornelius Vanderbilt in 1859. Historian T.J. Stiles says the metaphor conjures up visions of titanic monopolists who crushed comp competitors, rigged markets, and corrupted government. In their greed and power, legend has it, they held sway over a helpless democracy. Hostile cartoonists might dress the offenders in royal garb to underscore the offense against democracy. The first such usage was against Vanderbilt for taking money from high-priced government-subsidized government shippers in order, to not compete, <clears throat> in order to not compete on their routes. Political cronies had been granted special shipping routes by the state, but told legislators their costs were so high that they needed to charge high prices and still receive extra money from the taxpayers as funding. Vanderbilt's private shipping company began running the same routes, charging a fraction, fraction of the price, making a large profit without taxpayer subsidy. The state-funded shippers then began paying Vanderbilt money to not ship on their route. A critic of this tactic drew a political comic depicting Vanderbilt as a feudal robber baron extracting a toll. In his 1934 book, The Robber Barons, The Great American Capitalist, 1861-1901, they argue that the industrialists who are called robber barons have a complicated legacy in the history of American economic and social life. So he said in his book, they more or less knowingly played the leading roles in an age of industrial revolution. Even their quarrels, intrigues, and misadventures, too often treated as merely, <clears throat> as merely diverting or picturesque, are part of the mechanics of our history. Under their hands, the renovation of our economic life proceeded relentlessly. Large-scale production replaced the scattered decentralized mode of production. Industrial enterprises became more concentrated, more efficient, technically and essentially cooperative, where they had been in the past purely individualistic and, they say, wasteful. But all this revolutionary area is branded with the motive of private gain on the part of the new captains of industry. To organize and exploit the resources of a nation upon a gigantic scale, 
to regiment its farmers and workers into harmonious crops of producers, and to do this only in the name of an uncontrolled appetite for private profit. Here surely is a great inherent contradiction when so much disaster, outrage, and misery has flowed. In a Darwinist age, Vanderbilt developed a reputation as a plunderer who took no prisoners. How this um, historian said that the term represented the idea that business leaders in the United States from about 1865 to 1900 were, on the whole, a set of ferocious rascals who habitually cheated and robbed investors and consumers, corrupted government, fought ruthlessly among themselves, and in general carried on predatory activities compared to those of the robber barons of medieval Europe. Historian Richard White argues that the builders of the transcontinental railroads have attracted a great deal of attention, but the interpretations are contradictory. So, um, robber barons standing for a gilded age of corruption, monopoly, and rampant individualism. Their corporations were like octopus, devouring all in its path. In the 20th century, all the 20, excuse me, in the 20th century and the 21st, they became entrepreneurs, necessary business revolutionaries, ruthlessly changing existing practices and demonstrating the protean nature of American capitalism. Their new corporations also transmuted and became manifestations of the visible hand, managerial rationality that eliminated waste, increased productivity, and brought values to replace those of financial buccaneers. So, yeah, um, robber barons, right? Okay, so robber barons, they were there from um, 1870, right? Well, what happened around that same time frame? Well, lo and behold, the Civil War. <laughs> so I believe the robber barons were in place before the term first appeared in August 1870 of the Atlantic Magazine, okay? But they didn't just crop up that week, okay? <laughs> so what happened right around that time where a lot of people also went missing? The American Civil War. April the 12th, 1861 to May the 26th, 1865, also known by other names, was a civil, civil, civil war. Think about that word, civil, right? Between gentlemen, it was fought between the Union, the North, and the Confederacy, the South. The latter formed by states that had seceded. The central cause of the war was a dispute over slavery. Many Civil War historians have believed that 620,000 estimated deaths to be low, especially on the Confederate side. Given the lack of written records and the estimate's questionable assumption that men in the Confederate Army died of disease at the same rate as men of the Union Army. Well, also, I also think that that movie, Gone with the Wind, was there to imprint in our brains 99.9% .9 of this stuff, right? <laughs> it's all been done by movies. Okay, so now we're at the Civil War. 
we already have the um, infants through the um, orphans on trains being zipped off right as soon as the trains were being done, right? Well, right, right after the Civil War, interestingly enough, there was a whole bunch of other children these people became concerned about. In 1969, what was that, four years after the Civil War, a group of Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic nuns established the New York Foundling Hospitals to help care for and place homeless infants. Now, we've gone from the children that they were helping out, because remember, evil comes packaged as help. So in these people's minds, they honestly believe that, well, I don't think they, well, I think they believe this in their heads because a lot of people were likely making money off of these children, right? Because likely, if you found a kid and turned it into one of these other crooks, there was probably some transactions taking place, right? I don't, I don't have to be a genius to start guessing about this stuff, right? So long as child market deal where a lot of people trading hands. And why'd they have to have all these kids? Because they didn't have any adults to do their work? Because of all the people missing from the Civil War? <laughs> well, you gotta wonder, right? So, 1869, a group of Roman Catholic nuns come up with a new plan. And this is um, following the example of the already established Children's Aid Society. Trains were used to transport children to new homes. These became known as mercy trains. People, and these trains were more specific. Now, the other trains, the orphan trains, they literally loaded up kids on trains, okay? They made stops at different places. And I'll tell you in a minute how this all ties into how this whole deal was set up and cooked, okay? So, these kids um, on the mercy trains, okay? But this was different because people who wanted a child, they could request specific attributes of the child they wanted to adopt. So you could write to this organization and tell them, oh, I don't know, you want a one-month-old blue-eyed baby or whatever you want. So this was more of a baby by order a few, a few years after the other kids were bundled up and sent off on trains. So um, this segment, yeah, so that was the 1869, the tiny, tiny infants were getting bundled onto trains, right? And here is why I'm saying what I'm saying today as far as this was all cooked up, okay? And how did this work out? Because those kids get loaded onto trains, right? Well, who takes the kids off the trains? Well, the pastors and the volunteers that are already set up along those train tracks, right? The pastor, the sheriff, the banker, right? <laughs> They're there greeting these kids. The pastors and volunteers, backies, found and created a network of pastors and volunteers in towns along the railroads. These concerned helpers would recruit families in their region to take these children into their homes. The volunteers back east would load the children onto trains with all their earthly goods and send them to their new homes in the west. The west was ready for them. At every stop, families and parents would be waiting at the train station for their new child. These children were scattered all over the Midwest and Plain States of the United States. So yeah, okay, so now they're, now they're sending the babies, the little baby infants around, right? <clears throat> so then we start the era called the Gilded Age. That happened from 1877 to 1896. I propose these people took over, they started taking over somewhere around New Orleans. So now they've been busy, they got the railroads going, they got kids being shipped all over the place. 
the Gilded Gilded Age. These people still remind me of cheap gypsies, okay? The Gilded Age can be characterized as an era of strikes. By the year 1900, 38% of the American population lived in cities, and these people usually had urbanized jobs at factories. During the Gilded Age, labor was very violent and horrific. So what I'm saying is they were certainly had their hands in control in the era they identified as the Gilded Age, 1877 to 1896. Violent labor. Many factories had used children as their employees because they didn't have to get paid as much as the adults. This was a Gilded Age, okay? The Gilded Age was only beginning when the United States celebrated its centennial in 1876, which was marked by the first World's Fair ever held in America. 1876. Somebody took over, right? <laughs> okay, so what happened right after the, the Gilded Age while these people were still... I contend these same people are still in charge that took over at this juncture here. We could argue all day, was it during the Civil War? Was it before that? I think it was before the Civil War about New Orleans. Is what I think. So, right after the Gilded Age, they had the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution, there was a few of them, okay? This first one, also known as the First Industrial Revolution, was a period of global transition of human economy towards more efficient and stable manufacturing processes. So, and that succeeded the agriculture revolutions starting from Great Britain. So, this transition called the Industrial Revolution transition going from hand production methods to machines, okay? New chemical manufacturing, iron production processes, increasing the use of water power and steam power, the development of machine tools, the rise of the mechanized factory system, output generally increased, and as a result, it was an unprecedented rise in population and in the rate of population growth. And that same period, this period occurred during the period from around 1760 to about 1820 to 1840. So what happened was, remember the robber barons are now in charge, right? And now right after that comes the, there's, there's always a given effect, right? On the structural level of the Industrial Revolution, it asked society the so-called social question. So they came up with new ideas, growing poverty on one hand and growing population and materialistic wealth on the other caused tensions between the very rich and the poorest people within society. These tensions were sometimes violently released and led to philosophical, philosophical ideas such as socialism, communism, and anarchism. So the Industrial Revolution is starting to bring out people who aren't too happy with their workload, right? So, but, but here's the part to pay attention to. The Industrial Revolution began in Great Britain, and many of the technological and architectural innovations were of British origin. We never left the British, okay? <laughs> the facts speak for themselves. By the mid-18th century, Britain was the world's leading 
commercial nation controlling a global trade empire with colonies in North America and the Caribbean. So yeah, so the Industrial Revolution marked a major turning point in history, comparable only to humanity's adoption of agriculture with respect to material advancement. Always follow that material advancement the money, right? The Industrial Revolution influenced in some way almost every aspect of daily life. In particular, average income and population began to exhibit unprecedented sustained growth. Some economic economists have said the most important effect of the Industrial Revolution was that the standard of living for the general population in the Western world began to increase consistently for the first time in history. Although others have said it did not begin to improve meaningfully until the late 19th and 20th century. So I'm not going to go all there because they, they come up with one era and then the next era is to uh, kind of change things around, right? But what I'm looking at are these key junctures, right? Because out of the Industrial Revolution, Early innovations, which I have been saying all along, were technologies that existed before, okay? And this is why I think this, these are the people and this is the turning point, okay? Because adoption of the industri Industrial Revolution's early innovations, such as mechanized spinning and weaving, slowed and their markets matured. Innovations developed late in the period, such as increasing adoption of locomotives, steamboats, steamship, steamships, and hot blast iron smelting. New technologies such as the electrical telegraph, widely introduced in the 1840s and 1850s, were not powerful enough to drive high rates of growth. Rapid economic growth began to occur after 1870, springing from a new group of innovations in what has been called the second Industrial Revolution. These innovations included new steel making processes, mass production, assembly line, electric grid systems, the large scale manufacture of machine tools, and the use of increasingly advanced machinery in steam powered factories. So, yeah, I, that, that's a period, right? And then, then there's another thing the history of U.S., the, the period of U.S. history from the 1890s to the 1920s is okay so this is a good recap here the progressive area progressive era 1890s which kind of starts in after the robber barons have set up all this stuff right they, they start rolling out the technology the next era is called the Progressive Era, an era of intense social and political reform aimed at making progress toward a better society. Well, I have so they, they don't understand who we are, so it, there's different eras for them to kind of kind of get things rolled back in, right? Progressive Era reformers sought to harness the power of the federal government to eliminate unethical and unfair business practices reduce corruption, and counteract the negative social effects of industrialization. 
during the progressive era, protections for workers and consumers were strengthened and women finally achieved the right to vote. The problems of industrialization. Though industrialization in the United States raised standards of living for many, it had a dark side. Corporate bosses, sometimes referred to as robber barons, pursued unethical and unfair business practices aimed at eliminating competition and increasing profits. Factory workers, many of them recent immigrants, were frequently subjected to brutal and perilous working and living conditions. Political corruption enriched politicians at the expense of the lower and working class who struggled to make ends meet. The gap between the haves and the have-nots was widening. The progressive movement arose as a response to these negative effects of industrialization. Progressive reformers sought to regulate private industry, strengthen protection for workers and consumers, expose corruption in both government and big business, and generally improve. Yeah, well, you know, they always do that, right? So this group comes in and says, we got all these laws, right? The world, world view, oh, wait a second here. The worldview of progressive reformers was based on certain key assumptions. The first was that human nature could be improved through the enlightened application of regulation, incentives, and punishments. The second key assumption was that the power of the federal government could be harnessed to improve the individual and transform society. These two assumptions were not shared by political conservatives who tended to believe that human nature was unchanging and that the government should remain limited in size and scope. So progressive informers, they came up with legislation for um, drugs in 1906. Um, though progressive reformers achieved many noteworthy goals during this period, they also promoted discriminatory policies and espouse intolerant ideas. The Wilson administration, for instance, despite its embrace of modernity, modernity and progress, pursued a racial agenda that culminated in the segregation of the federal government. The years of Wilson's presidency, 1913-1921, witnessed a revival of the Ku Klux Klan, labor unions, so, and then they came up with the Immigration Act. So, um, I don't have a lot more to say about this. Um, you'll find in the clips that I have why I'm saying all this, because right now, Bill Gates is trying to say that the way forward, high voltage power lines will save America. What does that mean? What does that really mean? Does that mean it'll save America from killing off some undesirable people? I don't know, because all of us have electricity, right? A lot of us have smart meters, so I still, I believe that electricity is a eugenics tool of things. So enjoy this show. I'm going to, I'm going to stop right now. So enjoy the show and I'll talk with you later. Because my conclusion is it's the same psychopaths that are in charge right now. They are crass. They're crude. They're ruthless. They seem to hate dark-skinned people with a passion. They seem to hate any of us who aren't part of their group with a passion, which 
actually, I would rather be hated by these people than loved by them, okay? They can take their love and they can do whatever they want with it because I plan to exit this game board without becoming a hateful person like them. So let's work toward how we can regain some of our kindness toward each other and stop emulating these hateful robber barons who I would say are still, in fact, in charge today as some transgender 1% people running the world. Pretty crazy position we have ourselves in now, don't we? Before I close off here, um, the, the structure has been set up, okay? Right, right in plain sight. I've been saying for years, hiding in plain sight. The United Nations has all the organizational things set up. Okay, I've talked in the past about they're looking at signing this treaty so that who are you going to call takes over all health measures in the future. Well, this is how it starts to roll out. This is what they've done right now. What they have done as of a few months ago, the UN member states they agreed on taking over the oceans. I kid you not. So this is how it works. So it's called UN member states agreed on the first international treaty to protect the high seas. And what do I always say? Evil coming packages help, right? So just so you understand, so you can be on the lookout for the rest of these because they're coming in to help the oceans, right? Remember, they're the people who polluted the oceans, but let me not get started on that. So let's just play this short clip. On March the 23rd, UN agreed first international treaty to protect the high seas. Antonio Guterres, I'm extremely encouraged that countries have agreed on the UN legally binding instrument to ensure the conservation and sustainable use of marine biology diversity of areas beyond natural jurisdictions. This is an important step to protect our oceans. Well, I think they should be talking now. It must be my audio, right? What are the high seas? The high seas that lie beyond country's national waters. These are the largest habitat okay, the high seas are areas of oceans that lie beyond countries' national waters. These are the largest habitat on Earth and are home to millions of species. High seas comprise more than 60% of the world's oceans and nearly half the planet's surface. But only about... So they're basically talking about they're taking control over half of the... <laughs> half of the water surface, okay? 1% of the high seas are currently protected. The UN High Seas Treaty is a framework to protect the world's oceans by bringing them under protected areas. The treaty is designed to ensure the sustainable and equitable use of marine resources. The treaty is seen as a crucial component in the 30 by 30 target agreed in Montreal, Canada in December 2022. 30 by 30 is a global effort to bring 30% of the world's land and sea under protection by 2030. 
Greenpeace data shows that 11 million square kilometer of the ocean must be protected annually until 2030 to meet this target. The new treaty will try and regulate activities like fishing, the routes of shipping lanes and deep sea mining. The popular belief is that the treaty will lead to restrictions on high sea mining and fishing. However, as experts point out, that might not be the case. The UN High Seas Treaty cannot touch fishing, shipping and mining and it never could. In 2017, it was agreed that the BBNJ should not undermine existing governance bodies, including regional fisheries management organizations, the International Maritime Organization and the International Seabed Authority. A lot of popular media is getting that point wrong. Although the treaty will enable equal profit sharing from marine genetic resources such as biological material from plants and animals in the ocean, a framework regarding this is yet to be designed. The UN High Seas Treaty is a huge step in the right direction. Many parts of the agreement is state-driven and will need a major step up. Well, that's plan A for the ocean, right? Once they, once they, once they get into this, whatever percentage they're talking about starting with, you know, 2030 by 2030 or whatever, uh, well, <laughs> uh, you can see where it goes from there, I hope. Anyway, on with the show. I apologize for how chaotic it is, but you can stick with it. I have all the clips out of, I tried to, all the things I've been talking about all this time that lead me up to my decision to say this today, that 100% this is who these people are. They came in around the, somewhere around New Orleans, they became the robber barons, and they are in fact still running things today. But hey, everybody has to decide for themselves, so be safe out there. Well, hello there. Thank you for joining me. You might want to pull up a chair. I'm just recording a very short intro over the monstrous show that I just deleted. Why did I delete the show? Well, because I hired this kid to upload the shows. And, well, I, I can't even count the amount of mistakes that were made. The entire last part of the show got left off. So, I'm going to take a breath. I'm trying to be calm. I deleted the show. And it will be going back up again as soon as I get these files re-uploaded. So, this is what happens, right? One foot in front of the next foot. So, I'm not going to take much time here. It was pretty disappointing because I am very, very, very sick myself. And it took a lot of effort to get all those links together only to get them destroyed. <laughs> so, here we go. So, pull up a chair. Enjoy the show. These people are called the robber barons. Exact same people. It's a long, windy path. So, enjoy the show.
hello there. You might want to pull up a chair. Going to be kind of an interesting ride here today. I have been um, thinking about what to cover next that would have, um, well, some interest and also kind of envelop things that I've spoken about in the past. And to also give you an excellent example of how things work. Because um, I've also spoken in the past about that I thought that possibly the reason that the United States has the proportion of people that have mental issues, seriously, I mean people who you know are living in tents on streets and doing drugs and all that kind of stuff, and I have thought that possibly because since radiation is their tool of choice that something about radiation. Now, did it trigger them and then propel them to the streets? I don't know. Also, because of getting all this extra electricity in my house, some people that are here now have not been able to handle the electricity. So possibly even normal electricity. You know, see what I'm saying? There could be other issues. And here's why I'm saying this. <laughs> because, um, I've been recording this show for, oh, over six years, it was six, <coughs> excuse me, it was six years in April. Well, I started noticing behavioral issues with myself. Well, I can trace them back to when the radiation started, but I first became aware of it about the time that I decided to stop uploading to YouTube and only do audio. And the main reason for that was a couple reasons. One is that, you know, YouTube had never paid me, obviously never was going to pay me, and it looked like it was going to be a continuing hassle, so, um, and also, I wasn't sure that having a microphone in my hand and doing live shows on YouTube was any kind of a good move for me, because I noticed that I, my inability to contain myself under conflict was pretty rapidly diminished. I tried the live shows, didn't work, so I decided to move to audio. And the real reason behind that was because that was when I was finding out about the radiation, which I started talking about in the last year. Well, it's so it's so interesting because um, so I've been uploading this show. So what I do is I go to this one a application on my. This is all done on my laptop. I click record. First I check to make sure that I have the microphone <coughs> that's supposed to be connected and the speakers, right? Well, I've been doing this for six years. I have used this same program for all six years. <coughs> then I save it and download it to my computer and then from there I have to convert it to a mp3 file. So I convert it to an MP3 file, and then I upload it, it upload it to my drive, and then from there I prepare this, the piece that I give to the kid to upload it with, because I prepare the show schedule. So he gets the he gets the, the audio links, he gets the title, so it's all ready to go. All he has to do is upload the show. Okay. So been doing this exact same process. Okay. <laughs> well. For two days, I was lost in the process, okay? Now, I wasn't having other 
mental issues, okay? So it's not like I'm unable to get around my house or, uh, well, all these things are very complicated, but it wasn't like I'm at risk of <laughs> falling off the roof or anything like that. <laughs> it's very specific. So what happened for two days, I could not figure out how to, um, how to get the show to record. The same thing I'd been doing for all these years, I could not tackle it. <laughs> So the show you're going to be hearing today, I got frustrated because I thought that it was my speakers, okay? So I thought, well, I need to get some new speakers. And so then after day two, I saw myself start to going downhill with this very simple thing that I started off with, right? I, d I saw my, I started saying, well, maybe my recording program is wrong. This is the one I've been using all this time, right? Maybe that's wrong, so maybe I need to download a new one. And then I did look at a new one, and I realized that my brain was triggered so bad that I thought, no, no, <laughs> this isn't the solution. Just sleep on it and figure it out in the morning, right? Because this has been going on for two days. But in the meantime, I recorded a show, which we'll play today, telling this story. I want to show you an example of how this whole thing works. Because I've been saying all along, and I've done shows about all of this, so this is kind of the encompassing one, okay? How they cleverly set up this part of the board game, being the United States portion of it, was, you know, by first landing here in a murderous rage, getting rid of all the native people that were here, right? The white dominion with the manifest destiny business and all that. And they literally set out and put their own people in charge of everything. And I will show you exactly how they did it. And what I'm going to do is put things into segments. You won't necessarily notice they're in segments, but if things kind of run together funny, then <laughs> that's why. Because if I give the kid these different segments, sometimes they seem to run together. Why? I don't really know. <laughs> so. Anyhow, so I'm going to be first giving you an overview, okay, because there was a, a pretty big crime that happened here in Norfolk, Nebraska, okay, and I happen to know about the crime because I was involved, not involved in it, like I didn't commit the crime, but I had, let's say, some knowledge of what was going on with that particular crime and stuff, okay. And I tell the whole story in this clip, so I'm not going to start telling the whole story again now. But um, it really does show how things got started. But before I get started with all this, let me play a few clips right now because there is information I've talked about in the past because this also, I'm going to be very specific in any clips that I show because this clip is about EPA official admits Norfolk Southern blew up derailed East Palestine, East Palestine train for profit. So I want to play this clip for you so you can be updated because I have talked ad nauseum about my view. If what's being missed in, is also this. Besides them blowing up the train, okay, they blew up five trains, okay, and there were allegations early on that, hey, they didn't have to blow all five of them up now, did they, right? <laughs> but, um, so anyway, so then they got caught 
recently blowing up the trains. So what I'd like to do is play this clip so you get it from their own lips how this whole thing got uncovered. But what I want you to focus on is this. There was, when those trains exploded, they hit and exploded at a place called Sulphur Run, okay? Sulphur Run is the water system. Sulphur Run feeds into the Ohio River, which feeds into the Mississippi River, okay? At that juncture, at Sulphur Run, is exactly where these trains had the accident to start this whole thing off, right? So the trains had the accident right there at that key juncture. Why is that juncture important? Well, because right at that juncture, there happened to be sitting, and I believe this, I, I saw the videos of it all, okay? There was a train, um, train car, just sitting there, okay? Before, so before the train comes along and has the crash, there's a train car sitting right there, right? Well, it's an unidentified train car. It's an orange unidentified train car sitting there, right? So the train hits, explosion, right? The accident, right? Well, that train car sitting there unattended, I believe, was likely full of explosives. So that would accelerate when the train hit to make things <laughs> get worse, right? So um, then the what they did was they wanted to then there were a couple of allegations. One is that if the train tracks are declared an emergency, then they have to stop moving. So that would mean that the train company, Norfolk Southern, would be not allowed to continue running through that town. So obviously there would be some hesitation to wanting to, well, there, there was speed involved in wanting to clear the tracks because of m wanting to continue making money, right? But was this whole thing done for some other purpose? And I've already done a whole show about it <coughs> because these same people were given these health cards. <laughs> this is all about protect how they project things, right? This, the same people in this town, East Palestine, Ohio, which is part of Appalachia, they were given health cards just a few months before this whole train thing happened, okay? So it's an interesting time, interesting place. Also hits the Mississippi River, okay? Mississippi River is a main source of water. So that threw all this chemical stuff directly into that main waterway on purpose. I've been saying it's on purpose all along. So finally, what happened was the company that all these train cars get leased out, okay? So that's how, <coughs> that's how they can hide responsibility too. So Norfolk Southern is the carrier, okay? And all these other <coughs> cars on those carriers are privately owned. So what was happening was Norfolk Southern was pretty much blaming the company who had the plastics in those other cars as being the problem and saying, well, we had to blow it up because we were worried these plastic things were getting too hot and we, we would blow everything up if we didn't blow, blow this up now. See, they always have these very decisive yet dangerous actions to take, right? So then within you know just a short period, they all get together and decide to blow up this train. So this is where this clip picks up. 
and um, and the title is EPA official admits Norfolk Southern blew up derailed East Palestine trains for profit. <coughs> but I believe the whole thing happened to pollute the Mississippi River is what I believe is the underlying cause here. But we'll hear what. See, there's always a cause and effect, right? And sometimes, even when they admit something, right? Now they're admitting here that it, it, it was for profit and they shouldn't have kept it open. But what I believe they're not admitting was the real plan was to pollute that prop, <laughs> pollute all the property in that area, making it easier for them to grab that land because people now want to get the heck out of there, right? So anyhow, so let me just play the clip. to detonate five caustic vinyl chloride cars in East Palestine, Ohio. According to new reporting from Status Quo News, the official was reportedly unaware he was being recorded. Still, Cagliano, a hazardous waste specialist, said they did this to get the lines open. The owner of five toxic vinyl chloride cars involved in the East Palestine disaster had this to say. Steve met with more folks on the emergency response contractors and for the third time, stated Oxybibles' view that polymerization of ECM was not occurring. In summary, although our rail cars did not initiate the derailment and did not reach in the derailment, we provided technical support to Norfolk Southern and its emergency response contract. We sent a team to Ohio to support Norfolk Southern's response effort, and we provided information regarding stabilized ECM. We advised that the temperature of the rail cars should be monitored, and we communicated our view that polymerization was not occurring. I want to emphasize that we did not have direct access to real-time information regarding conditions at the derailment site. So joining us now to tell us more is CEO of Status Quo, Jordan Sheridan. Thank you for being here with us. Thanks for having me. So what do you make of what he, he said just there? To me, it, it sounds like this could have been a decision that they made to cut costs when it comes to the cleanup or shirk some responsibility or legal accountability. What do you make of, of what he said there in the testimony? Yeah, what the manufacturer of the actual chemical said kind of aligns what I've been hearing for months and what we've been covering uh, on our YouTube channel, Status Quo. Uh, it never really made sense uh, on the Sunday night before they detonated the cars. They, Wilfred Southern, said there was one car that was at risk of, uh, according to them, uncontrolled explosion. And then overnight, it became four more cars. They never really provided any evidence of such. Uh, and now we know from the actual manufacturer of the chemical that uh, they were repeatedly telling Norfolk Southern uh, there, there's no risk of polymerization, which basically means you know the temperature getting so hot and the chemicals 
uh, pressure expanding to the point of an uh, uncontrolled explosion. Uh, we also know that Norfolk Southern wanted to do it even earlier in the day at noon Eastern on a Monday when kids were still in school, when the town was not fully evacuated. Uh, but fortunately, uh, you know, officials said, no, we have to do it later when uh, school is out. Uh, but honestly, in a non-scientific, uh, wonky explanation, because it does get a little, uh, you know, scientific with the terms, uh, Norfolk Southern did not have to detonate highly cancerous chemicals over this small town, uh, and it seems they did so because if they would have uh, not detonated the cars, they would have taken, by experts we've spoken with, maybe another week uh, to open up, uh, to, to extract the chemicals from those rail cars, fully open up uh, the train track, and it would have cost them about a million dollars a day. That's a pretty stunning admission then from Norfolk Southern and this EPA official that they apparently didn't have to detonate those cars and risk the health of all of these people. Is there any chance of Norfolk Southern being held accountable for this decision making? What are the enforcement mechanisms for making sure that they either have to pay out or that somebody in charge is punished for the sickness that was brought to the residents of East Palestine? Yeah, uh, well, I'm still waiting for bankers, fossil fuel executives, <laughs> and many others to be criminally prosecuted, so I'm not holding my breath. But, I mean, I we did reach out to the Attorney General of Ohio. Uh, we were told, you know, uh, check the box, that they were monitoring uh, those hearings. Uh, but there seems to be definitely a criminal case. I do know uh, there are attorneys looking into that and building a case. Whether it actually goes anywhere, we don't know, uh, because that's the star witness. I mean, why Norfolk Southern was not listening to the manufacturer of the chemical uh, at the chemical of concern, who, who would you trust the most to tell you whether these chemicals were at risk of exploding? You would trust the, the manufacturer who made it. It seems from their testimony that they were actually cut out of emergency response discussions right before the detonation because he was not giving the railroad company the answer they wanted. Uh, so there should be criminal prosecution uh, we do know how uh, American history has played out, that we do see record fines, and that kind of cheered as a victory for residents. Uh, but, you know, those fines are not going, the fines and eventual lawsuit settlements will not really help residents who develop cancer and other uh, permanent injury. Uh, we're talking to residents every day for months, dizziness, headaches, nausea, burning eyes, worse, uh, and this is a highly cancerous chemical that causes uh, liver cancer, lung cancer, brain cancer, other ailments. So there should be uh, definitely a criminal investigation into who knew what when. Uh, Wilfred Seven should have to provide actual scientific uh, chemist, uh, chemistry evidence that uh, they had no other choice. And the EPA has a role here too, because the EPA has been really echoing the line uh, that the company has been uh, saying for months until that official accidentally told the truth, not knowing who was the court. What do you make of the recent Supreme Court ruling in Mallory versus Norfolk Southern? This was a really interesting case where you had an employee of Norfolk Southern say he was exposed to carcinogens while he was on the job. The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania 
said that this wasn't a case uh, that could be brought under the jurisdiction of Pennsylvania simply because the corporation was not registered to do business uh, in Pennsylvania. That's not where it was based, but because it was operating in Pennsylvania, uh, the Supreme Court actually sided against Norfolk Southern and said that it was uh, a fair lawsuit. How do you think that Supreme Court case would set a precedent so that Norfolk Southern could be held accountable in Ohio for their actions here? Well, the jurisdictional question in that case might come into play here because obviously East Palestine, rightfully so, has gotten a lot of attention, but we should also note, I mean, the plume went far and wide. There's people sick in Pennsylvania, uh, there's people who are affected in West Virginia. Uh, we've even spoken with people in parts of New York uh, that felt health, uh, had health symptoms uh, weeks uh, after, uh, days and weeks after this because uh, this went, you know, not necessarily within the one mile uh, that Norfolk Southern said. So it will be uh, very uh, important based on that Supreme Court decision to see if uh, courts state, well, the accident happened in Ohio, so Pennsylvania residents might have no, um, you know, no leg to stand on, or a rule against Norfolk Southern because this. The plume also was noted as looking very much like the plume from um, Japan. Japan was dynamite. Okay, Japan was not nuclear because if Japan was nuclear. There would have been, go look at my website, I have photos of, it's called, what about, the tab is, what about the children or something. Um, so far, I haven't been able to find any photos of any children coming out of Japan that are harmed, but I'm still looking, okay. But right after they said they hit the nuclear bomb with Japan, people, I don't know, I see photos of people walking around, and if it was an atomic bomb, why were only those? thatched houses blown up because I believe that it was dynamite. Don't forget the Nobel Peace Prize family <laughs> and you'll find them on my timeline tab have been involved in our eugenics and their creation was dynamite. So they have been long into dynamite. Dynamite is how they do Tusamis. Dynamite is what they did on San Francisco. They threw dynamite and called it an earthquake and then they it accelerated with flames. And there were there were things about San Francisco earthquake, you know, their own historians were saying, well, I think they were confused because they were noted as throwing dynamite into the fire. And no, that was part of the plan. <laughs> Somebody just made a note of it. <laughs> so dynamite at their core is their deal, right? So it should come as no surprise to anybody that their response is, well, let's just blow this up. But they've been using dynamite and stuff for a very long time. And if you look at some of those World War II photos of Japan and the um, bomb detonation, they've known how to do photography for a long time, okay? There's, some of those photos are clearly overlaid to make them look worse, okay? So it looks like the, the plume that we see from East Palestine, which in my mind is a true plume, because I do believe that this whole thing did blow up, right? And then you look at the plume from Japan, and it's just a bigger one, but it looks to me like it's possibly photo overlay to look big, because what I'm saying is, <laughs> 
they're one-trick ponies, okay? So they started with dynamite. Um, they learned, and I'll be talking about this hopefully more, a lot of what they were doing is they learned how to use accelerants to the dynamite, okay? So part of them were likely dynamiting the heck out of Japan. Then they figured out a way to fit those planes with the napalm bombs. So then they were able to fly in low and blast out napalm bombs on everybody, which is a very hideous way to murder somebody, right, with napalm. And then they just called it all a nuclear bomb. So then those photos could become pictures for a nuclear bomb. But if it was really a nuclear bomb, then where are the, you know, if I lose the trail here, pick up the trail, because there should be children coming out of Japan that are um, injured, because there's children coming out of Japan, there's, I mean, excuse me, there's children coming out of Vietnam, there's children coming out of the Polygon in Russia, there's, there's children coming out all over the place that are injured. I'm still looking for children in the Marshall Islands. Don't know about that yet. But anyhow, so back to my point here. So what I'm saying is, is that dynamite is <coughs> is their number one reference. Blow stuff up and then act like it's nuclear or something else because they really don't have those other capabilities. That's all done with computer graphics. Train was yes, it happened in East Palestine, but the line was going through multiple states. So um, the precedent them ruling against Gulfport Southern might help uh, residents that were affected in multiple states. Uh, again, not just Ohio, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere. Do you think that the Biden administration deserves some criticism for their response to what happened in East Palestine? It took Pete Buttigieg, the Transportation Secretary, for example, quite some time to even visit the site, although he said that he was monitoring the situation. But it seems like if Norfolk Southern was kind of left to its own devices to decide how to best respond to this train derailment, if there were EPA officials there or transportation officials there, perhaps they could have exercised some influence and prevented them from detonating these cars. Uh, I would ask what response for the Biden administration, because there <laughs> hasn't really been one. Sure. Uh, besides the fact that he has not gone to East Palestine, which I don't understand any rational uh, reason for that other than his own health concerns, which he is an older man, but I mean, Donald Trump, say what you want about him, he went there uh, before the actual president. Uh, not to mention the EPA, uh, which has been very uh, questionable uh, through multiple presidents. Uh, I'll give you what happened in Flint. But the EPA, uh, from the beginning, was towing the railroads line that this was a, quote, controlled burn. Uh, our reporting on our YouTube channel clearly showed that this was a prohibited open burn that is against the EPA's regulations, but that EPA official basically said in that secret reporting that they don't even need to follow open burn regulations. Uh, the Biden administration has kind of provided some officials from FEMA, but not the full power of FEMA, citing that they cannot, uh, by law, uh, give the full force of FEMA and other agencies because it's not a natural disaster like a hurricane or a storm, um, whereas uh, if, it, if it was like a tornado or a hurricane, they could declare it a disaster. But that doesn't mean they cannot provide a lot more uh, resources for people of East Palestine. We're talking to residents who are being jerked around. They call Norfolk Southern. Norfolk Southern tells them to call the county. They call the county. They're just being bopped around bureaucracy to bureaucracy 
And the, when they contact the EPA or the CDC, they're being told, contact your local officials. So there really isn't a coherent federal response. Residents, in addition to health, have to worry about, well, it's not safe to go back to our homes. A lot of them smell like gas stations. Uh, but we still have to pay our mortgages. They're not getting support with that. So there really has not been a coherent, uh, thorough response from President Biden or the EPA. And we should say, I mean, East Palestine is a conservative area that went for Trump. I wonder how it would have played out if it was a more democratic stronghold. Mm, yeah, it's an interesting perspective. Thank you so much, George. No, I don't think it would have mattered. What the deal is, it's a working class white area in Appalachia. These trains do not run through <laughs> the elite white areas. I've got one of those train tracks two blocks from my house. Sometimes when I'm recording, you'll hear that train. And they've extended those trains for profit to the point that they're several miles long. So you can hear that train just going along there. And they've also never had any kind of regulations to what kind of chemicals. So when they blow up in one of these towns, no one knows what's in them. It's always surprise, surprise, because there's no real regulations for them ha having to um, do anything. So because my focus today is on the war criminal aspect of how the United States was founded, is, um, and you, you'll notice in these cases, like the people in East Palestine, well, I mean, I've talked before about these people print their own money, right? They get their own money off the backs of our labor, right? So then they use that money to fight and abuse a certain class of people in certain areas. So here again, we're funding our own eugenics. And in many cases, many of us are guilty or have been guilty, myself included, to not be as much in solidarity with these other people as we could have been, right? And that's the whole idea with all of this constant, constant stuff with social media, keep everybody bouncing in a million directions. So just recently, um, this is how this is going to be going, okay? Because for years, they have been giving out war equipment to these small town cops, okay? For, for the last years, cops have been changing their uniforms. If you notice, cops no longer have what the cops in the 50s movies had. <laughs> now cops are loaded in black war gear, loaded with all kinds of attachments hooked onto their thing, okay? They're just loaded up, okay? They're getting all of that stuff through the 1033 program. And so on a more global scale, um, and this will show you the military action that is being planned against those of us in this country, right? If they're extra arming the cops, because for years people were saying, oh, move out to the country, safer out there. Well, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, <laughs> they're pretty much armed to the teeth. So just this week, and they always recircle, circle around, right? These predatory psychopaths, right? That's what I'm calling it, predatory pigs. <laughs> well, the latest pig to resurface is a guy named Elliot Abrams, okay? Elliot Abrams is, well, he's not, well, you know, I don't want to start comparing war criminals, okay? <laughs> but 
Elliot Abrams is, um, well, he has been appointed by Biden administration. Biden administration just nominated him. So if you're thinking that, well, maybe they're sensing that other com countries are going to start to balk about the U.S. over intervention in their countries. So they're bringing on the guy that shut it all down before and set it all up to keep the terror going. But I don't know. You have to think for yourself. It looks to me like Elliot Abrams did a lot of stuff in Venezuela and places and then um, got in trouble for it. And now all these other countries are talking about getting their own money. Is any of that true? I don't really know. Are they really are they really balking the system? I don't know. I'm not in any of these countries. At some point, maybe some of them may be balking against the United States, but I don't have a clue. But here's the deal. They're bringing back into power the guy who put those countries <laughs> to their knees in the first place, which would be Venezuela. So the guy who hammered Venezuela is Elliot Abrams, okay? Now, Bush, excuse me, Biden has just brought him back in power. And how it works is this. He was brought back in under Trump. And then all of the people on the left were like, oh my God, did you see what Trump did? He brought in that war criminal, Elliot Abrams. That was just the last administration, right? So now this administration, Biden, just announced, who's he bringing in? Elliot Abrams. <laughs> so what they do is, this is all theater. They've set up the game board to have them run everything, and this is all theater. And I'd like to play some clips because it will really show you how the theater plays out. Okay, so this is Elliot Abrams, the war criminal running U.S. policy in Venezuela. Just to set up who this character is, okay? Elliot's passion for the rights and liberties of all people on January 25th, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced that prominent neoconservative strategist Elliot Abrams would oversee efforts in Venezuela to complete the ouster of the country's elected president, Nicolas Maduro. So it's very nice to be back. Abrams' appointment as special envoy to Venezuela comes as somewhat of a surprise. First of all, he strongly criticized Trump in 2016 when he wrote an article titled when you can't stand your candidate. But more importantly, Abrams was convicted in 1991 for attempting to cover up details of the Iran-Contra scandal while speaking to Congress. Last year, Senator Rand Paul warned in an op-ed not to let Abrams anywhere near the State Department. Crack the door to admit Elliot Abrams, Paul continued, and the neocons will scurry in by the hundreds. Central America's problems do directly affect the security and the well-being of our own people. Abrams' hawkish neoconservative roots reach back to the beginning of his career during the Reagan administration when U.S. involvement in Latin America was ramping up. Through a number of positions at the State Department, including ironically Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs, Abrams defended and helped cover up atrocities carried out by U.S.-backed governments in El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. While then-Guatemalan President Efron Rios Montt was carrying out what the U.N. would later call a genocide,
against the indigenous people of the Exil region of the country. Abrams was in the halls of Congress lobbying for continued military aid to the murderous dictator. I think you have to be, you have to apply uniform standards. Thirteen years later, investigative reporter Alan Nairn appeared on Charlie Rose alongside Elliot Abrams to discuss U.S. accountability in Guatemala. You have to be even-handed. If we look at a case like this, I think we have to talk, start talking about putting Guatemalan and U.S. officials on trial. I think someone like Mr. Abrams would be a fit uh, a subject for such a Nuremberg-style inquiry. But I agree with Mr. Abrams that Democrats would have to be in the dock with him. The Congress has been in on this. The Congress approved the sale of 16,000 N-16s to Guatemala. In 87 and 88, because they voted more military aid than the Republicans asked for. And again, I invite you and Elliot Abrams back to discuss what he did. Thanks, Charlie, but I want to have to Go ahead. You want to speak to the question? You want to be in the dock? It is ludicrous to respond to that kind of stupidity. This guy thinks we were on the wrong side in the Cold War. Maybe he personally was on the wrong side. I am one of the many millions of Americans. I don't want to wrong side in supporting the massacre of peasants and organizers. What I want to do is not only cheerled brutal U.S.-backed governments in Latin America, he promoted U.S.-backed rebels in the region as well, such as the Contras of Nicaragua, who were fighting to overthrow the socialist Sandinista government. His by any means necessary approach to help overthrow the Sandinistas revealed a deep contempt for international law. He, along with Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, tried to secure funding for the Contras illegally by soliciting a $10 million contribution from the Sultan of Brunei. He also threatened to end U.S. aid to Costa Rica in 1986, when the country said it would make public the fact that there existed an illegal Contra airstrip within its borders. By the mid-1990s, Abrams had already defined himself as a convicted criminal and defender of Latin American regimes the world now knew were brutal and genocidal. He had also since helped orchestrate a disastrous invasion of Panama in 1989. When it was over, thousands lay dead and wounded, and the country was in shambles. But despite Abrams' long list of crimes and blunders, he was not only pardoned by George H.W. Bush in 1992, after being sentenced to only a $50 fine, two years probation, and 100 hours of community service, but was once again tapped for help in reshaping America's foreign policy for the 21st century. The project for a new American century was founded in 1997, and its architects were bent on bringing Reagan's policy of military strength and moral clarity, along with Reaganite advisors such as Elliot Abrams, back into the mainstream. PNAC's targets for intervention included Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Iran, and, of course, Iraq. And three of PNAC's main architects, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and Paul Wolfowitz, would serve in George W. Bush's administration. And Elliot Abrams served as a director on Bush's National Security Council, not only enacting PNAC's agenda, but sanctioning other interventions such as the failed 2002 coup attempt in Venezuela that sought to remove Hugo Chavez from power. Abrams also signed a letter to Bill Clinton in 1998, urging Clinton to remove Saddam Hussein by force. The letter went so far as to dismiss the international community's opinion, saying that American policy cannot continue to be crippled by misguided insistence on unanimity in the UN Security Council. Since supporting the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, Abrams has, unsurprisingly, continued to take the most hawkish positions available in Washington from supporting Israel's apartheid state 
to fighting the Iran nuclear deal to supporting American airstrikes in Syria. In September of 2018, Donald Trump hinted that Venezuela could soon see a change of power. It is evident the Trump administration has been planning to overthrow the Maduro government for some time, a continuation of the U.S. policy that led to the 2002 coup attempt against Hugo Chavez. While then-President Bush tried to keep the U.S. hidden in the background of that failed coup, Trump has returned to the overt aggression that characterized the worst days of U.S. interference, support for right-wing dictators, and war crimes throughout Latin America. It's a criminal policy out of the Elliott Abrams playbook. Well, like I say, it's the plan, not the bug in the system. So let's take a look at this clip is Biden. Now, this is what's going on is... Now, the people on the left, their heads are spinning off because they're like, why, wait, wait, wait a minute, why is, Biden, why is Biden appointing this war criminal? Because when Trump, as a Republican, appointed Elliot Abrams, who I think by any imagination is a war criminal, right? I think we can all kind of agree on that. So, so when Trump appointed him, they all went crazy, right? Then now... The left is now shocked that Biden has appointed him. <laughs> it's how the musical chairs work. They bring in their own brand of killers. This is how psychopaths play the game. A horrific past in Latin America to his advisory commission on public diplomacy. And diplomacy is not the type of word I would use to describe what Abrams stands for. In fact, nominating a guy who literally backed death squads and who most recently acted as Trump's special envoy to Iran and Venezuela, kind of runs counter to diplomacy, no? He directed the failed coup attempt to oust Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, and as we all know, U.S. relations with Iran devolved significantly during his tenure with the Trump administration. Trump escalated tensions and paved the way for Iran to develop nuclear weapons after he tore up the Iran nuclear deal. And while you don't really have to travel too far in history to discover that Abrams has a gross past in support of some of the most brutal foreign policy imaginable, it is worth noting how he was involved in one of the largest scandals in American history, the Iran-Contra operation. He even pleaded guilty for the crimes he committed. The Republican insider's long history in foreign policy is marked by a 1991 guilty plea for withholding information about the Iran-Contra affair that earned him two misdemeanor counts, two years probation, and 100 hours of community service, though his crimes were, of course, later pardoned by President George H.W. Bush. The secret Iran-Contra operation, which took place during Abrams' time as an assistant secretary of state in the Reagan administration, involved the funding of anti-communist rebels in Nicaragua, using the proceeds from weapons sales to Iran despite a congressional ban on such funding. In fact, here's more on the scandal and why it was a huge deal. In 1985, an Iranian-backed terrorist group held seven American hostages in Lebanon. Reagan insisted his advisors find a way to bring the hostages home, saying, I want you to do whatever you have to do to help these people keep body and soul together. So with permission from Reagan, McFarland 
a deal. The U.S. would give Iran weapons, and Iran would broker the release of the hostages. This happened even though Reagan publicly insisted he would not negotiate with terrorists, and despite the fact that there was a trade embargo with Iran. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. The deal with Iran didn't just secretly secure the release of the hostages in exchange for weapons. There was money involved. While $30 million had been allocated for the weapons, the CIA funneled a portion of that money to the Contras in Nicaragua, the group Reagan supported in their guerrilla fight against the Sandinista government. In 1986, the Lebanese newspaper Al-Shirar reported the arms deal, and everything began to unravel. That prompted an investigation by the U.S. Attorney General, who discovered that only $12 million of the $30 million actually went for weapons for Iran. The rest of the money was sent to the Contras in Nicaragua. Anything to fight the Sandinistas, right? Now, luckily, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar confronted Abrams about this during a 2019 House hearing. I think it's worth watching. In 1991, you pleaded guilty to two counts of withholding information from Congress regarding your involvement in the Iran Contra affair, for which you were later pardoned by President George H.W. Bush. I fail to understand uh, why members of this committee or the American people should find any testimony that you give uh, today to be truthful. If I can respond to that. Uh, um, it wasn't a question. I would on that, that was not that was not a question. Uh, that was I I reserved the right I'm, to my time. It is not it is not right. That was not a question. Can on February eighth who is not permitted to reply. I mean he was free to respond to her, but you know, tough statements by Ilhan Omar are pretty difficult to answer to, especially when you're in the wrong. And there's more to Abrams' damning history that Representative Omar asked about, including his actions in El Salvador. But before we get to that exchange, the historical context is worth getting familiar with if you aren't already familiar with it. In February of 1982, while working under the Reagan administration, Abrams provided Senate testimony downplaying reports of U.S. trained and equipped military units massacring nearly one thousand people in El Mosote, the horrific December 1981 massacre which targeted leftists in the country and was described as the largest mass killing in recent Latin American history. The story of one of the worst massacres in the modern history of Latin America began in December 1981. It was in the midst of a cold war. States was supporting the government of El Salvador's fight against communist-backed rebels, known as the FMLN. There was a lot of risk involved. There were targeted killings of people who organized peasants, organized labor, organized within their churches. We walked into a, a tiny pueblo that was completely evacuated. All the houses had been burned to the ground. You, you saw the remains of people. You felt like it was a ghost town. It was eerie. It was like time was frozen. The village was called El Mosote. I remember their bodies lying in the cornfield. It was clear this had been a, you know, a, a scorched earth policy, if you will. 
Now look, any non-sociopathic person would see that brutality and in the very least object to it. But not Abrams. He insisted that the number of reported El Salvadorian victims were made up. And even lavished praise on the military battalion behind the mass murders. In fact, Raymond Bonner, a former New York Times correspondent in El Salvador, wrote for the Atlantic in 2019 that the Reagan administration, with Abrams as point man, routinely defended the Salvadoran government in the face of evidence that its regular army and allied right-wing death squads were operating with impunity, killing peasants, students, union leaders, and anyone considered anti-government or pro-guerrilla. Abrams went so far as to defend one of the death squad's most notorious leaders, a guy who had the nickname Blowtorch Bob, who was responsible for the murder of Archbishop Oscar Romero while he was saying mass in March of 1980. Even Americans, including four churchwomen who were doing humanitarian work in the country, were killed by these death squads. Reported today from El Salvador that four Americans have been killed there. This was the first time that Americans seemed to have been singled out by a death squad. They were shot execution style, bullets to the back of the head. Later, their bodies were found in a shallow grave. Apparently victims of a terrorist attack. That was a wake-up call. There was a great outcry. Now, considering all of this death and destruction, <laughs> Abrams decided to double down on the U.S.'s involvement while being questioned by Representative Omar during a 2019 House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing. Let's watch. On February 8, 1982, you testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about U.S. policy in El Salvador. In that hearing, you dismissed as communist propaganda report about the massacre of El Mosote, in which more than 800 civilians, including children as young as two years old, were brutally murdered by U.S. trained troops. During that massacre, some of those troops bragged about raping a 12-year-old girl before they killed them. Girls before they killed them. You later said that the U.S. policy in El Salvador was a fabulous achievement. Yes or no, do you still think so? From the day that President Duarte was elected in a free election, to this day, El Salvador has been a democracy. That's a fabulous achievement. The instability in El Salvador and the individuals seeking asylum here in this country from El Salvador uh, would say otherwise. Now, following the unspeakable brutality Abrams was part of and continues to be an apologist for in El Salvador, he went on to become the senior director of the National Security Council. Later, he served as the deputy assistant to the president and deputy national security advisor under George W. Bush, which makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Now, currently, Abrams works as a senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Isn't it just incredible how these death-hungry lowlives move up the political ladder, even when they've committed crimes and have pleaded guilty to it? I mean, forget corn pop. Abrams was a bad dude, and he runs with a bunch of bad boys. 
So why would Biden nominate him? What does this say about Biden? The president can only appoint four out of the seven members of the Bipartisan Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. So why waste a nomination on someone as toxic as Abrams? When you read the State Department's mission statement for this particular agency, Biden's nomination is even more insane. The commission appraises the U.S. government activities intended to understand, inform, and influence foreign publics, and may assemble and disseminate information and issue reports and other publications to the Secretary of State, the President, and the Congress. Like, can you imagine taking advice from that guy? Someone who not only knew about and greenlit the massacres of thousands of people in El Salvador, innocent civilians in some cases, but then went on to just show us how he feels no shame about it, how he thought that it was a wonderful accomplishment. I mean, the lack of humanity and the cruelty that this guy represents is incredible. And Biden nominating Abrams is an even bigger problem when you consider how much Biden likes to escalate his rhetoric against China and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Look, we need leaders and we need them to have advisors who can think strategically to prevent and end wars peacefully. Abrams is the antithesis of that. Abrams must be confirmed by the Senate in order to serve on this committee. And that, I would call the plan, not the bug in the system, right? And one little detail that seems to have been missing from most people's radar is this little plan thing called the 10 1033 plan. What's a 1033 plan? Well, there was a, during the Michael Brown murder, which was of course staged in a psyops that we know now, right? It's fake. That was the first time that they were, they brought out tanks onto the U.S. streets. So because they, they came up with that fake murder of that young boy, black boy, Michael Brown, Ferguson, Missouri, and what happened? Well, they brought out the tanks and all the military gear. A lot of people seem to have missed it, but since this point, it has gotten worse, and it is part of the plan, not the bug in the system. So now they're, they're saying, hey, Trump just uh, is giving the military more stuff. And they said, as if he's the first one to do it. And I think they start talking here. Nobody's yeah. been better to law enforcement than I have. You know, when I first came in, we gave away hundreds of millions of dollars of military equipment that was in storage. They said both parties have committed. Obama and by they both parties are doing this. Obama ran for office promising to promising to reduce military. Obama also ran on peace, so let's not forget that. So they're saying, you know, huge amounts were sent to troops abroad, but huge amounts were shipped to occupations at home. Under the 1033 program, the Pentagon sent $1 billion in military equipment 
over to police departments. That's U.S. police departments. During the Ferguson uprising, police militarization went into overdrive. That year, 2014, saw the largest military transfers. Did President Obama's program increase police killings? Studies suggest the answer is yes. A 2017, I gotta keep up with this. <laughs> a 2017 study, after controlling for other factors, found that 1033 led to both an increase in the number of observed police killings and the number of police killings from year to year. And keep in mind, a lot of these so-called police killings are staged police killings, right? They stage like Michael, the, the Floyd, the last one, the Floyd, the one that started the Black Lives Matter, that was staged. And Black Lives Matter has been found to be a CIA operation. So they stage these things themselves in a lot of cases. So don't forget that angle also, okay? So it said both an increase in the number of observed police killings and the number of police killings from year to year. Police violence didn't begin with the 1033 program. But there's no doubt it stoked the flames behind the killer cop epidemic. With the police suited up for war, is it any surprise that people are treated like enemy combatants? And no, it should be as no surprise. All this stuff has been rolling out for a number of years. And just to lighten things up a little bit, um, let's have a little Kennedy chat. Kennedy started with the grandfather, okay? Grandfather, Joseph P. He was involved in the movie business, bootlegging the stock market. Kennedys have a long, long history of crime in this country. And they perpetuate all of these fake crimes. So let's tune in on this one first, because um, RFK Jr. is now running for president of this country, and people are actually so happy to see him run for president. How did we get here? Because I have two clips here. This one is talking about RFK Jr. is now coming out and saying that the CIA killed, <laughs> killed his relatives. <laughs> well, we know it's all staged, right? This is, this is the extent of their lives. And then the other clip that I will play right after that is RFK Jr. has not made it really clear where he's going to raise his money for running for president from. <laughs> See where this is going? So what he's saying is that he's raising money from the public, and the public are sending him lots of money. <laughs> so... If you think you're surrounded by otherwise really smart people who are going to help you out in days ahead, I would suggest you look within your own self. So let me play, let me play these clips because people are welcoming J RFK Jr. with open arms to be president of this country by saying that it is great to put another Kennedy in the White House. <laughs> so this is the liar's story, what he's going around to say. Democratic White House contender Robert Kennedy Jr. blaming the CIA.
assassinating his uncle, former President John F. Kennedy, back on November 
former President John F. Kennedy back on November 22, 35 years, I've never once felt politically inclined, but after hearing four, four long-form interviews with this man, I am nothing short of amazed. He has my full support, and his integrity shines through like a burning star. Okay, so, as a reward to taking working-class people's money, he's giving them a tour of their luxury resort. I, it just struck me as odd. <laughs> Maybe that's just me, so I will be quiet. It's just a four, I'll just play the clip all the way through because the whole idea to hear it in their own voices, and this is a great way for me to communicate things that I've talked about for years now, and I have shows that cover all these kinds of little details in, in detail, but this is great because both because of the radiation, it's, it's hard for me to articulate a lot, right? But actually... <laughs> Actually, if you keep putting those one foot in front of the other foot, this has actually worked out to be just fine because even on really bad days, I have to chant this. It's only a game. It's only a game. It's only a game. So, because actually this has worked out better because normally I would gather all the data and stuff and I would read it to you right as part of the podcast. But actually, this sums up things that I've been talking about for years, but in their voices, right? So let's hear this hear this from this Kennedy, another transgender line to the rest of us through generations.
we're friends. Start, start to notice the language and all this, right? And the sound, it, it's a horrible recording, but that's, for, for once, the recording isn't my fault. <laughs> so, anyhow, so I'll start it over again because notice how they start to phrase this up. Now we're friends, and people in the comment are calling him Bobby. <laughs> Bobby to the rescue, right? Bobby's just trying to gather a bunch of money with donations. But anyway, so here we go. Thank everybody for the incredible generosity this week. We raised in three days after my last video, we raised a million dollars a day. So we raised a million dollars in three days. Just an extraordinary show of support by all of you. And just tell you how grateful I am for your generosity and for your friendship. I'm here at my house on, um, on Cape Cod and Hyannisport. Behind me is my grandfather's house. This is the Kennedy compound. Um, my grandfather bought that house in 1928. He was in, living in Boston, but he and he was a scratch golfer. They couldn't play golf. They would let cabinets on uh, the golf courses in Cohasset and other towns. And he came down here because there's a golf course here that was built by an Irish man named um, Chris Bryant. And so they, of course, let cabinets on. My father was the first of his children, was the seventh of his children, was the first one to get married. So all the nine children were raised in that house. My father was the first one to get his own house. And, that's and, uh, and my uncle has sound issues could clearly be avoided, right? There are ways to talk outside without this wind. And to those of you who have bothered to rip down to the comments about my lousy audio, well, it's not always a rosy picture now, is it? Here's one of their people who is grabbing a million bucks a day from innocent people with the worst audio on earth that he could have, in fact, fixed. Bragging... Also, I don't even want to get off on a rail here because I've got to keep moving today. But let's let, let's not also forget that banks are foreclosing foreclosing at an insane rate. People in the United States are sleeping under every bridge possible. Poverty rates are escalating. They cut off food stamps in the last week. People who were getting who were barely getting by were getting anywhere from 100 to 300 dollars a month in food stamps in this country plus help with utilities okay all of that bye bye hasta la vista going away okay eviction rates are going off of the charts okay and this entitled kennedy is showing his gratitude by giving his supporters a tour of his family's compound, a luxurious compound where they all have homes overlooking the ocean, their own golf courses, everything. The, it's called the Kennedy Compound, okay? Just let your head sink into that. You know, President Kennedy, 
with my uncle Teddy, who was in the <coughs> Senate, Senate beginning in 1962. My uncle Steve Smith, who was the chief of staff at the White House. My uncle Sarge Schreiber, who was at the head of the Peace Corps. And my father, who was attorney general. They'd all get out of those three helicopters. And, um, and then we would spend the weekends here. On the election eve in 1960, election headquarters was in my father's house. Louis Harris, the pollster, was there. He was set up on the second floor of my bedroom. And my uncle Jack, uh, around one or two of them, they was losing the election. And the California returns hadn't come in like that. And he went home and walked back in the yard and walked into his house. Okay, I have to interject something. <laughs> I can't resist. In looking at this from a public relations and a marketing standpoint, okay, you're the let's say you're on the public relations team, okay, and your candidate is going to go out and give a thank you to all the minions of people, you know, the working class, you know, us people, right? Don't you think you got a candidate who already has a massive, massive problem with speech, okay? Don't you think somebody would have said, well, hey, maybe maybe the audio is a little bad on this one? <laughs> or is it to further confuse issues and maybe align us further with a guy who's struggling out there in the wind with his speech problems, thanking the American public because he's a true truth teller, so no matter what, he goes out in the wind on a cliff to talk about his poor family? his first press conference as President Black on that tree, and the Secret Service that afternoon brought in a trailer. This was the baseball field where we played baseball every day, 29 cousins in there, and, uh, and all the other kids in this town. And so for the next three years, we were living in this magical situation, and we were in this White House with a magical situation. Yes, it is magical. And don't forget that Jackie, Jack, you know, Jackie, married to Jack Kennedy, Jackie, she was the one that created Camelot when Jack supposedly got shot and she showed up at that nice touch with her pink dress with all the uh, pink Chanel suit with the fake blood all over it. Jackie, um, what was I going to say about Jackie? Um, well, I'll think about it. Um, oh, Jackie was the one when Jack got fake shot to death in Dallas. Jackie was the one who went to the press and created the entire concept of Camelot. That is the extent of liars these Kennedys are, okay? So this is this is almost to the end, so I will go ahead and play out the end. Really big, loving family. Really just, um, with eight great kids. And, uh, you know, I had a magical child. Very good, very good work. 
so that's kind of a little part of my history and the history that's uh, brought me to this point in part today. And uh, I'm really happy for the chance to share it with you. I want to thank you all again for your support for this campaign. Yeah, well, thank you, everybody. He says thanks. Now they're panning over all of their um, <laughs> many estates, massive, huge mansions <laughs> on this seafront place. Um, I have also been talking for a long time about um, they want to egg us on to be whistleblowers, right? Well, because why would they bother with much? Because they want us to go around talking and turning other people into their attention. So I think and I've been saying this for a long time, that they have sold us this concept of whistleblowers. And here's how they use it. They use it to, like, for example, in the case of Rocky Flats, they had that whistleblower there, right? I believe that when it, when it gets too hot in the kitchen, what they do is they cook up one of these fake whistleblowers to A, C, which ones amongst the rest of us might have information and also that is one way to for them to cover up the thing and move on right they say the whistleblower at rocky flats turned in the thing right that brought in the fbi and blah 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 you'll notice the patterns in these things right so we have some famous whistleblowers we have edward snowden talked about him extensively in the past they used him to give us the illusion that they're on top of things, that all this NASA business is real and that they know exactly everything, right? Fear by control is the, is the agenda. Why do a lot if you can get everybody so afraid that what you are going to do, right? And they're doing it through graphics and stuff. So we had Edward Snowden. The other most famous one is Julian Assange. Well, Julian Assange says that he leaked all these papers, right? Well, it's part of the back and forth game of releasing some information, and some of it is to make themselves look innocent or to get themselves out of a situation. So, for example, Daniel Ellsberg leaked all that information that made people want to stop the war in Vietnam. Well, the war in Vietnam was already off the rails, right? So he came in to push it off the rails in a way that they wanted to manipulate it off the rails, is how I see this thing. So Daniel Ellsberg recently died. So now they've used Daniel Ellsberg. He's been going on all these press shows, and he's been on Democracy Now! Democracy Now!, by the way, is with a woman called Amy Goodman. Amy Goodman used to play Janis Joplin. <laughs> Amy Goodman played Janis Joplin. She was supposedly a famous rock star. Yeah, these people are all playing different roles. So anyway, so, um, yeah, so Amy Goodman is like the mouthpiece for this stuff, right? So she's been going around saying, oh, Daniel Ellsberg has died, and here's, here's his dying wishes, and so let's take a look at how he manipulates the conversation into encouraging people to become whistleblowers like he was a whistleblower but we now understand that he was not a whistleblower he's one of their people so his dying wish is to free julian assange 
encourage whistleblowers and reveal the truth. Here we go. Oh, wait a second. Why, oh why? I spoke to Daniel Ellsberg a day after the Justice Department charged WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange with 17 counts of violating the Espionage Act for publishing U.S. military and diplomatic documents exposing U.S. war crimes. Assange, who's locked up in the Belmarsh prison in London, faces up to 175 years in prison if extradited to the U.S. and convicted here. Yesterday is a day that will be live in the history of journalism, of law in this country, and of civil liberties uh, in this country because it was a direct attack on the First Amendment, an unprecedented one. There hasn't actually been such a significant attack on the freedom of the press, the First Amendment, which is the bedrock of our republic, really, our form of government, since my case in 1971, 48 years ago. But this is, a, I was indicted as a source, and I warned Newsman then that that would not be the last indictment of a source if I were convicted. Well, I wasn't convicted. The charges were dropped on governmental misconduct, and it was another 10 years before anybody else faced that charge under the Espionage Act again, Samuel Loring Morrison. And it was uh, not until President Obama that nine cases were brought, as I'd been warning for so long. But my warning really was that it wasn't going to stop there. But almost inevitably, there would be a stronger attack directly on the foundations of journalism against editors, publishers, and journalists themselves. And we've now seen that as of yesterday. That's a new front in President uh, Trump's war on the free press, which he regards as the enemy of the people. And the Trump administration saying Julian Assange is not a publisher, is not a journalist, that's why he is not protected by the First Amendment. In the face of this new indictment, uh, which, let me correct something that's been uh, said just a little wrong uh, by everybody so far, he doesn't just face 170 years, that's for the 70, uh, 17 counts on the espionage act, each was 10. Plus, he's still facing the five-year conspiracy charge that he started out with a few weeks ago. Uh, I was sure that the administration did not want to keep Julian Assange in jail just for five years. So I've been expecting these espionage act charges. Uh, I really expected them later after he was extradited, because adding them now makes it a little more complicated for Britain to extradite him now, as I understand it. Uh, they're not supposed to extradite for political offenses or for political motives, and this is obviously for both political motives and political offenses. So from Julian Assange's point of view, it makes extradition a little more difficult. Why then did they bring it right now? Well, coming back to the, uh, to the case, by the way, that I faced, I faced only 11 felony uh, act charges, each worth 10 years in prison, plus a conspiracy charge worth five. So I was facing exactly 115 years in prison 
He was facing exactly 175. Now, that's not a difference that makes any difference. In both cases, it's a question of a life sentence. I think that the reason they brought these charges so soon, uh, because they had until June 12th, uh, was to lay out, the necessity to lay out for extradition all the charges they planned to bring. And I don't assume these are the last ones. They've got a couple of weeks left to string up some new charges. They started out with a charge that made Julian look something other than a normal journalist. Uh, the help, the hacking, the password, sounded like something that even in the digital age, perhaps most journalists wouldn't do, and that would uh, hope to separate him from the support of other journalists. But in this case, when they had to lay out their larger charge, this is straight journalism. Uh, they mentioned, for instance, that he solicited in, uh, in, uh, investigative material, he solicited classified information. Terribly, he didn't just passively receive it over the transom. I can't count the number of times I've been solicited for classified information, starting with the Pentagon Papers, but long after that, and that's by every member of the responsible press that I dealt with, the Times, the Post, AP, uh, you name it. That's journalism. So what they have done is recognizable, I think, this time to all journalists uh, that they are in the crosshairs of this one. They may not have known enough about digital components uh, to help a source conceal her identity by using new passwords, as uh, Julian was talking. They may not be able to do that, but every one of them has eagerly received classified information and solicited it. We end our show with Daniel Osberg in his own words, May 18, 2018, when I spoke to him at a right livelihood laureate gathering at University of California, Santa Cruz. I asked him what message he had for government insiders who are considering becoming whistleblowers. My message to them is, don't do what I did. Don't wait till the bombs are actually falling, or thousands more have died. Before you do what I wish had done years earlier in 64 or even 61 on the nuclear issue, and that is reveal the truth that you know, the dangerous truths uh, that are being withheld by the government at whatever cost to yourself, whatever risk that may take. Consider doing that because a war's worth of lives may be at stake. Or in the case of the two existential crises I'm talking about, the future of humanity is at stake. Some of graduating classes, I think, have been taught, uh, have been told uh, year after year for half a century that they face a crossroads or that uh, much depends on what they do. That's no exaggeration right now. It's this generation, not the next one, that, that the people living right now that have to change these problems fast. And I think truth-telling is crucial to mobilize that. Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg died Friday at the age of 92, just months after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Our deepest condolences. <coughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm. Um, <laughs> maybe I'm suspicious, but <coughs> his little confession certainly struck me as uh, self-serving. <laughs> hey, just because I watched a lot of people get murdered by bombs, why don't you rush to your local authorities and tell everything you know? I don't know. Something about that just strikes me as odd because truly these people are monsters, right? Trying to set the rest of us up. Let's do a little monster mash.
did the monster man. It was a graveyard smell. It got on and fly. He did the monster man. From my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom where the vampires feast. The ghouls all came from their humble abode to get a jolt from my electrode. They did the monster man. And where would they all be without the bankers? The cops, the cops, the authorities, the bankers. This Tracy Ullman clip says it all. A sociopath goes for a job interview. Thank you. We've seen a lot of candidates over the last few months, and this is amongst the most impressive. Thanks. Project management is really my specialist area. I think you can see from my CV that I really do have a lot of experience with team leadership. There was just one thing on it, and I know that Peter and Fiona are curious about it as well. As we were preparing for the interview, we googled your name, and it comes up quite a few times, actually, that you've been convicted of crimes against humanity. What's that about? Well, I decided to leave that off the CV because I think that it's always best to be honest with people. Honest? Well, in the sense that it's something that happened in the past, and it isn't really relevant anymore, So, what are the details? Of the, uh, what, the crimes against humanity? Yes. Well, I was convicted about two years ago in The Hague of crimes against humanity in my absence, and, well, that's about it, really. Was this a genocide or something? It was a genocide, yes. So, how many people would have died? Well, the UN reckons about 15,000, but I think it was more like uh, 20, 30, 30. And what was your role? Largely organizational. I was responsible for the transport and general administrative stuff. A lot of burials obviously had to be undertaken, and if you look at it purely in those terms, I was very successful. Did you try and stop the genocide at one stage? I did try to stop it at one stage, but ultimately it was just easier to go. Yes, I'm just, uh, I'm just looking up crimes against humanity here, and it defines it as kidnappings, unjust imprisonment, slavery, and cannibalism. Guilty as charged. <laughs> and the sentence of the crimes against humanity was in your absence? Yes. Uh, I wasn't in court, and again, to be completely honest, it was uh, 25 years. And you're on the run now? Welcome to the bank. Yeah, it takes all of them, right? The cops, or this, or that. All one big, huge group. And you know, we were just the population of people, right? Each town was populated with a cop, a banker, and a preacher, right? And a doctor. Eventually they got a doctor in town. So that gives a few of them 
really literally against the rest of us is how I kind of see it, but hey, what do I know, right? Cities across the nation. Here in Indiana, a protester lost an eye from a tear gas container hitting him in the face. In North Carolina, protesters were trapped by a cloud of tear gas on both ends of a street. In Kentucky, an officer attacked a newscaster and camera crew with pepper bullets. And here in Detroit, police backed by armored vehicles marched down the streets. To date, the U.S. has spent over $15 billion on the militarization of police. All of these weapons, vehicles, and equipment are acquired by the police through a military program called 1033. It's like eBay for cops with leftover war equipment, except everything is free and you only pay for shipping and handling. Up until 2017, police couldn't be in the program unless they used equipment within a year of receiving it. So how did local police acquire all of these military weapons? And why do they even need them? To answer this question, we're going to examine four moments in history. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. In the wake of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, President Lyndon B. Johnson and Congress signed the Safe Streets Act into law in June of 1968. Through that act, in an effort to crack down on organized crime and gun violence, the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration was created. LEAA guaranteed the distribution of federal money to fight organized crime. This funded what we know as SWAT, and it ensured SWAT received searchlights, emergency radios, bullhorns, nightsticks, body armor, face shields, and special weapons, like M79 grenade launchers. Prior to 1968, SWAT teams were used sparingly, only in volatile, high-risk situations, like bank robberies or hostage situations. SWAT's first test as a militarized front came when the LAPD used a tank on loan from the California National Guard on the Southern California Black Panther Party. The intermittent warfare between the Black Panthers and police erupted today in Los Angeles. There, a group of them barricaded themselves in their headquarters and fought police with automatic weapons and hand grenades. The U.S. Department of State granted the LAPD authorization to use tear gas and sniper rifles. With national coverage, SWAT grew in popularity across the U.S. and with other local law enforcement, creating a demand for military equipment. LEAA's budget was a total of $7.5 billion, with a good portion going towards the militarization of U.S. local law enforcement agencies. After nearly a decade of extremely high budgets and spending, LEAA began to receive criticism because it had not shown success in decreasing crime rates. On April 15, 1982, LEAA was abolished when Congress failed to fund it. But by that time, SWAT teams and their militaristic approach had already become the norm. In 1986, Ronald Reagan's Anti-Drug Abuse Act expanded the use of no-knock or quick-knock warrants and assistance of the Air Force, Navy, and Marines in drug-related searches and seizures. It allowed for members of SWAT to arrive at suspected locations of criminal activities and enter without knocking or announcing themselves, pointing guns at anyone inside. They often used diversionary tactics, like flash grenades, rendering their victims deaf and blind. In some cases, individuals believe they're experiencing a home invasion, to which they grab a gun, like Jose Huereña, 
a former U.S. Marine who was suspected of selling marijuana. What you're about to see and hear might upset you. He pulled a gun because he believed his home was being invaded, and the police shot him 60 times in seven seconds. No drugs were found. In the early 1980s, there was on average about 3,000 reported SWAT incidents per year. By the mid-1990s, that number grew to about 45,000 SWAT incidents per year. 75.9% were drug raids. Of those raids, SWAT officers fired 342 times. They injured 61 and killed 139 citizens. In 1989, George H.W. Bush signed the National Defense Authorization Act. This act allowed for surplus DOD equipment from the Cold War to be transferred to U.S. law enforcement. Sections 1207 and 1208 allowed for the following. The procurement of services and leasing of equipment, and the transfer to federal and state agencies' personal property, including small arms and ammunition. And from those two sections, eight years later, the 1033 program was born. Under Bill Clinton's administration, the use of military surplus trade continued with the introduction of the Law Enforcement Support Office, LESO, which enacted U.S. Code Title 10, Section 2576A, also known as the 1033 program. Much like National Defense Authorization Act 1208, the 1033 program expanded into other areas, including counterterrorism. This line states that surplus military equipment can be used for counter-drugs and counter-terrorism efforts. This line states that surplus military equipment is free of charge, minus shipping and handling. Over $7.4 billion worth of property has been transferred since the program's inception. More than 8,000 law enforcement agencies have enrolled. Items shipped include boots, radios, shields, M16 assault rifles, tanks, and silencers. For every one qualified officer, one M1911 pistol, M16 rifle, or M14 rifle is allocated. For every three officers, a department can get a Humvee. And every law enforcement agency has the ability, if they apply, to receive one MRAP. And then, three days after 9-11, George W. Bush signed the Patriot Act. It created a gray zone where law enforcement agencies were able to perform more searches and seizures with access to delayed warrants, wiretaps, email, and web search surveillance, all in the name of fighting terrorism. But in reality, the liberties given to police were often used in drug-related cases. Only 1% of sneak-and-peek searches in 2010 were terrorism-related. 76% were drug-related. And the United States' international actions also impacted law enforcement at home. As a result of an increase and then decrease of U.S. operations in Iraq and Afghanistan over the years, there's been more military surplus equipment available to law enforcement, creating a spike in tactical items distributed by the 1033 program. The Department of Defense does not provide training for law enforcement agencies that receive military weapons. Instead, it's left to recipients to certify their own training each year. Because there is no federal mandate that police agencies report on SWAT operations, there's no real way to tell or quantify the effect of SWAT-related incidents. In an effort to access the program's productivity and safety protocols, the Government Accountability Office created a fake federal agency. After acquiring more than 100 items worth over $1.2 million, 
The office recommended a process to implement fraud prevention in addition to a website that can track the equipment and the agencies it was sent to. Prior to the investigation, there was very little record keeping and tracking of weapons after transfer. There were several instances where the agencies did not report lost weapons or disposal of excess equipment. And San Mateo and Napa counties were not the only departments in the nation to have lost equipment. About 200, in fact, have military personnel or, or military equipment missing at this hour, and that includes actually some Humvees. 184 state and local police departments were suspended from the 1033 program. In 2014, sparked by the murder of Michael Brown, civil unrest rolled through the streets of Ferguson, Missouri. Americans watching from home were shocked to see what looked like an army descending on such a small town. On January 16, 2015, President Barack Obama issued Executive Order 13688. We've seen how militarized gear can sometimes give people a feeling like there's an occupying force as opposed to a force that's part of the community that's protecting them and serving them. The order prohibited a list of equipment from being transferred to law enforcement through the 1033 program. Tracked armored vehicles, weaponized aircraft, firearms of 50 caliber or higher, ammunition of 50 caliber or higher, grenade launchers, bayonets, camouflage uniforms. That executive order did not last long before being revoked in 2017 by President Donald Trump. These restrictions that had been opposed went too far. We will not put superficial concerns Today, in 2020, in the wake of George Floyd's killing, protesters are being met with militarized police, armed with 1033 program war surplus. No-knock warrants still result in the deaths of innocent citizens, like 26-year-old emergency medical technician Brianna Taylor. Tear gas is still legal for domestic use on protesters, but has been banned for use in war since 1993. And studies on rubber bullets, like the ones used here, show that 3% of those injured by rubber bullets died as a result of their injuries. 15.5% suffered permanent disabilities like eye loss, and nearly 50% of those who were struck on the head or neck were killed. In the U.S., law enforcement kills over 900 people a year. Compare that to Norway, where there have been only four police-related killings since 2002. Norway credits these numbers to its face-to-face, community-building approach and believes it has created more trust between citizens and their police department. And we've seen similar changes stateside. In 2001, a Cincinnati police officer shot and killed 19-year-old Timothy Thomas after he resisted arrest over minor crimes. After riots and protests, in fear of more unrest, the city began to reform its police department in collaboration with the Department of Justice. They standardized procedures, making civilian officer interactions more transparent. They also created a training program focused on mental health. The reforms were met with pushback from city officials and a hostile police union. But the result was a 50% decrease in use of force from 2001 to 2007. Data shows that building trust within the community may be a better solution to saving. Well, I'm not sure what to tell you except that this appears to me to be the plan and clearly not a bug in the system. And of course, since we're talking about things around this thing, a 
around the same time that Obama was talking about, oh, let's not give the cops so much equipment. Well, he was signing the U.S. up to be part of the Kigali Principles. I've done a lot of shows about the Kigali Principles. So just for a little recap today, this video has been kind of loud music. And the only way I can really maneuver these things these days is to turn the music way down and just... They, they show graphics along with the music, so let me... It says, why are one million UN troops in California? Civil war? Question mark. Kigali principles on the protection of civilians encourage peacekeepers to be prepared to use force to protect civilians. But they expressly note that such action includes not only direct military action but also a show of force as a deterrent and interpositioning between armed actors and civilians, September 24, 2019. U.S united nation use of force to protect civilians in con conflict associated press 12 may 2016 <clears throat> the united states on wednesday Pledge to support a set of principles that give a green light for United Nations peacekeeping troops and police to use force to protect civilians in armed conflicts. Ambassador Samantha Power made the announcement at a high-level UN meeting focusing on the responsibility to protect civilians facing violence, says the saying the United States was proud and humbled to be joining 28 other countries that have signed up signed on to the Kigali Principles. And it says, How much does the U.S. spend on the U.N. peacekeeping budget each year? It's like $2.1 billion. The U.S., I'm going to skip ahead here because the U.S. and uh, China are the two biggest funders of the uh, Kigali. Let me skip ahead here a little bit. 
peacekeepers from the 29 countries in missions that have a UN Security Council mandate to protect civilians are now authorized to take direct military action against armed actors with clear hostile intent to harm civilians. What they're saying is <clears throat> their harm, right? And their commanders can authorize force in urgent situations without consultation. The Kigali principles are designed to make sure that citizens are not abandoned by the international community again, says Ms. Powers, recalling how UN peacekeepers left Rwanda before the 1995 genocide and this other geno genocide in 1995 massacre. What they're saying is that <clears throat> they came up with the Kigali principle, Kigali, K-I-G-A-L-I principles. There was a horrific deal in Rwanda I've talked about in the past. That was, I believe it was set up, but anyway, so set up. Lots of people were horrifically, I mean, I'm talking off the top murdered, right? And then they said, oh, and the UN didn't help them. So they said, oh, we're going to come up with this Kigali principle, so this will never happen again. So if there's ever any armed conflict, the UN peacekeepers can rush in to help. See where this is going? Okay, let me continue on here. So it's only to help people, right? Why do I always say evil has to come packaged as help? Okay. Ms. Powers said the 29 countries that have endorsed the Kigali principles account for more than 40,000 UN troops and police, well over wow. one-third of UN peacekeepers. There's a list that I've done in the past about countries just look up if your country involved in the Kigali principles. <coughs> um, I think that's all we need to talk about with the UN. I've talked about the UN for years and years. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're all in it together. I think we get the picture here. Okay, so. Before this clip plays about the um, crime, the bank robbery here in Norfolk, Nebraska, just to give you an idea of how these things happen all over, okay? This is an article that I found that it's only a few pages and it explains it all because it was allegedly a bank robbery by a few Mexican Hispanic males in a white community at a bank, right, get it? And um, let me just read this. No one shut off the sign. It blinked time and temperature and kept advertising the best loan rates in Norfolk. Strange digital normalcy in an otherwise horrific Thursday. When that sign read approximately 8.45 a.m., three armored men entered the U.S. Bank branch at 13th Street and Passawalk Avenue. The ensuing gunfire left five dead and one wounded, the nation's deadliest bank robbery in at least a decade. A statewide manhunt ended with the arrest of three men in O'Neill, Nebraska. Enter our main character here, okay. Matt, they, they call the 
um, head attorney here in Nebraska, the county attorney, okay? In a lot of other places, they call them like the prosecutor, okay? But here, here, the county attorney's name is Joe Smith, but he's called the county, but no one gets any charges. Every charge that gets against anybody passes through Joe Smith's office, okay? And you'll know why I'm stressing this later when I read some of the allegations as far as what Joe Smith is really all about. Anyway, so, a statewide manhunt ended with the arrest of three men in O'Neill, Nebraska. Madison County Attorney Joe Smith charged the trio, Jose Sandoval, 23, of Norfolk, Jorge Galindo, 23, of Madison, and Eric Fernando Vela, 21, also of Madison, with five counts of first-degree murder apiece. And keep in mind, five is their Saturn number, so that will play out through this whole whole little... This thing is a whole psyops. None of, none of this stuff really ever happened. This was, this was staged, okay? And I explain more in the next clip, so I don't want to get started now. Okay. Excuse <coughs> me. Yellow police tape, FBI agents, and television trucks still surrounded the bank and a nearby Burger King as darkness fell. Some in the city's Hispanic community braced for a possible backlash, while many of the citizens, 23,500 residents, expressed utter shock at the bloodiest bank robbery in Nebraska's history. And the sign kept blinking, oblivious. People can't believe this, says U.S. Bank employee Nancy Bancroft. They're shocked and angry, too. I just can't believe that this happened. Police were first notified of the robbery at 8.47 a.m. when a CarQuest employee at the bank's drive-up teller window heard gunfire crossing Passwalk Avenue and called 911 from her store, said another CarQuest employer who wished to remain anonymous. By the time the Norfolk Police Department responded, the carnage was complete. According to Norfolk Police Chief Bill Metzger, M-I-Z-N-E-R, the bodies of U.S. Bank employees Lisa Bryant, 29, Lola Elwood, 43, Joe Moshbosh, 42, and 50-year-old Samuel Sun, Samuel Sun, were discovered at the scene, as was the body of a customer and a 37-year-old Stanton resident, Yvonne Tuttle. I think that, I don't know if they say this, I forget, but I think a few of these alleged employees that supposedly got murdered, I believe that somehow they weren't really from this branch, but they just happened to have been filling in there. But I, I don't remember. This this case was years ago. So. <clears throat> Two employees were unarmed in the attack, while one customer was treated and released from Faith Regional Hospital with a shoulder wound. Police did not say how much money, if any, was stolen. The alleged murders had already escaped, possibly by firing shotgun blasts through the front entrance after the glass doors had been automatically blocked by an internal alarm. 
The trio then sprinted east down an alley, Mr. says. That's the head of the police saying all this stuff, right? Still armed, the group forcibly entered a house and demanded the resident's car, a white 2003 Suburban Outback. Suburban, right? The getaway car was found in a pond near Tilden, about 11 miles west of Norfolk on Highway 275. The trio had continued northwest into O'Neill in a stolen green Ford pickup where they were, were arrested at about 11.30 a.m. after being spotted at a gas station, according to the Nebraska State Patrol. The arrest and a subsequent investigation ended a statewide manhunt for the suspects. Described in an all-points bulletin as Hispanic males wearing dark clothing and baggy jeans. The state patrol removed roadblocks across Nebraska at 4.45 p.m. And the National Guard's Black Hawk helicopter, which had searched for the suspects from the air, was called to the ground. I mean, this was like a huge deal, okay? <laughs> Biggest bank robbery in Nebraska. <laughs> By mid-morning, most banks had locked their doors, allowing only drive-up service. Some stores near the crime scene closed for the day. And Norfolk's playgrounds sat unused. The superintendent of schools had canceled recess. Mike Renkin, president of the Bank of Norfolk, closed his branch back on Thursday. The main branch the main bank stayed open only after a lengthy internal debate. There were some scared people here today, Rankin said from his office. We let anyone who wanted to go home. It's a, <clears throat> it's a lot tougher on everyone when you know the people who died. In a word, shock. So yeah, nice of him, right? Anybody who wanted to go home from this fake crime, they let them go home, right? But the rest of them, why would they want to close down the banking business, right? <laughs> the goal of the conversation, let me see here. Oh, I, I missed this period. <clears throat> We're all shocked. As that shock wears off, Alfredo Ramirez hopes it isn't replaced by anger directed at the city's Hispanic community. Ramirez, director of a counseling service and a Norfolk Public Schools board member, spoke with Governor Mike Johans just after the governor arrived from Lincoln. The goal of the conversation, Ramirez said, was to let the governor know let the governor know many in the Hispanic community were concerned the city's white population would blame them for all the killings. Well, I don't know. You'll have to listen to more of this story, but it appears to me, I don't know, very white town. <laughs> Round up a few Mexicans at a bank. <laughs> well, okay. The mindset that they didn't want us here to begin with, and now this will only make it worse. Because there was another thing that <clears throat> there had been a packing house close to town. I think it might have been in town around this time. And that packing house, which employed a lot of Mexicans, had moved out of town before all this is going. So I only know what I heard from people in the first few years that I was here. And it appeared to me 
that that packing house had caused some racial tensions in the area. Because the area is like 95% white, and I think uh, just a couple percent Hispanic and maybe a couple odd black people running around town, but beyond that, it's a white town, okay. <coughs> so was this racially motivated? Well, I don't know. It, they, they penned it on some Mexicans in a white town for a fake crime at a bank, so you do the math. <laughs> okay, so this, this person, Ramirez, was talking and he was worried. He said the goal of the conversation was to let the governor know, because see, the governor is in Lincoln, which is about an hour from Norfolk, okay? So already, Governor Mike Jonas was already here in town from his governor's office in Lincoln, okay? So, he said the city needs to differentiate from, from the three suspects and the rest of the city's Hispanic community, which numbered 1,790 in the 2000 census. There will be some people on both sides with that same mindset, though, Ramirez says. The mindset that they didn't want us here to begin with and now this will only make it worse. Time will tell whether racial tensions in Norfolk rise. And it will be at least another day before the Thursday morning events inside the U.S. Bank are patched together. Police have recovered surveillance tapes from the scene. Even after the details are uncovered, Norfolk Mayor Gordon Adams said he won't be able to understand the motivation. It was a senseless act of violence, Adams says. There couldn't have been a reason for killing five innocent people, not one that I can think of. Well, <coughs> yeah, <laughs> except that it's staged, right? Yeah, I shot up like a bolt. It was early 2020 when all this stuff became really clear to me because as of late 2019, I was going to stop sharing my work online. Then this all hit. Very early 2019, I just shot up like a bolt. And I thought, you know that crime here in town that I helped? <laughs> I, I, I shot up clear as a bell, and I thought, that thing was fake. That was a psyops. Well, it was a psyops. Um, and I'm probably the only person in town outside of this little club that's orchestrated this thing <laughs> that knows it was a fake crime, right? Because they had it all. They had the FBI in here. They had the governor in here. It was all completely fake. And you'll learn more about it when you hear the um, show that's going to think. So I'll further set the stage and tell you a little bit about Norfolk. Okay. I've been talking about my theory of how the psychopaths effectively set up the eugenics in the United States. They set it up by getting their own people all in place and ready to go. You know, the preacher, the cops, all that. Okay, so let me give you just a tiny bit of settlement history, okay? Because I've also talked extensively about how before most settlers arrived, in these different locations that were being set up across this country, they had, in fact, set up mental, in mental institutions for the confinement of really anybody they deemed unworthy. And if you go look at the show I did about Montana, my mother's side of the family homesteaded in Montana. 
and my mom was born there in 1926. And we had a relative also born in Montana who was actually locked up in the mental institution that was built there in Montana. And what I found, and I've done shows about all of this, I'm just going to give you a quick overview. What I found was that these clever psychopaths had effectively, as people were being relocated across the country, right, what they did was they, they did it by land parcel grants and homesteading, right? So my grandfather would have gotten a homestead in Montana. Well, that all seemed well and good when you get the homestead, right, because it's free land. Well, the horror begins after that for those homesteaders because how do you start to grow your homestead without the use of more funds that bring in the bankers to these towns, right? Well, while all of this was going on, and I verify, I've, I've gotten all the work to prove it, okay, they had, in fact, already built these mental wards. And these mental hospitals served several purposes. They were jails, they were mental wards. <laughs> because I've been saying all along, I have found big gaps of time where I can visibly see a lot of people just happen to go missing, okay? <laughs> and why those people go missing? Well, I don't know. It, it appears to me like they didn't agree with what was going on and they got rid of them. <clears throat> but anyway, so here's the deal. So <clears throat> next, <coughs> next you'll be hearing my story about how, how this all works in a local town, okay? So let's first talk about, because I've been saying that they set these towns up with the preacher, the cop, the doctor, and us. So it's always, it's always the structure has always been them against us, right? Okay. In late 1865, three scouts were sent from a German Lutheran settlement near Wisconsin to find productive inexpensive farmland that could be claimed under the Homestead Act. From the Omaha area they followed the Elkhorn River upstream to the West Point. Finding that area too crowded they continued up the river. On September 15th they reached the junction of the Elkhorn and its North Fork and chose that area as a settlement site. On May the 23rd, 1866, a party of 124 settlers representing 42 families from the area from, from, from Wisconsin set out for the northeast Nebraska on three wagon trains. They arrived at the new site on July the 15th. A second group of settlers from Wisconsin arrived in July 1867. And this also <coughs> gives us dates, right? <coughs> now, I'm guessing there, there could be some year manipulation, but it also gives them moving across this country at that time, right? 1867. These collective wagon parties established the first church in Madison County. St. Paul's Lutheran, which is still operating today. The original name of the colony was a variant of North Fork, but accounts differ on the exact name. North Fork, Nor Fork, and Nord Fork are all suggested. The name was submitted to federal postal authorities. 
and at some point was transmuted to Norfolk. Nebraskans typically pronounce it Norfolk. The North Fort settlement was named the county seat in 1867. In 1865, oh, excuse me, 1875, a series of elections changed this. In the first of these, Norfolk, which at the time had 45 voters, was eliminated. In a subsequent election, Madison was chosen over Battle Creek. And then one more recap here. The development of these railway would happen as they were settling these places, then they started deciding where to bring in railroads, right? So they didn't bring in the railroads with all the children. They, they, they packed up those railroads full of children to populate at that point, okay? That's when they started doing the orphan children on trains. The development of these railway connections led to significant growth in the city. In 1886, Norfolk's population reached 1,000 making it a city of the second class. A street railway system and a public water supply was established in 1887. In 1888, a franchise was granted to the Norfolk Electric Company. Got, got those lights, right? <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, all those lights. And the Nebraska Telephone Company was given a right of way for general telegraph and telephone business. And here's where you want to pay attention, okay? The Nebraska led, now remember they just, in 1886, 1886, the population reached 1,000, okay? The Nebraska legislature created the insane asylum in Norfolk in 1885. So 1885, they created the Insane Asylum in Norfolk. It accepted its first patients in 1888. Isn't it interesting how all that time happens, right? They, they come up with a city, and right at the same time, they're busy coming up with a insane asylum, right? So <coughs> they came up with the Insane Asylum in Norfolk, 1885. It accepted its first patients in 1888. In 1920, the institution's name was changed to the Norfolk State Hospital. In 1962, it became Norfolk Regional Center. As of 2010, it was a 120-bed institution providing the initial phase of treatment to sex offenders. And I know a fair bit about that clinic, but not my point for today. You know, just because I know something, I, I've obviously spent time when I was mingling around people to see what other things I would be gathering, right? And at the time, of course, I didn't know that that crime was fake, so, um, so, Norfolk in Madison County, Nebraska, United States, 113 miles northwest of Omaha and 83 miles west of Sioux City at the intersection of U.S. Routes 81 and 275. So this is what it is all about. Alfie, right? 
this is how the whole deal works in a nutshell. And here's the thing, this is why they always want to tell these highly complicated stories, right? Giving themselves so much credit for things, right? Like they're developing transhumans and the little lies with Edward Snowden and NASA, how they're building this, they're building that, and they've been to the moon and they got they, 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 all this stuff about Saturn and all of their specialists, their historians buzzing all over the place, covering the lies, creating more lies. Yeah, they got quite a scam going. And remember, the best way to scam and control a bunch of people is not initially with violence, because initially you want to get the population under control. And in the United States, they have done a fabulous job getting the population under control. And for a couple of reasons. One is that I don't believe most people, and I didn't really know about it myself until all these years of research. Most of us do not understand that A, this is a game board, right? And B, that this is likely the final chapter in the game board. So they've created all these illusionary things, all these things to distract us, make us chase after money make us turn on each other. This whistleblower thing is all about accelerating turning on each other, right? The idea that we can seek them to tell our secrets to, right? <laughs> Sounds like a bad plan to me, but hey, you do you. <coughs> you do you. <coughs> but I, <coughs> excuse me, I would have to say that whistleblowing <laughs> might not be in your best interest, but hey, learn to form your own groups. And so, yeah, so it's been so manipulated and the manipulation is so great that, well, I'm not sure that most are able to see through the clouds that they've set up, but once you peek your head up above the clouds, you can start to see that this is clearly one huge trick. They got in charge, they gave themselves a bunch of metals, they got themselves a bunch of weapons, they created dynamite, they got electricity, and really, what, what more can I say? Here we are right now. Here we are right now. I could go on and on about <clears throat> the tricks, but hear it from their own mouth. <coughs> Listen to these two ugly women. I never thought women could be so vicious, but here we got Joe Rogan, a little woman pumped up on testosterone, um, and RFK Jr. talking about, uh, they're always trying to tell us that, well, the next one's going to clean all this stuff up, right? And then they want to tell us that, well, my guy, uh, he was really against all this stuff. So he, he was one of, <coughs> it, <coughs> it is simple as this. It is a position of good guy versus bad guy. And for all of this time, the United States, with its war machine out of Washington, D.C., financed by the city of London and corroborated by the Vatican with the scientists and all those people, is nothing more than the bad guy who claims that everybody else is the bad guy. See how it all works? You go around, you convince everybody else that everybody out there is bad, and you're going to be the hero to fix it all. So then you throw in tons of confusion, control everybody's time. So he, he was surrounded by military industrial complex, and, um, and he learned very early in, in an intelligence apparatus that he realized early on that the purpose of the CIA and the intelligence apparatus was to create a constant pipeline of new wars for the, for the military industrial complex. The day, uh, three days before he took the oath of office, 
Eisenhower, who was the outgoing president, gave what is probably the most important speech in American history, which was, you know, where he warned against the military-industrial conflict. I was at my uncle's inauguration. I was in Washington that day. As a, you know, a six-year-old boy. I was sitting on the stands behind him, in front of him during his inauguration. And he understood that. And two months later, the military and intelligence came to him and said, we got it. Uh, we got it invade Cuba. And he was like, I'm not going to Cuba, and I'm not going to let the military. And they said, well, we got all these Cubans trained, and they're going to go attack Castro. And he said, well, we're, we can't, the U.S. government can't be doing that. We can't be attacking. We, we, I don't like the Castro's living down there, but the, it's not the United States job to dictate what kind of governments other countries have. And they said, uh, well, as soon as they land, there's going to be a, a big revolution. Everybody's going to rise up and they're going to overthrow Castro. And he said, well, you can't use the U.S. military. And they ended up bringing those guys over with uh, United Fruit boats. And, and in the middle of it, the night, they came to him and said, they're getting wiped out on the beach, and you need to send in the military in a day. And he said, we're not going to do it. And he, he stepped out of that meeting. And he realized they had been lying to him and trying to trick him. And he said, I want to take the CIA and shatter it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. And, um, and then, you know, for the next thousand days of his presidency, he was at war with his military and, and, and intelligence apparatus. They tried to get him to go into Laos and said no. They tried to get him to go into Vietnam with the combat troops. They said that we need 250,000 combat troops. He refused. Everybody. They were already in Vietnam for years. They were in Vietnam the day World War II was wrapping up as special advisors. These Kennedys are really legendary liars. Around and wanted to go into Vietnam. He sent 16,000 military advisors. That's fewer people than he sent to get James Meredith into Ole Miss in Jackson, Mississippi, to get one black man into school. He said fewer to Vietnam. They were allowed to fight, and many of them did. They both violated the rules of engagement. In October of 1963, he heard that some of his Green Berets had been killed over there, and he said, I want a total casualty list in Vietnam. And his aide came to him and said, 75 Americans have died. And he said, that's too many. And he signed that day a national security order ordering all troops out of Vietnam, U.S. troops. The first thousand over the next month, and then the rest by the beginning of 1965. And, um, and then a, a month later he was killed. So, um, but what his view was is that he believed that the view of Americans abroad should not be, you know, a soldier with a gun. It should be a Peace Corps volunteer building, you know, wells, and it should be USAID helping poor people, and it should be Alliance for Progress building middle class. And that's what he did. And he started the Kennedy Milk Program to, to you know, give nutrition to poor kids all over the world. As a result of that, in Africa today, there are more statues to John Kennedy, more boulevards named after him, more hospitals, schools, universities, avenues, and all the major cities named after him than any other president. That's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? Go listen to my show about the Carters who were... The Carters... Jimmy Carter used to be played by JFK. 
he is down in Africa right now doing some, well, he's close to dead, but you, you get what I mean, doing some hideous, the fact that they have all the things named after JFK, see, it supports my theory. We have been paying and supporting our own eugenics against ourselves and other very vulnerable people all this time. They wouldn't have been able to do any of this stuff if they hadn't been grabbing all the taxpayer money off the workers' backs. And that is the, 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 the Chinese have taken that template and done the same thing now. And they are, you know, all these countries that were supposedly allied with us are now realigned with the Chinese and they're switching to their currency because the Chinese are not there to kill people. They're there, you know, to, to build roads, to build universities, to build colleges. And it turns out that people like that a lot more. And, you know, we should be projecting economic power around the globe and not military power. It will make us much stronger. But what do you think happens when you get into office? Like, if you're, you're, you're talking about your uncle who's assassinated and you believe the intelligence agencies were part of that. What happens to you? Well, I've got to be careful. And I'm aware of that, and I'm not, you know, I, I'm aware of the, of that danger, and, you know, I don't live in fear of it, um, you know, at all, but I'm not stupid about it, and I take precautions. Yeah, sure he does, because he knows that all those crimes were fake, right? Those Kennedys are really, they're, they're really something else, and their ability to sit there and just lie and continue to grab poor people's money. Always on this promise that, hey, next time around, all of this is going to be better. Um, his latest deal is that what he's going to do is, uh, when he becomes president, is, um, well, they might, you know, well, I'm not going to say it, but two of them already got bumped off being president. Who knows about the third, right? But anyways, this is all a staged game, so, well, <laughs> he's already saying that, well, I will uh, call in the people that run social media and have a talk with them. Okay, why don't you just go ahead and maybe send them a strongly worded letter? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> That's what they do. Nancy, uh, let me see, who was it? Hillary Clinton, after the 2008 deal when the bankers robbed everybody they could possibly rob in the world, she said something, and this was her direct quote, that she went down there to Wall Street and she told those bankers to knock it off. Those were her exact words. What's really going on, and I'll be getting back to what we're doing here, is that Bernie Sanders set up a great way to rob poor working class people in his $27 donations. He got a lot of people to send him those $27. <laughs> he lied to everybody, okay? RFK Jr., because they're all one-trick ponies, is now modeling the exact same plan. Expensive exchange. Uh, with Bernie Sanders on the whole issue of Wall Street, the funding she's received over the years from big Wall Street, uh, Wall Street bankers, among others. Listen to this exchange she had with the senator. This campaign contribution will not influence me. I'm going to be independent. But why do they make millions of dollars of campaign contributions? They expect to get something. Everybody knows that. Once again, I am running a campaign differently than any other candidate. We are relying on small campaign donors, 
750,000 of them, 30 bucks a piece. Got That's it. who I'm indebted. Well, John, 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 wait a minute. Pers wait a minute. Personal Look, privilege. He has basically, he has basically to impugn my integrity. Let's be no, frank here. Oh, wait a minute, Senator. You know, not only do I have hundreds of thousands of donors, most of them small, and I'm very proud that for the first time, a majority of my donors are women, 60%. <laughs> represented New York and I represented New York on 9-11 when we were attacked where were we attacked we were attacked in downtown Manhattan where Wall Street is I did spend a whole lot of time and effort helping them rebuild that was good for New York it was good for the economy and it was a way to rebuke the terrorists who had attacked our country <laughs> at every corner is always a matter of more taxpayers so anyway so I hope that um I'm going to be closing this off now. While we're on the subject of military, the U.S. military is now having issues recruiting because of people's obes obesity issues and all those things. Full disclosure, I was raised in a military family. My father was a U.S. military officer, so I don't have any particular axe to grind against the military, but I do have a lot of disgust against the U.S. military, and this will... Hopefully I'll get back to this in more detail, but since we've been on the subject of those Kennedys and the Vietnam War and how they have been recruiting people, there was this deal that happened and when they were having trouble recruiting for the war, what they did was they lied to a lot of people who were lower on the educational scale, lied to them, and told them that this would be a good opportunity for them to get job training. This speaks exactly to my subject today about who these people are. So Robert McNamara was the one who set this up. So let me just play the clip. On October 1, 1966, McNamara launched a program called Project 100,000, which lowered mental standards. Men who had been unqualified for military duty the day before were now deemed qualified. By the end of the war, McNamara's program had taken 354,000 substandard men into the Army, Marine Corps, Air Force, and Navy. Among the troops, these men were often known as McNamara's morons or the Moron Corps or McNamara's boys. Military leaders from William Westmoreland, the commanding general in Vietnam, to lieutenants and sergeants at the platoon level viewed McNamara's program as a disaster. Because many of the Project 100,000 men were slow learners, they had difficulty absorbing necessary training. Because many of them were incompetent and combat, they endangered not only themselves but their comrades as well. Project 100,000 inductees placed in the lower 10th to 30th percentiles of the test, referred to as Category IV. Normally, candidates who place in Category IV are deemed unsuitable for military service and are told to return to civilian life. Project 100,000, however, was an experiment to see whether military entry requirements could be lowered. Ostensibly, the project's goals were to combat poverty. 
Lyndon B. Johnson had recently begun his war on poverty program. Thanks to the GI Bill and other veterans programs, military service can be a great way to get out of poverty. But this was a nice bonus to the project's other purpose. The Vietnam War needed more men, and lowering recruitment standards was one way to get them. Although about half were volunteers, the other half was drafted, and neither group had any business being in a war zone. The Armed Forces Qualification Test evaluated a variety of domains, all of which were geared toward assessing somebody's eligibility for service. As a result, Project 100,000 brought men to the war who were ill-equipped in different ways. Some had physical impairments, some were over or underweight, and, most troublingly, many had low mental aptitude often to the point of being mentally handicapped. Many were illiterate. Since this was an experiment, a small cadre of soldiers were also admitted under the program to act as controls. These were normal soldiers. Today I'd like to give you an overview of what happened. For me, the story began one summer day in 1967 when I was sitting in the Armed Forces Induction Center in Nashville, Tennessee. At one point, um, a sergeant came out to talk to us and tell us that we were headed to Fort Benning, Georgia to begin our Army training. It was at the height of the Vietnam War and I had volunteered for service in the U.S. Army. The sergeant asked, is there anyone here who is a college graduate? I raised my hand and he motioned for me to follow him. And he led me down a hallway to where a young man was seated. And he informed me that the man was named Johnny Gupton, who was also being assigned to Fort Benning. And he told me, he said, I want you to take charge of Gupton. Go with him every step of the way. He explained that Gupton could neither read nor write. And he said, uh, he's going to need help filling out paperwork when you get to Fort Benning. And then he said, make sure he doesn't get lost. He's one of McNamara's morons. I had never heard the term. And I was surprised that the sergeant would openly insult this man seated in front of him. Well, in a few weeks, I would learn that McNamara's morons was a term that many officers and sergeants used to refer to low IQ men who were taken into the armed forces under a special program devised by Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense. The sergeant left us for a while, and when he returned, he had a big envelope that was sealed, and inside it were my personnel records and Gupton's personnel records. And I was instructed to take the envelope, and when I got off the bus at Fort Benning, to give it to the sergeants. Well, Gupton and I traveled by plane and, and by bus to Georgia, and along the way, I tried to make small talk with him. I asked him what state he was from. He didn't know. I found out later that he was from Tennessee. He lived in one of the isolated poverty pockets in the eastern part of the state in the Appalachian Mountains. He was very thin, emaciated, unhealthy looking. As we talked or tried to talk, I was 
surprised that he knew nothing about the situation he was in. He didn't understand what basic training was all about. He didn't even know that America was at war. I tried to explain what was happening, but at the end I could tell that he was still on a farm. In basic training, he was virtually helpless. We had to make his bunk for him every morning because he could not make up his bunk to Army specifications. I had to tie his boots every morning until one trainee had the patience and took the time to teach him that skill. He had trouble with commands like left face and right face because he didn't know his left from his right. He had trouble marching. When the sergeant screamed at him, he was terrified and confused. On the rifle range, he was erratic and dangerous with his handling his rifle. And the sergeants feared that he would accidentally shoot himself or someone else. Finally, he was put on permanent KP, that means kitchen police, that's working in the kitchen all day. Once in the military, Project 100,000 soldiers were treated as any other soldier. To do otherwise would void the experiment. Various human resource personnel wrote up anonymized monthly reports on the soldiers, documenting their progress in military life and in war. The results were not good. Project 100,000 soldiers were about three times more likely to be killed in action. This is not surprising, in addition to being physically and mentally ill-equipped for war, they were unlikely to qualify for technical training that would otherwise keep them off the front lines. As a result, many of them were used as infantry soldiers. They were also reassigned 11 times more often than their peers, and were between 7 and 9 times more likely to require remedial training. Project 100,000 recruits were more likely to be arrested, too. For the ones who survived the war, their outcomes were worse than comparable men who did not join military service. They earned $7,000 less per year than their civilian peers, equivalent to a little under $16,000 today. They were more likely to be divorced and less likely to own a business. The reasons for these differences aren't entirely clear. It could be the trauma of war, the lack of access to social programs available in civilian life that weren't available in military life, the possibility that they would have otherwise gone on to complete high school and college any number of explanations can be offered. But this does show that the ostensible purpose of Project 100,000 was completely invalidated. Offering ineligible soldiers a pass in order to give them a leg up out of poverty through the military did not work. argument going on now as far as whether the government who robbed all these students for student loans and stuff um, should be paying, help the students pay back these loans. Well, <laughs> what kind of kid should enter society with hundreds of thousands of loans? This is all a debt-driven society and is made even more obvious by the fact that the biggest person creating all the debt is in fact the U.S. government. Doesn't matter if it's the citizens or whatever. So during this debt um, argument that's been going on for the last oh I don't I don't remember a year or so, and um, Biden could have gotten people to get this because remember they approved for what, no matter what you think about this stuff whether those kids should get the money back or not for these student loans. No matter what you think about it, okay. Think about this. When the bankers, when Silicon Valley Bank named Silicon Valley Bank,
first went under when all this got going in the last several months, the FDIC moved in to bail out Silicon Valley Bank within a day or two, okay? They got all this money and bailout, <coughs> bailout money, taxpayer money. So you can argue whatever you want, but they were able to get their friends at Silicon Valley Bank a complete bailout within 48 hours. What's going on with the people in East Palestine, Ohio? Well, they're still sitting there, and what they do is they will now layer these deals so full of attorneys that is anybody going to see the light of day? I don't really know. All I can really do is try to report the balls and the strikes and tell you what I'm finding. So be safe out there, and goodbye for now. IQ and physical disabilities may be answered with a real in the movie Forrest Gump the question of how Gump can enlist into the army with a 75 IQ and physical disabilities may be answered with a real-life military plan set during the Vietnam War then Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara created a program called Project 100,000 the program lowered the requirements to enlist for certain men including those with mental or physical disabilities but the program failed horribly, as many recruits that took part were noted as being mentally deficient to the point that some couldn't even tell their left from their right. Many required a babysitter, another enlisted man to tend to them, tie their shoes, make their beds and clean their uniforms. Over 300,000 men were enlisted through the program, with around 5,400 killed and 20,000 wounded in action. The program was nicknamed McNamara's Folly, Misfits or Morons. In the movie Forrest Gump, the question of how Gump can enlist into the army. Well, that should give you an idea of who we're dealing with here. Well, hello there. Pull up a chair and welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. I have a story to tell you today. It gives you an excellent example of exactly how this whole psychopathic country called the United States of Psychopaths got started. I've been saying for a long time, and as a matter of fact, um, if you look back, I've talked about how this country was settled. Well, I mean, they, just in recap, they landed in this country, this part of the game board, clearly in a pretty murderous rage, right? Got rid of all the Indians, the idea of manifest destiny, charging across this country, settle things up, right? Get that land for those white people. Exactly how it went, right? Let's call a spade a spade, right? So, I talked about what they did in settling this country. It was a pretty simple process. What they did was they settled it and who settled each town, region, or area that grew to be bigger or whatever. The basis of it all, it was settled by a preacher, a sheriff, <laughs> the citizens, and as time went on, a local doctor. Okay, so where was the power structure? Well, the preacher, the sheriff, and the doctor, right? Exactly how each town in each area was set up. So we could all likely conclude at this point, after all these years of me sharing my work with you, that 
likely how it happened was exactly how I'm saying it happened, right? Because we now know who guided the structure of all this, right? It came out of the Vatican. They control that group of people, the creatures, the scientists, and those people, right? So what settled each place? Exactly like I said. So when you look around small town America or big town America, you will find the exact same structure. And what has become more evident to even those that are kind of slumbering along is that that group of people, the preacher, the sheriff, and remember the teachers are also their people too, right? These are all the people that, are, that want to transgender kids and all this stuff, right? They're a pretty tight little group. Well, they were the founders, the founders of these different groups in all these different towns, okay? So, what happens along the way? Well, they form bonds, okay? And, well, what happens, let's say, if one of them steps out of line and maybe becomes a drug addict or somebody? Well, they're kind of stuck with that person, aren't they? Because if, if they all conspired to pull off some crime, fake crime, and act like it was a real crime, and then one of them kind of goes off the rails, well, they're all kind of stuck together now, aren't they? Well, let me just cut to the chase here. I am in Norfolk, Nebraska. Now, for years, I obviously did not share my exact location because it didn't seem like a good move, right? Who would? Well, now the cat's out of the bag about me being murdered in my own home by radiation and stuff. Why not share it all, right? And today, I happen to be working on a very big show about um, something I really want to cover. And I had to replace my speaker because, long story short, my USB port is bad. So anyway, so while I'm waiting, I thought, well, why don't I just pull up this file and tell you this story today? And I will be able to use this very town of Norfolk, Nebraska, as my example. Because around, not around, but in 2002, there was a major crime that happened in Nebraska. This crime was so big, it was all over this part of the country. Huge, big crime, okay? Five people at a bank, bank robbery, all white town, suspects were Mexicans. Well, what happened? Well, supposedly five people got killed, right? Well, <laughs> um, at that time, I was living in Sedona still. I think I moved to this area around 2007 or somewhere around then. Anyhow, so moving here was unrelated because this happens to be a decent sized town and happens to be a few hours from where my rest of my family lives. So it was kind of one of those things, right? So while I'm in Sedona, I'm contacted by the people here in Norfolk, Nebraska, who have this big crime on their hands with this bank robbery and these people were shot and murdered. So, um, it sounded very interesting, right? And um, the crime had all kinds of twists and turns. And I, of course, believed it, because remember this was 2002, we're not now, right now in 2023. So, you know, this guy, they call, they call the head person here the county attorney, but normally in other areas they're called a prosecutor, right? So anyways, the county attorney for this county, it's Madison County, okay? 
the county attorney has authority over it all. So if any charges, like let's say the cops pick up 10 drunk drivers this weekend, okay? Nobody gets charged unless the county attorney agrees to the charges, okay? And this town is probably about 15,000 people. Norfolk is a bigger sized town outside of Omaha. So, but the county seat is, uh, I don't know, about a half hour away from here where these people all sit in the courthouse and stuff. So anyhow, so they have this big crime and um, they contact me because they said that the defense for the crime was that the killer supposedly was saying that he couldn't help himself because he was a psychopath. The one main character was a person named Jose Sandoval. And what happened was Jose was supposedly the gang leader and he got these other Mexican people in this white town to go to the bank one morning and set up this robbery. Well, several red, red flags now that when you know better, you look harder. <laughs> because their number is also the number five. That's why you see the five star flags all over the place, because that has to do with their deal with Saturn. Okay. So this whole thing now, so anyhow, so roll forward. So during this whole time, I'm communicating with them and they're sending me information and stuff. They sent me the closing arguments and stuff like that. It was interesting, right? So after I'm here, I had lunch with these people a few times. And um, it, it was usually lunch with this main attorney and um, the other people, the other attorneys from the office, the other prosecutors or county attorneys or whatever. And um, so, you know, we had lunch. I don't know, about once a month for quite a while. And then um, during lunch, you know, they would tell me things about this crime, you know, fill in some of the details, right? So I had every reason to believe that this crime really happened. Um, <laughs> As a matter of fact, one day after lunch, Joe, the, the main person we're going to be talking about today is named Joe Smith, okay? One day after lunch, it was always set up this way that I would drive out to their offices, which were at the courthouse, and um, Joe and I would ride to lunch, and the other attorneys would join us at lunch. And then, you know, I always thought it was interesting. And it, it, a lot of things later started to make sense, okay? Because I later discovered, just a couple of years ago, that I had been used as part of this process. <laughs> How I was used was this, was because he used me as somebody who researches psychopaths during this case, but the case was really fake, right? <laughs> so, yeah, because when we'd be out to lunch, everybody in this town knows Joe Smith, right? I mean, like everybody, he's, he's been the prosecutor here for years, and I'll get to that in a minute here. So when we would be out to lunch, he would make such a point to introduce me as a person who helped him on this big murder case, right? And I always thought he kind—I of, always thought he kind of went over the top a little about it, right? Because I'm not the kind of person who goes around and talks about stuff like that. So, but now later it all makes sense because here's what happened: around 2020, when all these things hit, I just shot up one day and I thought, "Hey, wait a minute! All of this stuff was fake, including..." <laughs> that crime. <laughs> so I realized that this particular crime that I had 
inadvertently participated in <laughs> helping them was fake. And this was early 2020. Um, but I never have talked about it. I've never said anything about it. And um, actually, I've been so busy that I didn't really look into why it was fake or how it was fake until the last, oh, I don't know, six months or so. I finally took some time and looked. And I was quite <laughs> quite entertained with what I found. Because keep in mind, five is their number, right? So I will... Um, and the number four is their death number, right? So first, let's play a little clip. And I don't have my right speakers, so you'll be able to hear it well enough. But anyways, um, this, there's actually a true crime channel on YouTube that covered this crime. Um, <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> so let me see. It says, let me go ahead here. Okay. Okay. I've got to use my old handy speaker while the new one gets delivered. Okay. So I, I can't do that whole show that I'm working on and have this horrible audio, but for this it'll be okay. So this is a this audio is called Norfolk Bank Robbery, September 26, 2002, Nebraska. Because <laughs> he's going to start off, and he well, what he's going to do is I will. He's going to start off and not say anything for 40 seconds because 40 seconds was supposedly how long it took to kill these people. So, so let me play it. happen. It's like, oh, that's an interesting little thing, so why not throw it out there just for people that might not know. So on with today's true crime. Norfolk, Nebraska is a quiet community in northeast Nebraska that has a population around 23,000 people. This is the home of comedian host, man of the hour, Johnny Carson. It's not his birthplace, but it's 
before he grew up, a mass killing was the furthest from anyone's mind in this town. The bank robbery, if you can call it that, was planned weeks before the 26th. But in the end, like I said, if you can call it that, there was no robbery, just a massacre. At 8.47 that morning, police got a call from a citizen about an armed robbery at the U.S. Bank in Norfolk. Mere moments before this, three men walked into the bank. So at around 8.30 that morning, Gabriel, or Gabriel, Gabriel, Rodriguez, entered the bank and looked around. He left immediately after and radioed his friends about the location of where the people were in the bank. Um, and then he left. Jose Sandoval walked into the front of the bank and shot two employees and a customer. Eric Vela, Rivela, and Jorge Gazindo uh, went to the offices and shot two more employees. They also attempted to shoot a customer that started walking into the bank, but the customer was, I believe, wounded and fled, but escaped. Um, the three men left the bank empty-handed and ran off on foot, as their driver was not there. Uh, when leaving the bank, they left five people dead or dying on the floor, and the one person injured. And there were still two other employees that were unharmed. They were supposed to steal an employee's car, but in the chaos they didn't, so they ran off. Now, a couple blocks away, they forced their way into a person's home and stole that person's vehicle. They left them unharmed. Uh, they went to where they were going to meet up with Rodriguez, but he was not there. Uh, so they fled town. About 15 miles from Norfolk is Meadow Grove to the west. Uh, that's where they ditched a car and stole a pickup. And they continued to take off and drive west. Eventually they stopped for gas or food or something. O'Neill, Nebraska, and that's where they were ultimately arrested. Rodriguez was still free at this time. He was hiding out, but was terribly upset that he left his friends. He feels like he let them down, but he got scared when he heard the gunfire. And he <laughs> this guy doesn't really know what he's talking about, but anyway, so you get the picture, right? <laughs> Funny that it was at a bank, right? Funny that they say they didn't take anything. I think banks typically, now I don't know this, a lot of times will never disclose if anybody took anything because it's bad for business, right? So whether somebody took anything or not, who would ever know? Because why would they rob a bank and not take anything unless it was some undisclosed money that went into some undisclosed pockets, right? So, and also another thing that I noticed, um, because people obviously, um, 
I was here within a few years of this happening, and you know, you'd hear it around town, like they had the annual anniversaries of this murder, and um, people would talk about things. Um, one day I was walking out in the parking lot, and I met Sandoval, the Jose Sandoval. I met his dentist, of all people. <laughs> the guy, well, he came and introduced himself to me, not for any reason other than I was driving an old Volvo, and people in Nebraska typically don't drive old Volvos. So he was talking to me in the parking lot, and he introduced himself. And I don't know how, but he ended up saying that he had been Sandoval's dentist. <laughs> it's a small town. So, yeah, so um, I had no reason to think that it was anything but, you know, true. Um, so, anyway, let me pull up a file here. Okay, see, here's the thing. Um, in order to keep this um, issue at bay around my house, I like to keep busy, right? So, I put together a file, um, oh, I don't know, just in the last few months, because I heard about it, figured it out a long time ago, but I just took a minute and put it into a file. So let me read. I have two files. This one is on Joe Smith, and the next one is on the crime that happened in 2002. I believe it had to probably do with racial tensions. You know, there had been a slaughterhouse in the area that was no longer there. Mexicans, right? Mexicans are only about 5% of the population here. So I'm just guessing on that, right? But it had a racial overtone being Mexican, right? White town, it had a bank. <laughs> and the symbolism is pretty interesting. But first, let's talk about Joe. Joe Smith is the Madison County attorney in Nebraska. He has been serving in this position since 1990. He gained statewide attention for his successful prosecution of four men involved in killing five people during a bank robbery in Norfolk, Nebraska in 20, oh, 2002. He was also under federal investigation for his relate, and this is just notes that I patched together, okay? <laughs> okay. Joe Smith has also been under federal investigation for his relationship with a convicted drug dealer but no criminal indictment was sought after him as there was not enough evidence to support criminal charges. The federal investigation of Madison County attorney Joe Smith came to light in June 2005 when wiretaps of his cell phone were discovered. The U.S. Attorney's Office informed Smith of its investigation in early 2006. The wiretaps were related to federal indictments in March 2005 of six people on charges of distributing methamphetamine. Smith testified twice before a federal grand jury over the course of the investigation. So evidently they were doing some wiretapping, okay? And they caught Joe Smith, <laughs> the head guy, um, I think, I'm a little fuzzy today, but this is how I think the story went. I think the story went that he was, they were wired, the feds were wiretapping somebody, and Joe Smith got caught on some, making some sneaky deals during this wiretapping thing. 
the outcome of the investigation was that the U.S. Attorney's Office decided not to seek a criminal indictment against Madison County Attorney Joe Smith as part of an investigation of his relationship with a convicted drug dealer. The decision was based on the availability of admissible evidence and was not an assessment of whether Smith may have acted improperly. No, we can't have that now, can we? Okay. Um, then, then a local paper, and I found this article, August 2020. Defense attorney's motion against Madison County attorney was waste of time and money. What a waste of time and money. That's how we assess the recent motion filed by Seth Morris, an attorney from Lincoln, that sought disciplinary action against Madison County Attorney Joseph Smith. As Madison County District Judge Mark Johnson said in his comments in denying the motion, Mr. Morris's testimony lacked credibility because of a number of inconsistencies or untrue statements he made. We couldn't agree more. The filing of the motion because of the nature of the complaint required that it be handled seriously and appropriately, even though reactions to the motion by many were immediately skeptical. Here's what took place. Mr. Morris is representing a Madison County client who was incarcerated in the county jail while awaiting trial. After a number of phone calls between the incarcerated client and Mr. Morris were recorded and turned over to the county attorney's office, Mr. Morris alleged this was a violation of attorney-client privilege and also violated his client's rights to a fair trial. In his complaint, Mr. Morris wanted Joseph Smith to be recused from the case, but that's not all. He also wanted the county attorney to be disciplined, to have his client attorney fees be reimbursed, and if that weren't enough, that the case be dismissed. <clears throat> a closer look at the situation tells a different story. Calls to the county jail are routinely recorded, but provisions exist and were available and in use to allow attorneys to request phone calls to clients in jail not to be recorded. That option wasn't fully made use of by Mr. Morris. It is also pertinent to note that when any phone call is recorded, there is an advertisement at the beginning of the call stating that it's being recorded. Mr. Morris said he never heard the warning. And it also should be pointed out that the county attorney was a person who alerted Mr. Morris to the fact that it appeared some conversations between Mr. Morris and his clients had been provided to the county attorney's office. Well, now, of course, isn't that how you get to jump on things, right? If you figure out you're going to get caught, what's your next best move? <laughs> well, get in front of it, right? Now, I don't know this. I'm just guessing based on years of looking at this how psychopaths behave. That's exactly how they behave. They get right in front of it. From our perspective, from our perspective, it all adds up to no wrongdoing by the Joseph Smith and perhaps a serious lack of attention to details and procedural matters by the defense attorney. 
we're glad that Judge Johnson recognized the reality of the situation and denied Mr. Morris's notion. But it still bothersome that so much time and expense was needed to ultimately appropriate deal to, to ultimately appropriately deal with what we see as frivolous law legal maneuvering. Well, you know, I don't know. You'll have to decide for yourself. I kind of think this attorney Morris <laughs> is onto something. <laughs> and he tried to speak out. And of course, everybody's going to circle the wagon around Joe, right? Okay, so there was another article about something else. <laughs> no charges to be filed against county attorney. The U.S. Attorney's Office will not seek a criminal indictment against Madison County Attorney Joe Smith as part of an investigation of his relationship with a convicted drug dealer. In a recent letter to Smith's attorney, U.S. Attorney Joe Stecker says there is not enough evidence to support criminal charges against Smith. The letter also says that the decision was based on the availability of admissible evidence and is not an assessment of whether Smith may have acted improperly. Stretch would not comment Tuesday on whether there was enough evidence to have Smith disbarred. Smith's attorney, James Martin Davis of Omaha, said the letter was an exoneration of his client. It was a thorough investigation, he says. They investigated his driving habits and his sex life and his relationship to law enforcement and all of his informants. Those leads have developed nothing, and that is an exoneration. Smith said he anticipated this kind of decision, but had expected it to come sooner. Yeah, well, they investigated it all now, didn't they? It continues on. I've never been happy about this. I've not been happy. It's been a three-year process, Smith says. On the other hand, it's something that I certainly knew that someday they'd do something. They did. I just wish it was three years ago. The federal investigation and wiretaps of Smith's cell phone came to light in June 2005. Stetcher, whose office informed Smith of his investigation in early 2006, would not comment Tuesday on the scope of the investigation. Davis has said the wiretaps were related to federal indictments in March 2005 of six people on charges of distributing methamphetamine. Davis said Tuesday that Smith testified twice before a federal grand jury over the course of the investigation. Um, yeah, um, and the final quote, I have taken the high road throughout this, Smith says. I'm not going to do any less now. So then we come up with this one interesting piece that some advocate for justice published. Seems to sound true to me, and I'll just read it through here. Joe Smith Country, no, Joe Smith, country attorney for Madison, has been wildly, widely accused to be a drug user and dealer, and he's been alleged to take advantage of relationships with informants and narcs, like Troy Viscosi's former wife, Jeannie. He has vouched for Jeannie and kept her out of trouble on multiple occasions over the years. Offering plea deals to drug offenders who may someday be able to help him is really Smith's specialty. 
Smith's inappropriate friendship with a convicted drug dealer was alleged to have tainted two murder trials. The, de the dealer in question, Jesus Padilla, was apparently provided inside information about search warrants that were going to be served, and Smith offered the man transport so he would not be arrested for an outstanding Colorado warrant. Some have called Joe Smith the most crooked attorney in Nebraska. Smith was accused of being involved with Judge Richard Garden's continuous scam to keep Garden's daughter out of jail for drug arrest. She was never charged with multiple federal crimes. As Smith ensured, she was sent to various rehab clinics rather than serve any time. In the trial of Art Sobey, Smith was removed from the case for hiding exculpatory evidence, hiding a pertinent medical exam that would have cleared Sobey and violated attorney-client privilege, among other things. Oh boy, this guy's really something else, huh? And this is the person in charge, okay? <laughs> At one time, Smith was under federal investigation for drug trafficking. The Nebraska Civil Rights Movement ended up requesting another federal investigation of Madison, Madison County for human rights violations, law enforcement effectiveness, drug trafficking, and lack of due, pro due process. All that aside, it's important to note that Smith isn't even necessarily good at his job. Three high-profile death cases in Madison, Madison County are still under investigation and will likely never be solved. In fact, he has been dismissive and uncooperative, according to the families of all three victims, Carrie Armstrong's family being among them. All three cases have a familiar thread tying them to Joe Smith, drugs. Is he purposefully being so ineffective to keep himself and those close to him out of trouble? In August 2009, 19-year-old Lacey Anderson went missing after leaving her home. Her body was found three months later in the woods. She had been murdered. Lacey had been involved in a rough crowd before her death and may have been involved in methamphetamine use, according to her parents. Before her murder, Lacey had provided law enforcement with information regarding several different drug-related crimes and the individuals involved. She was due to name more individuals and testify in a criminal case as a witness in the weeks after her death. Several of Lacey's friends have come forward to say the last person she was with the night of her disappearance was drug dealer and alleged gang member Jamie Bear, B-E-A-R. For reasons unknown, Bear has never been seriously investigated in connection with Lacey's disappearance and death even after he bragged to multiple people that he had been one to shut Lacey up. He still walks free. The death of Larry Edgell, E-D-G-E-L-L, is another unusual case in Madison County and another case where Joe Smith has been extremely uncooperative. Larry was found dead in his parked car, shot once in the chest. His death was officially ruled a suicide in 12 minutes without an autopsy or any sort of investigation. This did not sit well with Larry's grieving widow, Danette. The whole situation seemed strange to her. 
Larry's car was found on a rural road and four of his extra strength fentanyl packages prescribed to him for a terminal condition were missing. There was also beer in his car, highly unusual to anyone who knew Larry, who had only drunk wine coolers for years. According to Danette, even the trajectory of the fatal chest wound was odd, at an angle that would have been difficult for Larry to achieve himself. The police seemed all too willing to accept the idea that the poor man with a terminal illness drove out into the middle of nowhere to end his suffering, despite the fact that his fingerprints and DNA of two other unknown individuals were found inside the car. Danette and her family fought the ruling in court, and the cause of death was quickly changed from suicide to undetermined. However, there is another twist. Danette was recently told by Smith's colleague, investigator John Smith's colleague, excuse me. Danette was recently told by Smith's colleague, investigator John Downey, that the case has been officially closed and again ruled as a suicide. Legally, if the case is closed, Danette has a right to every scrap of information in the case file. Smith and Downey refused to give it to her. What reason could they possibly have to keep a widow from important files that rightfully belong to her? Why would they change the cause of death and close the case without notifying her first? Whispers and rumors around town have implicated drug addict and alleged informant Scott Rutan, R-U-T-A-N, in Larry's death. But that tip has never been investigated. Why? Why would a productive and efficient police force not spend their time investigating every possible lead? Or are men like Troy, Jamie Bear, and Scott Rutman being protected because of the services they or those close to them have provided to men like Joe Smith? What is happening in Madison County, Nebraska is inexcusable. Every facet of their justice system has been tainted by corruption, collusion, thievery and lies. What is even more inexcusable is the amount of evidence present, yet they continue to operate without hindrance. You and I, dear reader, must become the hindrance. As concerned citizens, we must be, do all we can to make sure their corruption is not overlooked. I want Madison County to know that we, we know that justice isn't being served because the justice system has been allowed to serve itself first and foremost. We will make the voices of the voiceless heard, and we will not be quieted. Well, I think that this is um, the best example I can give you of how deep the rot is in this country. If you think that anything is going to be easy for everything, anybody in a completely polluted and psychopathic run organization, so this was this this one here. Um, I'm going to take a break after this. Uh, I found some stories posted around um, this one poor guy. I, really, I wanted to write to him and tell him how sorry I was. But anyways, uh, so the following was written by Art Sobey, posted by those who care. I was convicted of true. 
two felony crimes in Madison County, Nebraska in September 2000. Both the charges were completely bogus. My only real crime was my failure to have a complete criminal background check done on the woman I had married two years earlier. Had I done that, I would have learned the truth about the child rape case in Stevens County, Washington some five years earlier. My bad. I was first charged with the rape of Molly, a virginal eight-year-old child. Later in April 2000, I was charged with sexually assaulting the oldest of Deborah's. This Deborah was this woman he married, Deborah's daughter, Sarah, a 15-year-old. The second charge, already investigated and proven to be a lie just months earlier, was resurrected so the jury pool could be po poisoned as well as bringing more weight to the attempt to force me into a plea bargain. Both cases went to trial in September 2000. The first case, the one involving Sarah, resulted in a conviction. My court-appointed attorney, Harry Moore, put up no defense. I got it. Was that the Harry Moore? Anyway, I'll look later. Anyway, my court-appointed lawyer, Harry Moore, put up no defense at all for me. After the state rested its case, Harry told me he was not going to put on any defense and I could testify on my own behalf if I wanted to. I was angry beyond words. I might go into this case at some time later. Right now, I am busy as I can be with the other case. This case was used effectively by the cast of crooks you're about to meet to poison the press and the jury pool. It was so sensational in depicting me as an evil person that I still have trouble coping with the results. The case was overturned on a direct appeal by Nebraska Court of Appeals in February 2002. It is perhaps the only case in Nebraska legal history where a criminal case involving sex charges and children was not retried following a reversal in the appellate courts. That is how smelly the case was. Not that it is any smellier than the case which is currently going on. Yes, incredibly, the state refused to re-prosecute the case. My court-appointed attorney at the time, Mark Alvin, refused to force such a retrial. Not that he could have forced a retrial, but he refused to even try. I have not yet learned of Alvin's role in the collusion. I have yet uncovered. I could have used the retrial to get into the record of the new trial all the evidence of my innocence that the state had successfully kept out of the first trial. The two cases were inexplicably linked throughout the trial process, and my appellate lawyer was almost speechless that one, one case was overturned and the other upheld. Following my conviction in the first case, I fired my court-appointed attorney and acted as my own lawyer at the second trial. Yes, I knew at the same time that it was a bad choice, but I was unwilling to sit idly by and watch the biggest criminal in my case, my court attorney, my court appointed hack attorney Harry Moore do more than do one more unethical thing to me. The scumbag could not even look me in the eye by the time I fired him. He had lied to me about everything in the nine months leading up to the trial. His last act was to lie to me about the law. He told me if I wanted to fire him, I couldn't have another lawyer, that I would have to defend myself. I don't know why I believed him about that, but it sounded plausible, and I didn't care. I was definitely getting rid of Harry Moore. 
Of course, I was no match for Assistant Attorney General of Nebraska, George Love. I did my best, but knew nothing about legal trial procedure and looked stupid and clumsy. I knew nothing at the time about the collusion that was determined to protect the original prosecutor, Madison County Attorney Joe Smith. At the time, I just thought the judge was an arrogant, pompous ass, that Harry Moore was the stupidest, most inept lawyer in the entire state, that George Love was a typical stuffed shirt bureaucrat unable to do anything on his own except hold down a state job. Terry Nussbaum, another assistant attorney general, sat next to Love during the entire trial, telling him when to object and why and what to do next. Had it not been for her, Love would likely have done worse than I did. <laughs> and that the state cop who testified was just another lying cop. Back to the cast of character. From now on, I will speak of what I know today, which is much more than I knew nine years ago. Joe Smith. Joe Smith is probably the most crooked attorney in Nebraska. He was caught stealing cable television service, services, and he survived that. His dealings in illegal drugs, something I have firsthand knowledge of, this is this guy's hand, not me, <laughs> and was the focus of a federal grand jury. I don't know how Joe escaped indictment, but he certainly was guilty. Joe was involved with Judge Richard Garden, his trial attorney, in a scam to keep the judge's daughter, Sue, out of prison for her many arrests for illegal drugs. Joe did this by finding new and ever more creative ways to put Sue into drug rehab programs instead of charging her for the felony crimes she kept on committing for years. I was involved in one such scam by posing at Joe's request as a rehab-type drug person capable of supervising her rehab. Funny, when Sue skipped town instead of even attempting to comply with her court-ordered probation terms and I reported to Joe, to Joe, he laughed. You have done just fine, he said. If I don't keep Sue out of prison, the, the judge won't recommend me to replace him on the bench. Just keep quiet. Joe is the most powerful person in Madison County. He decides who gets charged with what crime. He decides who goes free without trial, guilt or not. In the 25 years he has been county attorney, he has built up a web of people who owe him favors and many of those people have lied for him in return. Thus the web of illegal power continues to spin and strengthen itself. Joe Smith is a good man to know in Madison County, unless, like me, you learn too much about him and his corrupt base and thereby threaten him. As you read the court documents and learn more about this case, excuse me, as you read the court documents and learn more about this man, remember there is no lie he won't tell, even under oath in court, to protect himself. Joe Smith was removed from my trial several months before the trials began because of egregious misconduct that put him in the position of scuttling the state's case. It is hard to list all of Joe's misconduct, and I make no claim that I know everything now. Joe's misconduct expounded on, on in many current court motives include the following. Number one, the hiding of exculpatory evidence. This included the report of a forensic examination 
on my personal computer, which was seized by court order search warrant and examined by at the FBI computer crime lab for kitty porn in St. Louis, Missouri. Because there was not a trace of kitty porn or pedophilia-related internet activities on my personal computer, Joe continues to hide the FBI report to this day. Two, hiding the medical exam of Molly until one day before the first trial. This is more important than it might appear. The exam done 10 days after my arrest for raping Molly showed Molly was still a virgin and a completely, with a completely intact hymen and no signs of ever being raped or sexually penetrated in her life. The additional factor of importance is that Molly had previously accused at least three other men of raping her. Molly had accused her own biological father of raping her. The father went on to trial in Stevens County, Washington for two counts of child rape and was not convicted. Every soul in Madison County believed that Molly had been raped and otherwise sexually violated by a band of satanic cultists led by her biological father. Molly's mother was quite passionate about the harm done Molly and her other daughters in Washington. Until I was arrested, nobody checked her story. After I began checking on the part of the No Grady family, I found out the whole story about Molly and her sisters being victimized by a satanic cult was utter rubbish. So you see, I expected any medical exam to show that Molly had been penetrated at some point in her young life. My lawyer, public defender Harry Moore, had received this medical report, report one day before my first trial and hadn't told me about it. I didn't find out about it until five days before my second trial, after firing Harry. Harry put the medical report between the pages of some statements by witnesses from the first pages in hope it might not get found at all, I guess. Both prosecutors in this trial hid all trace of the medical exam while at the same time arranging their own medical witness. This had the effect of denying me any medical witness at my retrial. I was a prisoner in the county jail because of my conviction in the first trial and didn't know how to get a doctor to testify for me. Harry Moore was appointed as my standby counsel on the trial's first day and refused to help me in any way or answer questions like, how can I get a doctor to testify for me? Number three, violation of my attorney-client privilege. Because the public defender refused to represent me at a preliminary hearing, a friend of mine hired Nebraska attorney Ralph Smith to represent me in an effort to get the charges dropped. For those of you who are familiar with legal proceedings, this is correct. I didn't know I had a constitutional right to a preliminary hearing until a couple of years later. Ralph Smith met with the prosecutor, Joe Smith, on three to four occasions about dropping the charges from 1299 to 2000. In March 2000, Joe Smith took from the paralegal working for Ralph Smith all of my trial strategy that was being developed for my preliminary hearing. So Joe Smith took, oh, okay. yeah, Joe Smith took from the paralegal working for Ralph Smith all of my trial strategy. This included all the paperwork I had brought from the Washington trial. 
this was the impeachment evidence that showed the lies of Molly, Sarah, and the mother, Deborah. Joe Smith also took the Volumbi, oh, lots of notes I had prepared for Ralph Smith on various people in Madison County that might have been useful to the defense at trial. I had also written out a complete recounting about my arrest and the silly things that followed it. There was an almost complete trial strategy outline. There was almost a complete strategy complete with anticipated witnesses. I now know that this taking of the defense trial strategy by intent is a constitutional violation of the highest order, one that usually results in a dismissal of all charges. When I complained to Harry Moore repeatedly and boisterously over the next few months about the theft, Harry mocked me as an idiot. That wasn't too hard to figure out anyway, and any fool could have figured that out, he would say. If Harry had just filed a motion in court about this one issue, I probably wouldn't have even gone to trial. Instead, Joe Smith kept everything he had stolen, shared it with the special prosecutor appointed to take his place, and even refused to give it back to me when I fired Harry and acted, per se, in my second trial. Number four, Joe Smith had been seduced by my wife, Deborah Nograty. Almost 15 months before I was arrested, I knew all about it from the first day. Deborah and I had pursued an open marriage relationship. We regularly went to swinging parties. Deborah is a bisexual. All of this appealed to Joe Smith, and he was an easy target. This is a part of the misconduct that got Joe removed from my case. Sadly, he had almost six months to really mess me around. Joe did many favors for Deborah to make her a prominent part of the Madison County law enforcement operation. Because Deborah's all but empty resume, Joe had her phony up a 15-year resume of criminal law enforcement work with sexual assault and child victims. It is all BS. Joe got Deborah work teaching local police about domestic and violence and sexual assault victims. Deborah held a position as a domestic violence counselor for about a year before being fired for missing too much work and working too close to Joe. After Deborah was fired, Joe backed her for a part-time job as a counselor to troubled teens in a diversion program at the local high school. Joe did his best to keep Joe did his best to keep her to get her the job despite knowing Deborah was openly bisexual, sexually troubled, and particularly enjoyed having sex with teenagers. Number five, Joe colluded with my court-appointed attorney, public defender Harry Moore, to hide his misconduct and keep the sexual affair with my wife from becoming known. This one act alone, engaging in collusion with my lawyer, meant my lawyer was conflicted in his representation of me. Because my lawyer was working for Joe Smith, it was worse than having no lawyer at all. As time passed and the trial drew closer, my lawyer was drawn farther and farther into the conclusion, collusion. In fact, without Harry Moore's betrayal of me, I would not be where I am today. Number six, there are more acts of misconduct by Joe Smith, but this will be enough to get the discussion started and open the dialogue of injustice in Nebraska Com website.
Harry Horn. Harry was a critical component component of the collusion to protect Joe Smith and prevent disclosure of Joe's extensive misconduct. I found out later that there were other times, likely many times, where the two had cooperated in similar fashion to protect Joe Smith from his propensity to engage in misconduct in the pursuit of criminal trials. At the time, it didn't occur to me that such a massive collusion was working against me. I never even suspected it. As most Americans have been taught to believe, I trusted in the inherent fairness and honesty of both the criminal justice system and the people who work in its framework. I just thought Harry was the dumbest lawyer in North America, and that it was my bad fortune to have caught him as my lawyer. Harry lied to me about almost everything as time passed and trial drew closer. I argued and argued and begged him to allow me to work with him to develop a trial strategy. Harry rebuffed every attempt on my part to work with him and began dodging me when I would call or visit his office. Harry Moore is a scum. He is a most ineffectual man. He is without any self-confidence at all. He is a midget among midgets despite his height of six feet or so. I am sure Harry's cooperation with the county attorney, Joe Smith, to sell, his to sell out his clients began more than 10 years before my case came along. Harry's willing cooperation has resulted in the convictions of many that were innocent. The overpunishment of some who were actually guilty and the mishandling of many cases where the defendant actually could have been helped had they had an honest advocate working for them instead of someone selling them out. One of the reasons Harry sold out his clients was because he was incompetent and unable to represent them effectively. Thus, working for Joe Smith provided him job protection as long as he didn't rock the boat. About a week before my first trial, Harry made Joe angry about something. As a result, Joe canceled all the plea bargains the two had arranged. This is how Joe has become has come to ultimately gain complete control of Harry, the canceling of all plea bargains. Harry was not only inept as a trial lawyer, he was never prepared to go to trial, especially after reaching a plea bargain. Whatever Harry had done that annoyed Joe enough to cancel all existing plea bargains was quickly corrected by Harry. The next day, all plea bargains were re reinstalled. By the time Harry Moore got me for a client, he was nothing more than a pompous shell of a real man. With any reasonably competent attorney representing me as an ethical legal advocate, my release or acquittal was all but assured. The exculpatory evidence being hidden by Joe Smith and ultimately George Love could have been quickly produced by simply filing a motion for discovery in court. Harry never did that. The impeachment evidence, excuse me, the impeachment evidence from the Washington case could have been overpowering if presented at trial instead of being suppressed. The medical exam report, in combination with the impeachment evidence from Washington, would have shown that a child who had falsely accused at least three other, three, excuse me, <coughs> that a child who had falsely accused at least three there may have been actually more than the known three other men of raping her before me 
and who was still an untouched virgin, never sexually penetrated 10 days after my arrest, was the most accomplished liar. Of course, it was the mother, Deborah, who was the force behind all of the foul, false accusations of rape by her daughters. Instead, I got a lawyer whose plan was to present no defense at all. None. As soon as the prosecution finished their case, Harry rested the defense case without any presentation at all. That was what he did in the first case and what he planned to do in the second case before I fired him. There is much more I could tell you about Harry Moore, but this is hopefully enough for now and enough for you to understand references to Harry and Harry's work. George Love. Love was the assistant attorney general for Nebraska, appointed to, let me see. Love was the assistant attorney general appointed, oh, assistant attorney general appointed, oh, what happened was during this Joe Smith thing, some assistant att attorney general got appointed to kind of take over during that time. Okay, George Love. George was the assistant attorney general appointed to take the place of Joe Smith when Smith's conduct forced him off the case. At first, I was ecstatic that a new prosecutor had been appointed to replace Smith. My hopes were quickly dashed when George Love did not investigate Smith's misconduct as I hoped he would. Love simply picked up where Smith left off and continued to hide the exculpatory evidence Smith had been hiding. Love quickly joined in the collusion to protect Joe Smith's misconduct from being revealed and poisoning the case against me. Love, undoubtedly guided and otherwise aided by the dishonest Joe Smith, took control of Harry Moore and worked with Harry to prevent the exculpatory evidence from ever reaching trial. The same with the troublesome impeachment evidence of the previous trial accusation by the, his ex-wife's family's tribe. While it is hard to call one act of ethical misconduct more serious, and while the cover-up of Joe Smith's raid on the defense trial strategy was perhaps the most legal important misconduct of all, George, George Love's role in withholding the medical report on Molly was his deepest personal misconduct because he personally participated in the denial of required exculpatory discovery evidence. Love not only got his hands dirty in hiding the medical report of Molly's virginity, but he lied to the judge in court on the day of trial about turning all evidence over to the defense months earlier. Love told the judge that all discovery had been accomplished five months before in May of 2000, knowing he had turned over the medical report just a week or so earlier. So he lied and said it was all done five, minutes or five months earlier when in fact he had just done it. Harry Moore got the medical report of Molly's physical exam one day before the first trial began, on the day of the pre-trial motion regarding the Washington evidence was held. Love is not part of the Madison County clique of crooks like Joe Smith, Harry Moore, Judge Garden, Investigator Thorson, etc. Love's misconduct was caused by his lack of intestinal fortitude in exposing the misconduct of others once he learned of it. Love's failure to report the misconduct, a requirement of Nebraska rules of professional ethics, makes him as guilty 
as those who participate, who actively participated in the cover-up of Joe Smith's misconduct in the beginning. Love also wrote false and misleading argument in his briefing in this case on both direct appeal and first post-conviction action. The system of justice of which many Americans are still proud requires ethical conduct from all the court's actors in criminal trials. While it might be appealing to engage in misconduct to convince to convict someone you actually believe is guilty, such misconduct creates the basis for the destruction of the law and its system of enforcement. No wonder so many innocent people are in prison. Judge Richard Green. It is hard to accurately judge the extent of Garden's misconduct over the course of time because most of it took place in the privacy of his office without being recorded. There are just a few examples that have leaked out. The protection of his daughter, that was her, what was her name, Sue or something, through misconduct with the county attorney, the misconduct in protecting Richard Compla in the Hunt case, and the protection of Joe Smith in my case. Given the gravity of those three known actions involving Garden in his office as judge, it is more than likely there are many other perversions of justice that occurred in this court. Garden is retired now, and it's unlikely that anyone in Nebraska is interested in going after him. The Hunt case is a near case to my is a near match to my case. In the Hunt case, Garden had a clear duty to report immediately the fact that this Krepla person had falsified the police report on the Hunt case in order to move in, in, in order to remove what was exculpatory evidence from the report. Garden did nothing except enlist the defense counsel and the man's appointed special prosecutor as members of his collusion team. The cover-up went on for 15 years before being discovered and finally reported. In the meantime, Krepla, K-R-E-P-L-A, went from being an ethically challenged prosecutor to being a county judge in front of those still practicing today. That is the gold standard of justice in Madison County. Cheat and become a judge. Well, this is interesting because um, I probably had lunch with them uh, a dozen times. I mean, it wasn't just like once or twice, okay? Uh, and it wasn't like, just to be clear, um, I never texted these people. It was just like, I don't know, once a month or so, I would call Joe's assistant um, and we would have this lunch schedule, right? And that was just about it, right? And um, these judges, one guy who was always there, <laughs> who at the time was one of his prosecutors, <laughs> became a judge. <laughs> so from what I can tell, what this person is saying in this pretty well revised letter that um, this is this should give you some insight into <laughs> this is not just Nebraska. This is how, and I've talked about the Saturn thing, why they wear those black robes. And I got to tell you, when I went through that lawsuit to try to get Intel to pay me, it took almost five years. And I got to tell you, <laughs> thank God, 
thank God it wasn't like this person was going through, right? Because um, it was a spin for my money. I think I went through three or four attorneys, and I could not understand, <laughs> now I do, right, why when it was 100% clear that these were my designs that Intel had in fact stolen, they all always talked like they had marbles in their mouth, right? And, yeah, and so, yeah, they were all colluding. And, you know, at the time, I thought they had to be colluding, right? Because, oh, the one attorney, he was like, well, he starts talking, go to meet with him about what's going on with the Intel case, right? And he starts going on and on about how these things are stressful and stuff. I, I think, at first, I thought he was talking about me. I thought he was saying that he understood that I might be stressed, right? Well, luckily, I didn't start laughing because he then went on to talk about himself. <laughs> the first, I go to ask him about an update on what's going on with the Intel lawsuit, right? This is a very well-known attorney in Silicon Valley. During this meeting, he starts talking about stress. I think he's talking about my stress and being kind of on my side, right? Well, come to find out, he was talking about the stress these kind of cases bring on him to sue somebody like Intel. <laughs> Then he went on to tell me that he was sure things were going to work out because one of his attorneys, this was the head guy of the whole offer, right? One of his attorneys under him had the file now and was in communication with Intel's attorneys. And they had both gone to school together. So he was sure that the attorney from Intel was a good guy and they'd work it out. Honestly, God, this is exactly what they told me. This was my first attorney. <laughs> Um, yeah, when he started talking about his own stress, I thought, what is this guy talking about? <laughs> and actually, the attorneys got worse from there. One of the attorneys gave me such bad advice, that's how I ended up spending one night in jail. <laughs> this attorney, <laughs> I can't remember which one this one was. I had a few. This one, I got this warrant just for some unpaid bill during this Intel lawsuit. I mean, I was about losing my mind, right? <laughs> Trying to keep up with everything. And uh, this genius tells me that all I have to do to handle this thing is to go down to the um, jail, but do it at night and just they'll just take care of the paperwork, right? <laughs> so what did I do? Well, I, I did what he said, right? I took this paperwork that said that somebody was trying to sue me or something. I, I was so fuzzy at this point, right? So, to so remember, I'd gone from, my consulting fees were like 120 an hour. I was at that point making $10 an hour working as a temporary person <laughs> and trying to sort out, how am I going to, what, what is going on? It's like, you know, I couldn't find attorneys and act like they were honest. So, anyhow, so this attorney says, well, okay, so you can't afford to pay this fine. So here's what you do. You go down to the, 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 jailhouse in Santa Clara County, Middle Silicon Valley, they had this jailhouse. It was mainly a men's prison, okay? And so he said, you go down to the men's prison and you um, hand them this paperwork and they will just sign off on it and be done. And I thought, well, that seems pretty easy, right? Because um, $500, I mean, I didn't have any money to pay the $500. <laughs> and I didn't even, I didn't even really have the brain power to kind of sort out what this is all about, right? So I dutifully go down there. I get a friend to take me down there about midnight one night. We cruise over to the county jail, and um, they don't know what I'm talking about, right? So they said, well, just come back. Okay, so I come back. They said, well, this is a civil case, so we can't help you here. So just come back. 
So anyway, so I thought, okay. And no alarm bells were yet going off my head, right? So. <laughs> oh, boy. So a couple of days later, same friend drives me out there about midnight, and they had found my paperwork. Well, <laughs> I never should have come back. <laughs> because they said, come this way. <laughs> well, I never went back to that lobby, okay? Come this way. They then led me downstairs to the uh, jail section where they in inputted people and they signed me into jail <laughs> because, come to find out, it wasn't a good move to go to the county jail with this paperwork that the attorney said, oh, it's not a problem. <laughs> so what could I do, right? Legally, they had me. I had gone there around midnight, so it's clearly too late to do much about anything, right? <laughs> so essentially, I had been set up by my own attorney, right? And the disgusting part was, after this happened to me, people would, instead of being in solidarity and thinking, wow, that's really a shame they were able to lock you up for a night, people were saying stuff like, why don't you sue them? It's like, my attorney set me up. My attorney set me up to spend that night in jail. It was done. There was nothing I could do about it, right? So what happened was the next day. So what happened was when I get to, they get me down to this holding cell, and they're like, "Hey, um, we're going to check you in in a bit." So they literally, literally, downstairs, right? They have a group of women's cells down there, but the main facility was for men. So they had a few women's cells down there. So they said, "Well, we're going to check you in a bit." So they had me go over and sit in this chair. And they literally handcuffed me to this chair, okay? <laughs> so I'm handcuffed there for hours. Finally, they go to process me, and they say, here, sign this paper. And I said, well, what does the paper mean? And they said, well, it means that um, you could be mingled, meaning that because I was in there on civil charges, right, that technically they couldn't put me in with all the rest of the inmates, right? <laughs> So I'm like, well, first of all, I need my glasses because they take my glasses. I said, first of all, I, don't, I can't see what I'm signing. I said, no, I'm not going to sign this. And they said, well, everybody does. Whenever somebody says everybody does, that always gets my attention, right? So I said, well, I'm not going to. So I think I kind of set myself up for a little bad behavior at that point because what happened next was they checked me in. It's about 3 or 4 in the morning. And then they um, strip me. No, they don't strip me until the next day. So they check me in. And I'm still in the same clothes that I came in, right? I'm such a dangerous criminal, I'm still in the same clothes, but it was a civil case, so. Because they couldn't put me in the cells with mobs of drunk women by that point, they had to put me in my own little cell. So I was in my own little cell. And in my own little cell, all I had was like a toilet in the hole and um, a wooden bench, okay? And luckily I still had my clothes on. So I was able to kind of doze off for a little bit in my cell. And <laughs> then the next morning, <laughs> They um, couldn't mingle me still, right? So they gave me a sandwich and stuff. And um, then the, the, when the crew came in the next morning, the next day, they were surprised that I was still there. <laughs> because I was only there on a civil case, right? So they felt kind of bad for me. So they actually let me, um, they let me out of my cell and they chained me to a chair out in the more general area because they were kind of wondering why she's still here. Well, I was wondering why am I still there too, right? So then a few hours later, some report came down, and they needed to transport me over to a judge <laughs> before I could get out. <laughs> Remember, I'm there because I, I got some paperwork confused, okay? <laughs> so, 
Who was over some bill for Kelly services for some temp service? So, okay, so. So because I wouldn't sign this paperwork, they wanted me to sign the paperwork again. Because I wouldn't sign the paperwork, they were forced to transport me to the judge in a, in a van all by myself. So I was in this van by myself, handcuffed. And um, I was handcuffed to my waist. They didn't handcuff my feet, which is kind of funny. But anyway, so this is why the moral of the story is everybody in this country is at risk of getting locked up, okay? So, so what happens next? So before they hauled me off in the van to go to the court, they changed me from my regular clothes into jail clothes. So I was now in an orange jumpsuit, okay? <laughs> so, so I'm in an orange jumpsuit. I've got a shackler around my wrist. I'm shackled on my hands. I've got two sheriffs escorting me in this van alone, right? They walk me into the courtroom. And this whole court appearance, I had to go in front of this judge and the people that thought I did something, which I really hadn't, I never should have ended up there except for these stupid attorneys. <laughs> so by that point, they had to let me go. So they had to escort me back. And um, the funny thing was, was that they escort me back. Now I had gotten in there the night before at midnight. They escort me back in the afternoon. And when they found that I was still there, they were surprised I was still there. So they took me out of my little cell and chained me to the chairs again out in the main area. And at that point, they were moving inmates from that facility to another inmate. So there were all these other women that were chained to chairs too, along with me. And they were all talking about what they were in for. I mean, it was all kinds of cases. They were very nice women. There were all kinds of reasons, you know. Some of them had come in during the night for drunk charges, some of them for this or that. <laughs> so they asked me, they said, well, what are you in for? <laughs> I said, well, I didn't pay this bill. I got the paperwork confused. <laughs> they look at me like, what? <laughs> so, so the moral of the story is, it took me years to understand that um, the whole system is corrupt, right? This is, this is the plan, not the plot in the system, okay? This is what we're looking at ahead of all of us, okay? And I've got a uh, couple more pieces here, but I'm going to take a break first uh, because I want I want this to sink into your head because this was a structure when they moved these people onto the United States onto this game board. Okay, they moved a cop, a banker, <laughs> the people, and a preacher, right? And the residents. So it was it was always, always on this part of the game board, the United States, the home of eugenics, this part of the game board was structured from the very get-go, the very beginning. Very, very beginning. And there was a lot of things that happened in these small areas, right? For example, the church here runs the hospital. No red flags there, right? Um, Johnny Carson, the world's most famous comedian, allegedly grew up here in this town. Oh, no reason to be suspicious about any of that stuff, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. It's, it's just all part of the transactions because, um, as a matter of fact, um, before I realized that it was all part of the plan, not the bug in the system, when I was living in Sedona, um, there was this... Um, person that ran the hospital there, okay? And in Sedona, 
where all the rich white people live, there was a hospital right outside of Sedona called Cottonwood. Well, I didn't know the dynamics of what was going on in the hospital because I wasn't that old at that time. I was like 50, and my mom was my mom was older, so obviously she knew more about the dynamics. Well, I'll never forget when my mom had something happen. She was so adamant about, don't let them take me to the hospital. I mean, she was like, don't let them take me there. Because what they would do is the ambulance drivers would take the people from Sedona to this holding spot and then to this kind of a other hospital in Cottonwood, right? And then if any, anybody had to be transported, they would be transported from there. Well, and then, of course, there were deaths and people being transported, helicopters crashed and stuff like that happened at the hospital, right? So I didn't really realize why my mom was so adamant about not going to that hospital, but I did follow through. I didn't allow them to take her to the hospital. I forced them, and it was a lot of work. I forced the ambulance people to take her over to Flagstaff, okay? Because it just seemed like so, she was just so obsessed by, don't want to be, <laughs> so I didn't know, right? But I did what she said. Well, I found out later that because of all the problems at that hospital, they had this one administrator at the hospital, a man named Jim Sinek. Well, Jim had been at that hospital for almost five years at this time, right? Well, come to find out, guess who ran this hospital here for five years? Same guy. (laughs) It was just crazy because what happened was was that um, finally, there were too many patient deaths at the hospital outside of Sedona, so they had to fire Jim Sinek, right? I mean, he was getting well paid. He was he was also an attorney. He was uh, a member of the Sedona Golf Club, and everybody that was looking into this knew there were some major issues because all you had to do was look in the Sedona local areas at that time, and there were people and doctors absolutely going insane to get rid of this guy, okay? They were saying, he's, he's making patients die, patients are dying, we got to get rid of this guy, right? Well, these doctors, and I looked at all the articles, this stuff was going on, okay? <laughs> so, but I didn't know it was all going on when I, when I happened to be living there, okay? So, I was here at the time, and somebody said to me, somebody in the medical community said to me, talk about psychopaths, he says, the guy running the hospital here. And I said, what's his name? And he said, Jim Sadek. <laughs> well, that name sounds kind of familiar, right? So come to find out, um, that was the guy who was running the hospital outside of Sedona that got hired to run the hospital here. And this is how the system works, right? Obviously, if sitting in my house in five minutes, I can figure out this Jim Sinek problem has a horrible past. Anybody, right, hiring this person could figure out he had a horrible past. But it's part of the plan, not the bug of the sister, right? Because what did he do? He brought them a lot of money because he knew how to work the system. So the hospital he left from there, um, he'd been there about five years. And this is the good part. The hospital actually lost accreditation. That's how bad it was. (laughs) When you lose accreditation amongst these crooks, you know it's got to be bad, right? He lost accreditation. They were finally forced to fire him forced, not on their own will, they were forced into a position, right? So where does he come to work? Well, he comes to work at the hospital here in Norfolk, Nebraska. Well, this hospital here was bigger than the hospital there. And while he was here, he got them to fund a lot of new hospital growth. And he was, you know, he did the same thing he did at Arizona. What he did was he went in, he fired all the older nurses to cut back on money, got rid of all of them. Um, that's when the patient deaths started escalating and stuff. And then he had a good five-year role of 
basically, you know, a lot of people died on his tenure. <laughs> and then he, he wound up here. And then, uh, then the doctors here went insane at some point. And most of them, by that point, had Googled him because this stuff about him was all over, okay? There was a reporter in Sedona who I'd communicated with for years who had followed this guy, right? So, anyhow, so she had put up a lot of work of hers, the Sedona journalist that I do, and um, it was all accredited. I mean, these were actual doctors in their own words. Their own pictures were there talking about what a lunatic this guy was, right? And their concern. So... The doctors here had kind of figured this out because they had Googled it and figured this guy out. So he, his run here was about five years. And um, then the doctors here went nuts and went to the board and said, him or us. Uh, and so where did he go? Well, <laughs> he ended up in a uh, bigger hospital. I can't remember. I can't remember what state it is. It's a couple states over. But yeah, he ended up at, with an even bigger job in the next state over so the reason I'm telling this today is kind of a fun story, right? The collusion in this country. If people, if people think that this stuff just got started, no, I'm here to tell you it's been going on. This is the history of this country, the complete history of this country. Um, so, yeah, it was set up by psychopaths who had taken over when they founded this place, the biggest trick of all, right? Got rid of all the Native American Indians here and stuff for their own, you know, own power and money. And that's how the whole thing has rolled out. And it's, it's been based on very little evidence, very little backup information. They got those scientists in place to just kind of BS us with all this, you know, fancy talk and stuff. And behind it all, these people, are, most of them are puppets. That was the part that I never could figure out when I was working in Silicon Valley. And years later, it made more sense to me. Because I just, I don't know, I just couldn't figure out. I just couldn't figure some of those people out, how they got into the positions they did. Well, now I know, because they did not invent that technology. <laughs> the people that I do when I worked in Silicon Valley, who I thought founded those companies and stuff, were, in fact, agents. They were just perpetuating old technology that we had already had that existed. And I kept thinking, I kept thinking these people didn't all seem all that smart. Well... And there's this perception, perception that people have, they perceive that evil psychopaths have to be smart. No, they don't. They don't have to be smart. That, that's an that's illusion. You just have to be evil, and then you keep doing the same patterns. They're just picking up from what they did from the early generations, right? This crew that's set up, like this local area here, is the same kind of crew that profile that set up all the areas around this entire country, right? And it's a lot of a legacy business, right? A lot. I was looking through like the uh, power company here that runs it, the electrical company, right? They have it's supposedly a public company, right? Well, who's on the board? Well, I don't know. It looked to me like a lot of legacy people. It was like, well, Joe and so-and-so, his family were founding in Nebraska in the 1800s, and now he proudly sits on the board of the Nebraska Power Company. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so, and why can't they get rid of Joe Smith? Well, <laughs> I think when you weave a pretty big web, probably kind of hard to get your way out of it, right? So this will hopefully give you an example of how this whole thing has been rolling along. Rodriguez was still free at this time. He was hiding out, but was terribly upset that he left his friends. 
he feels like he let them down. But he got scared when he heard the gunfire, and he took off. Uh, initially, they were supposed to just rob the place, and it freaked him out that he heard gunfire right away. So he ran off to Columbus, Nebraska, which is about 45 miles south of Norfolk, and was talking to a friend of his down there. And the friend said, dude, you need to turn yourself over to the police. And he drove him back up to Norfolk. But he wanted to stop by his apartment so he could tell his girlfriend what was going on and that he probably wouldn't be seeing her for a while. And while he was talking to her over the news was his picture, which kind of freaked him out. He said, okay, well, we need to get going. So he was leaving his apartment. Well, at the same time, the police had figured out that he was the fourth person involved and were heading over to this place. So when he walked outside, the police were already out there to arrest him. The tragedy doesn't end there. The next morning, on September 27th, 2002, Nebraska State Trooper Mark Zock took his own life. About a week earlier, he arrested Bella for carrying a concealed weapon. Unfortunately, Zock transposed two numbers on the serial number of the gun, and this failed to show that the gun was actually stolen. So he got released on a bond for having a concealed weapon. If this had not happened, if he would have put the thing in correctly, it would have shown that as a stolen weapon and he would have been stuck in jail and this uh, massacre probably would never have happened. I, I believe that Zock couldn't handle that, so he ended up killing himself, which is very unfortunate. Was, I thought that was a pretty nice twist, right? They claimed that the cop who had stopped one of these supposed killers the day before um, miswrote the numbers and the thing, and so what happened instead was that he um, <clears throat> killed himself because he was so distraught. Well, along with a fake murder comes a lot of other fake things, right? Now, they've been fighting for years over Jose Sandoval, the main killer, the one psychopath one, right? They also said that, um, which I thought was kind of interesting, when Joe Smith first contacted me, there was talk about Jose Sandoval being on LSD during these murders. And I really couldn't figure that part out, and I was very open with them because um, it made no sense to me that somebody on LSD <laughs> would go and start robbing banks, okay? <laughs> so I, I, maybe they dropped the LSD charges, but I made a big point about that to Joe, and I said, hey, listen, if, if Jose Sandoval was in fact on LSD, he would have dilated pupils, because they also sent me his mug shots and stuff. And I said, I don't see dilation in his eyes, so I have a hard time thinking that he was actually on LSD, so. Yeah, certainly didn't mean to try to help them out, but now I'll just ex tell you what happened. So here we go. So now they're now they're talking about killing him. resulted in five cold-blooded murders in Norfolk sent shivers across the state 15 years ago. Tonight, one of the killers might be a step closer to an execution date. The Department of Corrections formally notified Jose Sandoval of the drugs it plans to use to administer capital punishment. 
Good evening, I'm Craig Pirelli. And I'm Jennifer Griswold. Sandoval could become the first Nebraska inmate executed since 1997. Tonight, there's a flurry of reaction. Here's reporter Maya Stein. Yeah, Jen Craig, the death penalty has always been a controversial topic. But in light of today's announcement, some are questioning the combination of the lethal infection drugs that would be used, mainly because this combination has never been used in the U.S. before. Jose Sandoval is one step closer to getting executed. Jose Sandoval was convicted of a brutal, cold-blooded killing of an innocent person. The announcement of which drugs would be used to execute Sandoval comes nearly a year after Nebraskans voted to bring back the death penalty. Anytime you have uh, a punishment like this, you really don't look at this as a win. But you look at this as justice being served uh, over a terrible and horrendous crime. <laughs> and taxpayer money being spent. <laughs> I don't know how much they spent on taxpayer money, but hey, this is how it works, right? This is just a small level thing of how these crimes get pulled off. And people look around small towns and they think, nah, nothing's going on there. Well, I think you need to take a little bit of a closer look. Just a little bit of a closer look. Because remember, the doctors that founded all of these small towns have access to all of the small babies that are crossing through these small town hospitals. Small town, big town. They're all in on the game, okay? All of them. So, um just be wise to your surroundings. Um, it is not a complicated plan. For that, I've been called crazy all these years, but I still, I would do it all over again because you know what? In the end, I am not crazy. This is exactly how it's worked. And it is so simple that it's, and so widespread right now that hardly anybody is able to really take a look and see. But to that, I will add, that level of ignorance to what is going on is a clear choice on this game board. Just as a note here, um, the article that I was reading, well, the, the story that was told by the person, that came off of a website that I found that was for complaints and stuff. And this article that I just read about the woman who was murdered and they still don't have any justice for her family, this was written on a website. It's called theodysseyonline.com. And the story is titled Madness in Madison County. So you'll be able to find the source for all this information right there. Um, because I wouldn't be reading it to you if I thought that it was insane, right? Because who would write these kind of stories about you and your wife having affairs and stuff. If I feel sorry for the guy, I gotta tell you, uh, I'm not gonna write to the guy uh, because I just can't. But I feel sorry for the guy because I feel his pain because this is going on all over this entire world. The system is rigged against the rest of us. KSFY breaking news: A deadly bank robbery in Norfolk, Nebraska. Five people confirmed dead. In-depth coverage starts now. And good morning from Dakota First News. A Midwest all-point bulletin has been issued for three men accused in a deadly bank robbery in Norfolk, Nebraska. KSFY's Mitch Krebs has been monitoring the situation this morning. Mitch, uh, what do we know right now? Well, Brian, we know that five people are dead, gunned down at about 8.45 this morning at a U.S. bank branch on Highway 81 in Norfolk. We're told the dead are four employees and one customer. Killers are still on the loose, and police do not know which way they're headed. The suspects are three Hispanic or white men 
2003 white Subaru Outback was in transit place that they apparently stole from a Norfolk neighborhood. They are still armed and dangerous, so obviously police all over the region are on the lookout for these very dangerous men. Be on the lookout for essentially from the Norfolk people, and that will have information pertaining to what they're looking for. Uh, descriptions of vehicles and those types of things. And that information is given to our street officers right away so they can be on the lookout for them. Brian, we do have a crew on the way to Norfolk and we'll have an update just as soon as we get any more new information. All right, Mitch, thank you for that. Stand by. We'll be coming back to you in the fourth. That's how it plays out, right? Even in a small, small town, fake murders, fake plots. I, I got to read this one page for you and then I'll be done with this because. Uh, this other page is the, the very interesting part about how they have um, coded this whole thing here. Okay, and then when I was looking into um, this fake crime recently, I found some interesting uh, coding. Okay, um, of course there were three robbers, right? Five people killed. Jose Sandoval was a member of a gang called Latin Kings which has a five-point star on the crown. And supposedly it was 40 seconds to the murder for five people as they entered the bank. There's also, which I never saw, and I don't drive anymore so I can't go look at it, but the city actually put up a memorial for these victims and the memorial <laughs> has five stars. <laughs> and across the street from the so-called murder was a Burger King. And what does the Burger King do? It has a crown which has five stars, right? Uh, yeah, these things always have their little childish symbols, all that kind of stuff, so they can proudly say to their other police buddies or whatever, yeah, I was part of that crime. So, um, yeah, what is this one here that I have? Let me try yeah, they said that the um, trooper killed himself because she was so upset and all that stuff. And um, I found out about the memorial because I was scanning the comments at that on one of those. Um, just look at Norfolk, Nebraska murders and you'll find all you want to know because um, they had all the um, different things there. But yeah, pretty obvious. You got a Burger King. He was a member of the Latin Kings, <laughs> both of those king crowns have five stars. I don't know what to tell you, but all of them are coded. All of them are really pretty juvenile, right? But it was at a bank. It had to do with robbing people or something or something to do with that. On any given day in the United States, around two million people are being held in federal, state, local, juvenile, immigration, and other detention. But when you look at who comes under correctional control over a whole year, that number is closer to 10 million people, which is roughly the populations of New York City and Chicago combined. Now let's break that down. Of that nearly 10 million, more than 5.5 million people end up behind bars. 600,000 of those are sent to prison, and about 4.9 million of those are put in jail. Then there's the folks on probation and parole, which comes out to roughly 4 million people under supervised release. So how did we get here? Mass incarceration started in the 1970s with Richard Nixon's thinly veiled racist agenda known as the War on Drugs. Then Ronald Reagan took things a step further with his tough-on-crime policies. When he started his first term in 1981, the total prison population was a little more than 329,000 people. 
When he was heading out the door in 1989, it had more than doubled to more than 627,000. Bill Clinton added fuel for the fire with his 1994 crime bill, which led to higher rates of incarceration and longer prison sentences. Marginalized communities felt the brunt of tough on crime policies then, and are still feeling it today. People of color make up a disproportionate amount of those incarcerated in comparison to the general population. For instance, in 2017, black people made up around 12% of U.S. residents, but accounted for about 33% of the U.S. prison population. Comparatively, white people made up 64% of the population, but only 30% of those in prison. Also overrepresented behind bars are survivors of sexual violence. 86% of women in jail are survivors of sexual assault, and 77% reported history of intimate partner violence. Another perhaps overlooked issue is the number of older adults who are incarcerated. Despite older Americans being one of the least likely groups to recidivate, almost half of people serving life without parole are 50 or older. On the flip side are young people. On a given day, more than 48,000 youth are under correctional control outside their homes. The majority of these young people are in juvenile detention facilities, but around 4,500 youths were held in adult prisons and jails in 2019, putting them at a higher risk for sexual abuse. While the current structure upends the lives within its walls, the criminal legal system affects people on the outside too. Nearly half of all adults living in the U.S. have had an immediate family member incarcerated for at least one night. That's approximately 113 million people. And I'm in that statistic. <laughs> one in four has had a sibling incarcerated, one in five has had a parent incarcerated, and one in 34 people has had an immediate family member spend 10 or more years in prison. Clearly, mass incarceration is far-reaching in its impact, but is locking up millions of people keeping the country safe? The simple answer is no. There's ample evidence that higher rates of incarceration don't lead to lower rates of crime. This includes violent crime, which is often called upon as a justification for locking people up. Instead, reduction in crime has been explained by factors such as increased employment, higher wages, and improved graduation rates. In other words, investments in people, not jails and prisons, leads to a decrease in crime. Despite this evidence, the United States spends roughly $81 billion each year on mass incarceration. While programs investing in housing, healthcare, education, addiction treatment, mental health, and other initiatives proven to make people safer are vastly underfunded. And that is how a eugenics program works, right? Exactly. Exactly how the program works. And, you know, as a kid, we used to call the cops and stuff pigs, right? We used to snort and go, there's a pig over there. And we'd say, hey, it smells, <laughs> we're such a little jerk. We'd say stuff like that to each other. We'd say, hey, I smell some bacon in the area, meaning there was a pig. But actually, they all are kind of pigs now, aren't they? And do keep in mind that none of these little piggies would have the clothes on their back or those expensive cars they're riding around with if they weren't constantly in an effort, full stop, 24-7, how to abuse, destroy our DNA and rob us. They do nothing but rob and steal and abuse us. And no offense to actual pigs. I really do hope actual pigs get the heck out of this place. Starch white shed. You will find a bigger piggy staring 
say that if I were to guess that certainly something like my house being <laughs> attacked by the utility company would be something that Joe Smith would likely know about. But I don't get the idea that he was the one that instigated the thing. Right? I think a list went out and I just happened to be on that list. <laughs> Somehow these psychopaths are just not fans of mine. That is just amazing to me that they just don't love and adore me. Anyway, so yeah, I don't believe that it was the people here that did it. I believe they came up with this list at the same time they were starting to put these got the smart meters installed and they came up with a list and then they decided which places were going to have the extra treatment meaning the transformers and they started putting the transformers up around some of us early 2020 and I got the extra transformer treatment recently so they are in fact little piggies horrible rotten little piggies Anyway, I'm going to close up for now. Um, I think I've said all I have to say about this. Um, I hope you understand that the rot of this country called the United States is deep. And the rot is all around us. But remember, we chose to be on this game board with these other rotten psychopaths. So play the game according to your skill level. And just remember, it is a game. They have tried to sucker punch everybody with the money trick get everybody to abuse everybody else over money and lies. Remember, it was all a big setup. If they didn't set up money, how would people be starving now, right? Money is the most evil tool they created and put in the wrong hands, they put it in everybody's hands. So everybody had the chance to do what would be the right or the wrong thing when it came to compassion for each other. And that put a lot of people at risk for making some pretty bad decisions. They put their own people in there to help people make bad decisions. I've seen several people who have had inherited money that got taken by another relative who lined up with a greedy attorney. The system is set to be exactly how it is rolling out. This is, in fact, a criminal enterprise going on. So you can dress up this pig any way you want to try to dress up the pig, but you can put a lipstick on a pig, but at the end of the day, it is still a lying, cheating, thieving, psychopathic pig. 
And for that, I say goodbye and good luck. This video is brought to you by Captivating History. The Gilded Age is often seen as a high point in America's history. Characterized by the rise of the industrialized economy after the Civil War, it was a time when American business took off on a grand scale, making several notable business people extremely wealthy. However, although the Gilded Age is remembered as a time of great affluence, it was also a time of great inequality and corruption. Even the phrase, the Gilded Age, was taken from a satirical novel by Mark Twain, published in 1873. It is supposed to imply that something that appears golden on the surface may be corrupt underneath. Shortly after the end of the American Civil War in 1865, the U.S. underwent an enormous burst of economic activity brought about by a wave of industrialization during the renewed peace. The Gilded Age normally refers to this prosperous period between 1870 and 1900, which overlaps with the latter part of the Reconstruction. While the Civil War had some devastating effects on the U.S., it also inaugurated important changes, including the spread of the telegraph and a major expansion of the railways. Within a few years of the end of the war, America also began to experience a period of major economic growth. While the industrial period had begun in Great Britain in the 18th century, America experienced its most intense period of industrial development during the late 19th century. In many ways, America had been long destined for the spectacular spurt of economic growth, blessed with a continent of valuable resources, including coal and oil and many useful agricultural products. In fact, after the war, many European investors saw the U.S. as a good bet for business, and soon a wave of money poured in from abroad. As well as attracting investors, America also went through one of its biggest ever waves of migration, which more than doubled the U.S. population. Up to this point, most Americans had roots in England, Scotland, and Wales. But the late 19th century saw many more immigrants arrive from the rest of the world, producing a much more diverse nation. As more visitors arrived and more industries expanded, the U.S. became much more urban, and many more towns and cities sprawled across the nation. This was the era of the world's first skyscrapers, when skylines began to climb higher and higher. In particular, the East Coast blossomed due to its many trading ports, and the Great Lakes region became the beating heart of the industrial boom. Chicago was one of the great cities of the age, becoming both a major railroad hub and a truly international city that attracted visitors worldwide. Cities grew off the back of new industries, and the Gilded Age is often remembered for some of its most important businessmen, many of whom became extremely wealthy at this time. The late 19th century was the age of capital, a time when private corporations rose to prominence as wealthy men invested in large-scale industries and reaped great dividends. The American colonies themselves had been partially founded by private enterprises who raised capital from their investors, giving the U.S. a strong capitalist instinct quite early in its history. The American government continued to push a pro-business stance in the 19th century, allowing private companies to develop the major infrastructure projects the nation needed. The Gilded Age presidents were often said to be remarkably unmemorable, as they, by and large, took a hands-off approach to governance. 
as industrialization produced many more opportunities for these kinds of private businesses, America ballooned into the world's foremost capitalist power. The downside of this economic boom was that the few people who had enough money to invest in large-scale business enterprises tended to buy up most of their competition. Soon, multiple large monopolies had formed, undermining the spirit of healthy competition. The most well-remembered and notorious of these large monopolies were the Rockefeller Oil Monopoly, the Vanderbilt Railroad Monopoly, and the Carnegie Steel Monopoly. Carnegie Steel later became the J.P. Morgan Steel Monopoly, after the well-known banker, which bought Carnegie out for $480 million. J.P. Morgan, in particular, was also one of the Gilded Age's most famous money men, one of the wealthy bankers who made New York exceedingly rich by investing in businesses across the U.S. While these grand businessmen are often still remembered as great American heroes or captains of industry, others describe these business moguls in less flattering terms, dubbing them the robber barons of the Gilded Age. While some of these tycoons, such as Andrew Carnegie, spent millions on philanthropic projects, most robber barons were infamously ruthless and corrupt. For example, the Wall Street and railroad mogul James Fisk was famously involved in several shady practices, from extortion to bribery to risky market manipulation. Although by 1890, the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed in an attempt to make the dangerous monopolies these men accrued illegal, the act would have little effect on the monopolies that already existed. It wasn't until the election of Teddy Roosevelt at the end of the Gilded Age in 1901 that at least some of the robber barons' power was broken. Among the most famous of the great tycoons was Cornelius Vanderbilt, a man widely disliked in his lifetime for his cunning business practices. Vanderbilt is important because he was one of the major figures behind the enormous expansion of the railroads in the U.S. The Gilded Age was the golden age of the railway, as trains remained the fastest way to move goods across large areas. In the U.S., the Transcontinental Railroad was revolutionary, as it linked the Atlantic to the Pacific for the first time. When Vanderbilt entered the railroad industry, he was already very wealthy, but he sold his previous businesses to buy up as much rail track as he could. The railroads were particularly vulnerable to being taken over by monopolies because there was a very limited amount of train tracks in any given region. Soon, Vanderbilt could charge his customers extortionate rates, confident that they had no choice but to use his businesses to transport their goods. In response to the eye-watering high fees charged by many railway companies, a collective of farmers known as the Granger Movement campaigned for fairer prices. The Granger Union would go on to have a surprisingly important afterlife, as they would inspire both the People's Party and the Greenback Party, important progressive political movements which campaigned for fairer economic conditions and more economic equality. Economic equality was a hot topic in the Gilded Age. The late 19th century saw progressive workers' movements spread across the industrialized world in a bid to give ordinary people fairer hours, better pay, and safer working conditions in factories that often used dangerous equipment. Unfortunately, many wealthy Americans increasingly believed in the theory of social Darwinism, an ideology that argues poor people deserve to be poor because they are naturally inferior. Tycoons did little to help their workers, often demanding that they work harder for longer to increase output and turn more profit. 
In response to worsening conditions, many American workers unionized, and the American Federation of Labor that organized these unions was founded in 1886. Other workers took a more radical path, joining more socialist groups and even turning towards anarchism. The U.S. government did little to help the situation, repeatedly halting legislation meant to improve working conditions. Tensions between workers and bosses led to several major disasters in the Gilded Age. In 1886, the Haymarket Riot in Chicago led to a series of deaths when workers' peaceful protest turned violent. An unidentified assailant threw a stick of dynamite into the crowd during the gathering in an attempt to hit a police officer. Shooting broke out, resulting in the deaths of many police officers and civilians. A few years later, a similar incident occurred in Pittsburgh in 1892. The so-called Homestead Strike saw a clash between a crowd of Carnegie Steelworkers and a group of private militiamen from the Pinkerton Agency, who had been hired to police the crowds. During the violence, Henry Frick, a hated industrialist who violently opposed the unions, was almost assassinated by a disgruntled anarchist. Economic inequality was not the only major social issue of the Gilded Age. It was also a terrible time for race relations. The Native Americans suffered greatly during this period. During the Dakota Gold Rush in 1876, a war broke out between the U.S. government and the Sioux Nation, resulting in the biggest campaign against the Native Americans in U.S. history. Ten years later, in 1886, the last major Native American resistance force, led by Geronimo of the Apache, was finally defeated. The Gilded Age was also a dark time for African Americans. After federal troops withdrew from the South in 1877, the African American population lost its much-needed government protection. Lynching soon became common, with angry mobs of white Southerners accusing African Americans of any manner of crimes with little to no evidence and proceeding to carry out extrajudicial executions. To make matters worse, during the Reconstruction era, the first segregation laws, or Jim Crow, were passed, making black Americans in the South second-class citizens. Although the 1875 Civil Rights Act had put some protections to prevent discrimination, the act was abolished in 1883. During this period, the enormous wave of immigration also led to a wave of nativism, a form of resentment against migrant workers. Italian and Irish immigrants were particularly picked upon, and in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act banned Chinese immigration altogether. While these workers contributed greatly to America's economic boom, many Americans feared losing out to foreign arrivals. Many immigrants in this era inevitably turned towards a growing and corrupt political phenomena, the political machine. These corrupt organizations were typically found in major cities and bought votes in exchange for favors. The most famous of these political machines was Tammany Hall in New York City, founded in 1786. It would become notorious for corruption by the late 19th century. Political machines thrived during the Gilded Age because they provided opportunities for poorer people and vulnerable migrants. Local politicians would find jobs for newcomers in their wards in exchange for their votes. Political machine bosses often helped immigrants gain their citizenship papers faster, and the jobs they created often provided better living conditions for the people living in their area. Come Election Day, these faithful patrons would vote, sometimes multiple times, for their valued protectors, securing them political power for years at a time. Although corruption, 
poor working conditions and rampant prejudice were all rife during the Gilded Age, it is also a time of great opportunity. Ultimately, the problems of the Gilded Age would lead to another great era in American history, the age of progressive politics, in which reforms rolled back the worst excesses of this grand age of wealth and expansion. To learn more about the Gilded Age, check out our book, The Gilded Age, a captivating guide to an era in American history that overlaps the Reconstruction era and coincides with parts of the Victorian era in Britain, along with the Belle Epoque in France. It's available as an ebook, paperback, and audiobook. Also, grab your free Mythology Bundle ebook while still available. All links are in the description. If you enjoyed the video, please hit the like button and subscribe for more videos like this. Okay, thank you for joining me today. It's been a scramble of this and that, but I have confidence that I have in this show what I wanted to indicate so we can take a look at how this all got started. I believe that this got started around the Civil War time. Now, granted, maybe some people were tricked into moving here before the Civil War. That's probably how it happened, right? They needed people to settle this place. So a lot of people originally, from specifically like the UK and Ireland, were their first settlers, right? And because of the missing census reports, um, census records went missing during these key times around the Civil War and whatnot, I propose that a lot of people went missing around the Civil War time. And remember, they also tricked us by saying they didn't have photography. So that's why you don't see any actual action shots taken during the war. And what I think happened was this. The clip you just heard kind of put it into a little bit better perspective because right about the Civil War, I think these robber barons took over, okay? And these are the people that founded this country that are still in control of this country. So let me play this clip now. It's called Robber Barons and the Industrial Age. Most the tyranny of a handful of men will rule business and the nation for half a century with their brilliance and blind ambition. They know no bounds, recognize no authority but their own. The people were called the robber barons by their critics, and I suppose would be called industrial titans by their admirers, were really the, the agents of the first stage of modern industrial capitalism. Uh, an enormous number of the, of the big corporations that are still a major part of American life were created in the late 19th century, most of them by very talented, very aggressive, often very ruthless individual entrepreneurs. And their achievements are extraordinary. Uh, they transformed the American economy. Uh, but they also did so very often in a very brutal harsh way, which is what led them to be called the robber barons. The most powerful of these men is J.P. Morgan, the man who finances the railroads and the rest of American industry. He has a vision of a bold new industrial nation towering over the world. 
and he makes it happen. His origins are hardly humble. His father is a rich international banker who worries over his son's often impulsive judgments. Young Morgan gets a big boost from the Civil War. He sees the conflict as a business opportunity, not a cause, and profits greatly. He'll soon control four of the six major railroads in the country. Banks, insurance companies, industrial corporations, a financial empire worth billions. At a lavish dinner party in 1900, a close associate of Andrew Carnegie convinces Morgan to buy out Carnegie's vast steel holdings. A few weeks later, Carnegie scrawls the asking price of $480 million on a piece of scrap paper. And U.S. Steel, the world's largest industrial enterprise, is created. Andrew Carnegie, unlike Morgan, had not been born with the proverbial silver spoon in his mouth. Carnegie is a genuinely self-made man. From his immigrant father, an impoverished Scottish weaver, young Carnegie learns both the value of a dollar and the importance of social justice. Working as a railroad official, Carnegie grasps a simple idea better than anyone else. You can't build railroads without rails. So he invests in iron, eventually controlling the industry. And when iron gives way to steel, he dominates that industry too. There was tremendous resentment of the way the wealthy used their wealth. That was one reason why people like Andrew Carnegie and to some degree John D. Rockefeller were such conspicuous philanthropists, because they were concerned that the wealthy class was going to become a target of national anger if they didn't legitimize themselves in some way in, in the eyes of the nation. That worked for Carnegie. He became, after having been one of the most brutal uh, steel barons of the late 19th century, he became, in the last years of his life, a sort of fuzzy, beloved philanthropist. In his Gospel of Wealth, Carnegie proclaims, This, then, is held to be the duty of the man of wealth to set an example of modest, unostentatious living, shunning display and extravagance, to consider all surplus revenues which come to him simply as trust funds, to produce the most beneficial results for the community, the man of wealth thus becoming the mere trustee and agent for his poorer brethren. <laughs> Still, many prominent citizens wonder if the growing gap between rich and poor will do lasting harm to American democracy. America is now a very different country from the nation of small farmers and merchants imagined by Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson. Little more than a hundred years after the revolution, the robber barons have transformed it into a corporate giant and made the U.S. the world power in oil, steel, finance, and communications. The hands and hearts needed to build modern America are willingly supplied by immigrants. First, Irish, Chinese, Scandinavian, and German. Then, Jewish, Russian, Italian, Greek, Polish and Lithuanian. Some are escaping the tyranny of prejudice. 
most the tyranny of poverty. 25 million people will touch our shores between 1865 and 1914. Most at New York's Ellis Island. Many arrive eager to build new lives and raise families. These greenhorns come to stay, like a young Lithuanian Jew named Pauline Newman. Of course, we came steerage. That's the bottom of the ship and three layers of bunks. Of course, you can understand that it wasn't all that pleasant when the people on the second bunk or the third bunk were ill. You had to suffer and endure not only your own misery, but the misery of the people above you. We went by wagon to my brother's apartment on Hester Street. Hester Street and Essex on the Lower East Side. We were all bewildered to see so many people coming and going and shouting. The new immigrants, men, women and children, go to work in the factories of soot-stained cities like New York and Boston. They come looking for freedom and opportunity, and they are ready to sweat for it. The hours are long, the conditions bleak, so newcomers like Rose Schneiderman challenge the owners to improve things. Rose works in a New York factory. After I had been working as a cap maker for three years, began to dawn on me that we girls needed an organization. The men had organized already and had gained some advantages, but the bosses had lost nothing as they took it out on all of us. We were helpless. No one girl dared stand up for anything alone. Matters kept getting worse. Like many immigrants, Rose Schneiderman and Pauline Newman are committed to holding America to its democratic ideals. They will become labor organizers, enduring the threats of the owners and the resistance of male workers. Turns out that women in this period really want to be organized, many of them, and in the garment industries, it turns out that they form the backbone of the what becomes the International Ladies Garment Workers Union first, and then the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union, and then a little later on, some of the textile workers unions and so on are all built out of women's organizing. Between 1881 and 1905 alone, 37,000 strikes involving 7 million workers. And I will add, during the same time period, they were installing all of those mental institutions. <laughs> In virtually every industry, rock the country. The owners win battle after battle, often with the help of the police and the National Guard. It will take decades. But courage and conviction will eventually transform labor conditions and the lives of working people throughout America. Gould with his 70 millions was one of the colossal failures of our time. He was a purely selfish man. His greed consumed his charity. He was like death and hell, gathering in all, giving back nothing. These were words spoken at a sermon shortly after Jay Gould's death. And oh, wait a minute, that <laughs> Sorry. Um, that clipped into another show. 
25 million people will touch our shores between 1865 and 1914. Most at New York's Ellis Island. Keep those dates in mind, 1865. Also dates they built all those mental institutions. Also dates that a lot of children became stolen and shipped around this country to populate the labor force. Many arrive eager to build new lives and raise families. These greenhorns come to stay, like a young Lithuanian Jew named Pauline Newman. Of course, we came steerage. That's the bottom of the ship and three layers of bunks. Oh, of I'm course, sorry. we can understand that Men, women, and children go to work in the factories of soot-stained cities like New York and Boston. They long, the conditions bleak. So newcomers like Rose Schneider, working as a cat maker for three years, Sherman <laughs> and Pauline Newman are committed to holding America to its democratic of the what becomes 37,000 strikes involving 7 million workers in virtually every industry. Yeah, that's where I was before. Okay, so all of these workers start striking, right? They're having a hard time finding labor. What do they do when they have a hard time finding labor? Well, what did they do during Vietnam when they were having a hard time um, getting soldiers to ship over there to the Vietnam War? Well, they recruited the most vulnerable people. So keep those dates in mind because they started the mental institutions then and they started loading up children on trains and shipping. And I, I believe the majority of those children were stolen from immigrants. Rock the country. The owners win battle after battle, often with the help of the police and the National Guard. It will take decades, but courage and conviction will eventually transform labor conditions and the lives of working people throughout America. Until, <laughs> dun dun dun. <laughs> yeah, uh, they, 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 I've been saying for years, they do not understand who we are, so they always try the most ruthless type of behavior, then they back off for a bit, then they keep people happy for a bit, and then they are doing insanely abusive things like putting children, actual living children, on trains and shipping them around this country. That is who these people essentially are. They will send a handicapped person off to war, they'll put a children unattended on a train, and they will ship them all over the place just so that they can somehow, somehow benefit financially. Doesn't matter how they get there. They want that money. And sadly, they've gotten a lot of people to model the very same behavior. The orphan trains, which happened to happen exactly around the same time as the Civil War, the robber bears, and all of that, just so happened to happen at the exact, happened, happen, I keep saying happen, <laughs> at the exact same time. And this shows of the ruthless nature. Now remember, I've done shows about this. The orphans, they claimed they were orphans. I believe they were mainly stolen children of immigrants. They put these children pretty much unattended on trains, shipped them around the country, and they saw this as a, it's always evil coming packages help, right? This was the United States' first idea 
of how to handle child welfare to help these kids out, right? Anywhere from 10,000 to 30,000 orphan children lived in New York City. Charles Brace had a solution. Send these orphans by train to small towns across America and put them up for adoption. Over the course of 75 years, the orphan trains brought more than 200,000 abandoned children to new homes. In 1848, Charles Loring Brace arrived in New York on a mission to aid New York's poor immigrant population. After graduating Divinity School, Reverend Brace worked at the Five Points Mission, a charitable organization in one of the city's poorest neighborhoods that also became a home for its orphans. And where did all these little orphan children go to? Well, none other than the little cities and towns built all around this country that were set up with, who? now repeat after me, a pastor, a policeman, a banker, see how it all worked, and a doctor. And then they shipped these poor innocent children to all of those towns, and the, on those towns, the trains would stop, and people would come out and literally pick out anything from an infant to a full-grown child to help them on the farm. This is who these people are, and this is how they settled this country. Open children. In 1853, Brace founded the Children's Aid Society, an organization still active today. New York had as many as 30,000 orphans, almost 6% of the entire population of the city. But at the time, the label of orphan didn't just apply to the parentless. Some families just couldn't take care of their children in the harsh conditions of New York slums. Many of these orphans were children of recent immigrants who, if they could find jobs, were forced to take dangerous, low-paying work. Dying on the job was not uncommon. Dying at home was also not uncommon. These immigrants mostly lived in cramped, unsanitary tenements where disease easily spread. Their children could be orphaned if one parent died and the other couldn't care for them. Sometimes both living parents gave up their children simply because they didn't have the resources to ensure their survival. Reverend Brace recognized that the best chance for those orphans was not in the asylums and juvenile prisons where they were normally sent, but with actual families. So, under the Children's Aid Society, he hatched a plan. Orphaned, homeless children at least six years old, which was considered working age, would be placed on trains heading out to America's farmlands. The hope was that they would be adopted by new families and grow up in a more peaceful, rural setting, away from the dangers of the city. The first orphan train left in 1854. 42 children bound for apple-picking country in Michigan. All orphan trains were supervised by a Western agent who was responsible for picking the small towns where the children had the best chance of being adopted. The agent would bombard the town with advertising banners and pamphlets announcing the orphans' arrival and their availability for adoption. On the day the orphans arrived, interested families would gather at the town hall, courthouse, or theater to inspect the potential adoptees. Children were placed on a stage or elevated platform, physically put up for adoption. They were poked and prodded, examined thoroughly for their health and physical capabilities. Once potential parents made their selections and the selection committee of prominent townsfolk approved, the orphans were handed over. Families were only allowed to take one child, so any siblings traveling together would almost always become separated. Any children left over would move on to the next town. In their new homes, the freshly adopted orphans were encouraged to forget their past lives in New York completely, and in some cases, adopt the religious beliefs of their new families. 
Most learned farming skills, but some families treated their new children more as indentured servants, sometimes accompanied by abuse, which often went unchecked by the Children's Aid Society. So, what happened to these orphan-trained children? Like their childhoods, their adulthoods varied. The program produced many successes, including two future governors who traveled on the same orphan train. But the notorious outlaw Billy the Kid also rode west on an orphan train. In 1910, a survey concluded that 87% of the orphans had done well, although the term done well was not clearly defined. The orphan train ceased operating in the 1920s, as federal, local, and state governments enacted new child labor laws and assumed control for the care of orphan children. But the work of Charles Brave and the Children's Aid Society lives on. The program helped lay the groundwork for America's modern foster care system tasked with caring for more than 400,000 children today. Well, let me see. The American Heart Association got founded by the seed oil business. Um, inflaming our hearts became a major focus on them. So they paid off a Harvard um, guy. I think he was paid $50,000 to lie to us and tell us that sugar wasn't a problem. Well, 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 I would contend these same people are in charge today. So that's why they went to such an effort to hide the fact that they're all a bunch of psychopaths. That is my view for the day. So goodbye for now and be safe out there. For years, a reign of terror rips through a community of the Osage tribe 50 miles north of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Native Americans are dying mysteriously. There's no shortage of suspects. In fact, it seems like a systematic murder plot. In the early 1870s, the American government drives the Osage from Kansas to the seemingly worthless terrain of the Oklahoma Territory. Decades later, they discover oil. The Osage become the wealthiest people per capita in the world. Just in 1923 alone, the tribe earns, in today's money, $400 million. My mother told me that her father had uh, seven cars. Then they go from being the richest to the most murdered people per capita in the world. There were people here come to kill Osages for the money. There was so much corruption, you can't even imagine. And everybody was in on it. Too many are, are dying. There's, there's something going on here. This rare and amazing film comes from home movies taken by the Osage chief's daughter and her husband, most likely the first and only Native Americans to own a film camera. It captures life in Pahuska, Oklahoma in the early 1920s, a time of wealth and then murder. 
The Osage each get oil shares worth millions. They have houses, multiple cars, new wardrobes. And then, one by one, the number of unsolved murders grows. 60 or more, maybe hundreds of Osage are killed from 1918 to 1931. Tell us who some of the people are in this picture. Okay, this is my grandfather, Raymond Redcorn Sr. And this is my grandfather, Clarence Gray. That's my mother's uh, father. Catherine Redcorn is an Osage and her family suspects her grandfather is a victim. There's a woman that come from uh, Kansas City who married my grandfather and that was her main goal was to uh, have him murdered. We never did prove, well, my dad said they never did prove that she murdered him, but there wasn't anything wrong with him and then he just suddenly died. And there was a lot of poisoning things going on too, people poisoning people. The wife's share of the oil rights is worth, in today's dollars, 16 million. Do you know whatever happened to her? No. Kind of disappeared. She just disappeared, like a lot of them did. The government requires the Osage to have guardians, usually white attorneys or businessmen, to oversee the money. I tell you, that was the biggest ripoff of the tribe and they are at the White House in this picture. Right. Mm -hmm. The Osage travel to Washington and ask for help. The 1924 Indian Rights Act describes the situation as an orgy of graft and exploitation. I think another one at one time said, you know, we have this wealth and you won't let us have it, and yet you have people to watch over us and you treat us like children. It's insulting. It was insulting. These are our proud people. Garrett Hartness is the director of the Osage Historical Museum. While the Red Corn death is one of many mysteries that may never be solved, Hartness is cataloging one family story that does offer some answers. It's chronicled in the best-selling book, Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran, which is being made into a movie by Martin Scorsese. The murders surround the family of Molly Burkhart. Her sister, Anna, is found in the woods, shot in the head. A home explodes, killing her sister, Rita, Rita's husband and their servant. Their mother, Lizzie, is poisoned. Molly is poisoned too, but survives. They did think that this was not normal, that too many young people were dying or people, you know, suspiciously. But they couldn't really do anything because people that they were interviewed uh, were involved in all of this. The Bureau of Investigation sends in agents who are looking for clues in cases that may be four years old. Records disappear. It seems there's a network behind this murder spree, but who is the mastermind and who can these agents trust? J. Edgar Hoover brings in agent Tom White in 1925. White doesn't trust the locals and recruits agents to go undercover. Why did the young J. Edgar Hoover want someone like Tom White on this case? 
Pahuska, even in the 1920s, with all the oil going on and everything like that, he was one of the roughest places in the country. I mean, you had all these little oil gold towns, and listen, you had the worst of the worst, the card sharks, the, yeah. the drinkers, the robbers, the all of it. And White was a... An old cowboy. He was an old cowboy type. And this was like, in a way, going back to the Old West. Another old cowboy, William Hale. He's a cattleman who is well-liked here in Pahuska. They call him King of the Osage Hills. His nephew, Ernest, is Molly's husband. They promised to help Tom White find the killers. The strategy? Follow the money. And there were 25 to 35 Osages dying a year. Per year? Per year. But a lot of them between the ages of 18 to 42. You know, that's, that's a lot. As more Osage turn up dead, their land and wealth transfers to their guardians, who are local lawyers and businessmen. Was the one that you know got her there and helped her out of the Partners car. is putting together a collection of the conspiracy at the Osage Historical Museum. So these are the three that were killed. Her house was blown up, the mom was poisoned, and Anna was shot. The network of assassins includes petty criminals who use explosives, guns, and poison. They answer to one man who is the mastermind, the king of the Osage Hills, William Hale. William Hale would have been a narcissist. It was all about him. He put on a good and show. People seem to oh, like him. Sure, and narcissists do. He's the good old guy. And uh, when it, you know, first was arrested and went into trial, you know, people just couldn't believe it. Hale and accomplice Kelsey Morrison are convicted in the shooting of Molly's sister, Anna. Also going to prison, Molly's husband, Ernest, who confesses to the conspiracy. Ernest got really scared. And I think somewhere in there, he must have realized that he was the patsy in all of this, you know, that he was the fall guy. I think it became a shock to her there at the very end when, you know, he finally just, it all came out. Are there whites pretending to love their wives or husbands just to get the money? Was this all a charade? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was even some of uh, Hale's schemes, was getting people to uh, marry into these, some of these families so that then, you know, it was another tap into that vein of wealth. Did the mysterious deaths among the Osage during the 1920s include 60 murders? Could it be hundreds? But no way to know for sure. This may escape history. Who was murdered? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know that they'll ever truthfully know. So the wider conspiracy, the FBI really did not solve. Is that accurate? I would say, yeah, they didn't. As far as they knew, pretty much the FBI was done. Those generations are gone and very sad. And this is my grandfather so there will be no definitive answer about the grandfather of Catherine Redcorn uh, this is one of my favorites yeah the, these guys are brothers and one's really traditional and the other one's oh, gone off wow. to probably to Carlisle <laughs> permission is cataloging the Osage with this yeah. picture project 
I feel bad about that for, for Osage people. Have they recovered or are they still impacted by that? Well, I think that it has an effect on, on, uh, on people, the way, the way that uh, our people were treated. What concerns you the most about that? Well, that we might lose our identity as, as Osage people. And uh, I think that would be bad. I think that uh, uh, you know, you you know, you know your family, you know who who fits where, and you know, and that that really makes a difference. Some people, like Molly Burkhart, can't bear to preserve the memories. She cuts out the face of her former husband Ernest from all her pictures, like this one with their two children. She later remarries. In 1934, the government finally declares her competent to handle her own fortune as any other U.S. citizen. Molly dies two years later. The trail of evidence fades over the decades, a haunting memory for descendants. The wealth just brought a lot of sadness and everything. The old timers would say, this dividing up our reservation and this oil will be the ruination of our people. And once we don't have the oil anymore, then we will have happiness again. They just wanted a place to exist and enjoy the old ways. All the oil men came in here, like, you know, Skelly and Getty and the Phillips, you know, and, and they made money and they lived in fine homes and, you know, drove fine cars. but. Their family members weren't murdered. In 1925, Congress passed a law prohibiting non-Osage from inheriting oil rights from the Osage. Decades later, the tribe sued over mismanagement of oil funds by the U.S. government and in 2011 settled for $380 million, a lot of money, but some Osage say it's a fraction of what they lost. Coming up next on Backstory, we look at the FBI files of the famous, including NFL legend George Hallis and the Native American team that took on the NFL champs. A group of Roman Catholic nuns started the New York Foundling Hospital, a medical and care center for abandoned infants. The sisters chose to follow the example of the Children's Aid Society in seeking new homes for the babies. What the Sisters of Charity did in 1869, uh, many years later than the orphan trains beginning with the Children's Aid Society, was they set a basket out, a cradle, if you will, and any mother could leave a child she could no longer care for with no questions asked. And they started sending children out on their own version of the orphan trains. Uh, those were called the mercy trains or baby trains because they focused on younger children. And you essentially ordered a child from the New York Foundling Hospital. The New York Foundling Hospital had a little bit more of a family-oriented selection process where they would write in, the families would write into the orphanage and say, I want a blue-eyed, blonde-haired boy. And they would get a blue-eyed, 
blonde-haired boy. Yeah, it was like ordering a child out of a catalog. In my mother's case, um, what they did is they applied for uh, a girl around the age of two with brown hair and brown eyes. And, and that is the way the foundlings children were handled. Identification tags were sewn into the foundling children's clothing to ensure they reached the proper family when arriving at a busy train station. They later shifted to placing numbers on the children. The Children's Aid Society typically tried to name a local committee to screen applicants for suitability prior to a train's arrival in their town. The foundling home instead asked a local priest to help find ideal parents for a child. A political assassination triggered one of the biggest mass killings in history, the Rwandan genocide. On April 7, 1994, a government-backed campaign of mass killings started in Rwanda. The aim was the ethnic cleansing of an empowered minority group. Hutu extremists massacred hundreds of thousands of ethnic Tutsis and their Hutu sympathizers. In the next three minutes, we'll briefly cover how the genocide unfolded and look at how Tutsi-Hutu hate was fostered by colonialism. Within a span of 100 days, at least 800,000 people were killed in the most rapid genocide ever recorded. During this period, six people were murdered every minute. Dead bodies were piled up on roadsides as people were encouraged to kill their neighbors, women were raped, and even the lives of children were not spared. The killing spread to all corners of the country and the violence unfolded before the eyes of the international media. This is what so much of Rwanda has been turned into. Houses, villages deserted, every few yards a dead body and everywhere, the stench of death. The world knew what was happening, but Rwandans were left alone by the international community to face this dark chapter in their history. But the ethnic divide and hatred that fueled the genocide did not come from nowhere. It has its roots in Rwanda's colonial history. Rwanda is a small country, nearly five times smaller than New York State. It was colonized by Germany and Belgium and then gained independence in 1962. In 1994, its population was estimated at 7 million. 85% was from the Hutu ethnic group, 14% Tutsi, and 1% Twa. Hutus and Tutsis are two distinct ethnic groups, but they have a lot in common. They speak the same language, live in the same areas, and adhere to similar traditions. But disagreements between the majority Hutus and minority Tutsis had grown substantially since the colonial period. When Belgian colonists arrived in 1916, they radicalized the differences between the two groups. They established an official register classifying Rwandans according to their ethnicity and pushed racist theories of the supposed genetic superiority of Tutsis. They classified people according to stereotypical physical features and everyone was given a racial identity card based on these classifications. These pictures of a Belgian specialist in the 1930s show how craniofacial and body measurements were done to ethnically classify Rwandans. Later, these classifications became instrumental in identifying and killing Tutsis during the genocide. The Belgians favored Tutsis and considered them to be closer to Europeans and superior to the Hutus, guaranteeing them better jobs and educational opportunities. This discrimination gradually led to resentment among the Hutus, culminating in a series of riots, killings, and the mass exodus of Tutsis to neighboring countries. After Rwandan independence in 1962, Hutus won the country's first elections, reversing the power dynamic. The regime that followed was staunchly Hutu nationalist, and in the following decades, periodic violence continued. In 1990, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, RPF, 
a rebel army mostly comprised by Tutsi exiles, started launching attacks from Uganda, with the aim of replacing the Hutu-led government. In 1993, after a period of conflict, a peace accord was signed between Rwandan President Juvenal Habyarimana and the RPF, but the agreement failed to stop the violence, as many on both sides disagreed with it. The events of April 6, 1994 were the final nail in the coffin. President Habyarimana, a Hutu, was killed when his plane was shot down in the capital Kigali. Although responsibility for the attack was never confirmed, extremist Hutus saw this as an opportunity. The Rwandan Presidential Guard immediately initiated a campaign of retribution. The slaughtering of Tutsis and moderate Hutus began. Extremist Hutus, known as the Akazu, managed to take over key positions of the government and initiate ethnic cleansing throughout Rwanda. Hutu militias, inter Ahamwe, went village by village, slaughtering Tutsis with guns and machetes. Citizens were encouraged to join and militias used a radio station to exhort people to go out and kill their neighbors. The human cost was huge, bodies lined the streets, hundreds of thousands of children were orphaned, and a hunger crisis struck refugees and the displaced. The genocide had ended with the RPF overthrow of the Hutu regime in July of 1994, but it left a lasting impact that spilled over to neighboring countries. The United States actively discouraged the UN Security Council from authorizing a more robust deployment. In April 1994, UN peacekeepers on the ground were reduced to a mere 260 after peacekeepers were killed. And even when the violence escalated, the deployment of further forces was delayed due to US Army resistance over matters of cost. Years after the Rwandan genocide, former US President Bill Clinton admitted that his failure to act in Rwanda was the biggest regret of his presidency, and that if troops were sent to Rwanda sooner, 300,000 lives may have been saved. In August 2015, United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon addressed allegations of sexual abuse by UN peacekeepers. He called the abuses a cancer in the system. A number of reports concerning sexual exploitation occurred in the Central African Republic, which is currently undergoing a civil war. But what are UN peacekeepers even doing in the middle of an active war zone? What exactly do UN peacekeepers do? Well, originally, peacekeeping forces were established to do just that, keep the peace after a ceasefire or resolution was established in international conflict. This was especially important during the Cold War, where a neutral party was necessary to avoid a small conflict sparking World War III. The first peacekeeping mission was in 1948, when the UN forces were sent to observe and oversee the Armistice Agreement following the Arab-Israeli War. This mission and others that soon followed involved primarily unarmed troops so as to avoid the potential for hostilities. The first deployment of armed forces was during the Suez Crisis of 1956. UN peacekeepers helped US and Soviet troops force Israeli, French, and British invaders out of Egypt. It took until the 1960s, however, for the peacekeepers to take on the role of armed peace enforcers. While the UN was working in the Congo, a coup against the first democratically elected Congolese leader led to his assassination. In response, UN peacekeepers had to keep mercenaries out of the country by use of armed force. This was called the Blue Helmets' First War, named for the blue helmets peacekeepers wear. Peacekeepers are not simply an enforcement tool to implement the UN's wishes, but rather an impartial force designated to solve conflicts at the consent of all parties involved. 
Additionally, the United Nations doesn't recruit and train these forces on its own. Rather, UN member states from across the world contribute troops, police, and military experts. Bangladesh contributes more personnel than any other country with roughly 8,500 total members. Ethiopia contributes roughly 1,000 more troops, but fewer personnel overall. India and Pakistan also provide nearly 8,000 members each. In fact, the majority of peacekeepers come from the developing world. By comparison, the United States provides only about 80 peacekeepers total. Many countries benefit from contributing peacekeepers as troops are often better paid. Additionally, UN peacekeepers are in a considerably safer position than most regular military personnel. But despite all the good they bring, the United Nations has long been marred by sexual abuse scandals. A 1996 UN study showed that children become victims of prostitution at a higher rate when UN peacekeepers arrive. In countries like the Congo and Kosovo, UN peacekeepers take advantage of post-conflict regions to either use prostitutes or even rape and torture unsuspecting victims. Many say that despite the UN pushing for prosecution of those offenders, it's not nearly enough to effectively stop the practice. Today, there are 16 active peacekeeping missions and 120 contributing nations. With roughly 100,000 personnel and a budget of over $8 billion, the UN peacekeepers have become an integral force in global diplomatic efforts. The United Nations is a massive organization involving 193 member nations. To learn more about the structure of the UN and how it operates, check out our video here. The Assembly meets annually in September and debates issues on security and diplomacy. In 2015, the major topic is climate change and helping developing countries face the threat of global warming. Thanks for watching Test Tube News, everyone. Make sure to like and subscribe for new videos every day. Almost 10 years ago, disaster rocked the already impoverished nation of Haiti. The earthquake left hundreds of thousands of people dead and injured. Now, United Nations peacekeepers, there to help, are accused of adding to the harm. A study claims they fathered hundreds of babies, then abandoned the young mothers, some only children themselves. We had plenty of stories of peacekeepers engaging with, with young, young girls and young women under the age of 18, which um, is, of course, as, as we all know, statutory rape. Her research found evidence of peacekeepers allegedly trading food and money for sex. One woman even told researchers, I see a series of females, 12 and 13 years old here, Peacekeepers impregnated and left them in misery with babies in their hands. Haiti's government called the report's findings distressing and deplorable. The UN said allegations against peacekeepers there have been generally declining since 2013. It said it remains committed to addressing and resolving cases of sexual exploitation and abuse committed by its personnel and supporting victims and their families. But the UN will not always be aware of abuses carried out by its peacekeepers around the world. What you're talking about in those situations is asking sometimes children, 14, 15 year olds, 
who are in very vulnerable, precarious situations themselves to come forward to an international organisation that is in league with their government, that often does not literally speak their language in any meaningful sense, um, and report somebody who is in a position of power over them and over their lives. In Haiti, the UN says it's providing support to 32 babies conceived by peacekeepers. But this latest research suggests the number of victims is much higher. Deborah Haynes, Sky News. I don't care if you think I'm Satan reincarnated. The fact is, you can't look at that television and say, nothing happened on 6th. The peacekeeping force deployed by the United Nations has come under increasing scrutiny in recent years. That's due in no small part to allegations of sexual abuse by troops deployed in countries like the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the Central African Republic. A new investigation by the Associated Press finds the problem of sexual abuse and exploitation by peacekeepers is wider and even more disturbing than previously known. Hari Srinivasan has the story from our New York studios. The AP found nearly 2,000 allegations of abuse and exploitation in the past 12 years. More than 300 of those cases involved children. And since the U.N. cannot punish peacekeepers from other countries, only a fraction of the alleged perpetrators served jail time. The AP also spoke with officials in 23 countries who had troops serving as peacekeepers and were accused of these violations. Trish Wilson is the international investigations editor who oversaw the AP story. Ms. Wilson, thanks for joining us. How did you come upon uh, the investigations that were underway by the UN? Well, earlier last year, there was a lot of reporting out of Congo and the Central Africa Republic about another wave of allegations against uh, UN peacekeepers. So we decided to take a look at uh, the numbers going back to 2004 when the first wave of uh, allegations came out against peacekeepers. And that's what got us started. From there, we just kind of, we just counted the number of allegations per year that the U.N. had reported. Hey, you've zoomed in on Haiti and started to look at a, a, almost a, a pattern of behavior here. Uh, what happened there? Haiti has, has been singled out as being a country where a lot of these abuses have occurred, an unusually high number given the total of 2,000. So we just, we just went to look and see what we could find out in Haiti. We compiled the numbers. We found 150 cases. We found a lot of cases involving children. And as we were doing the reporting, the, our, we have a team in Haiti, and we sent an, our investigative reporter, Paisley Dodds, to Haiti. And uh, eventually we stumbled across this uh, internal report investigative report from the UN which chronicled this amazing tale um, of children that were in a sex ring that was um, abused and were abused by UN peacekeepers over a three-year period. It was nine children abused by 134 UN peacekeepers. As these children were paid sometimes, what, a few pennies or a dollar at a time for sex acts? Yes, it was uh, as low as seven. There was food, yogurt, juice given to the children. Uh, who were hungry, and that's why they did this. Uh, we saw the, the, the lowest amount we, we found was 75 cents, and the highest amount was $20. On the one hand, uh, the UN conducts what you call a thorough investigation, but then what happens after that? 
You know, that's what's curious. It was really a very good investigation by the U.N. They looked, they went to the children, they made sure that the children were not making it up. The children actually spoke Sinhalese, which is, which was very telling. They, they showed pic pictures of a thousand peacekeepers to the children, and the children identified various locations where they had sex with these, or were forced to have sex, or lured into having sex by these mm -hmm. peacekeepers. So it was really quite, quite a good investigation. What happened after that investigation is what typically happens at the U.N. and is one of the reasons why this is such an important study or case study. It's, uh, the, the problem is that the, the U.N. is in a legal bind. It, as you said when you, when you opened the segment, it does not have jurisdiction over any of these countries. So the deal is, here's our investigative report. Now it's time for Sri Lanka to come in and take a look at this report. And in this case, Sri Lanka did. 114 of the soldiers were sent home. But... What happened after that is anybody's guess. There's no accountability. There are no names of any of these people. And nobody ever went to jail. So if you can imagine, these kinds of, of corroborated crimes against children over a three-year period corroborated by a U.N. investigative team, and then nothing happens. And, and you, you point out that there were... Uh, you said that some of these students or some of these children uh, were speaking Sinhalese, which is one of the languages spoken in Sri Lanka, and mm -hmm. how would they have known it if they hadn't been in touch with um, these, these um, uh, peacekeepers? Uh, there were other countries as well involved, and it's happening in other parts of the world. Yes, yeah. there have been allegations all, all over the world. I mean, this particular story focused on Haiti, but we are looking at... Um, we are doing a, a series. This is the first in a series that looks at what's been going on with UN peacekeepers. So there have been, sure, problems in Central Africa Republic, problems in Congo with UN peacekeepers, as well as hey, other what's, places. What's been the reaction from the, uh, from the United Nations to this? Well, they say that they're very concerned. They do not think that this is acceptable. They seem to want... They have announced yet another wave of reforms. Um, but these reforms are very similar to what they announced in 2004, when the first wave of allegations uh, became public. So the question is, well, how do you fix this? I mean, is this okay? Can we really pay for peacekeepers to go abroad to protect people and instead have this litany of appalling abuse against the very civilians they're sent to protect? No. Trish Wilson from the Associated Press, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
I was struggling to put it together, finally got it together. I have this kid that does the uploading. Well, <laughs> let the chaos ensue. So then several of the files got jumbled. <laughs> Attention to details is a pretty key thing in life. But anyway, so moving on. So a few of the files got jumbled. I don't listen to the show until after it's been uploaded. So a few hours after it's been uploaded, I'm getting to the end and I'm thinking, well, why is he playing the intro music at the end? <laughs> so anyways, always a new solution, right? So I have another young gentleman who, um, young person who understands audio. So he is, he has compiled the files in the correct order. So what I'm going to be doing is a quick overview here because this whole thing about the United States is, in fact, about eugenics, okay? And everything that I will be sharing with you in the files today will back up everything I've been saying, but in their own words, because I wanted to capture what they had to say about these things, okay? Because I have covered all of these things from the orphan trains to all of that in different shows. So anything I'm talking about today, you will be able to find a show about it in more detail. But I have discovered the time and when these people took charge. So first, a quick over, because they took, they took charge at a very specific time. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. So I'm going to be first, before the show starts playing, I'm just going to give you, I love timelines. So I'm going to give you a quick overview, okay? Eugenics, the set of beliefs and practices which aims at improving the genetic quality of the human population played a significant role in the history and culture of the United States from the late 19th century to the mid 20th century. The cause became increasingly promoted by intellectuals of the progressive era. And I will be talking about the progressive era in this timeline I'll be going over in just in a minute here. So while it has been about improving genetic quality. It has been argued that eugenics was more about preserving the position of the dominant groups of the population. 
so I believe this is true. It's about them preserving their position as the dominant group because that group is an all-white group, right? Scholarly research has determined that people who found themselves targets of the eugenics movement were those who were seen as unfit for society, the poor, the disabled, the mentally ill, and specifically communities of color, and a disproportionate number of those who fell victim to eugenics sterilization initiatives were women who were, ident who, who were identified as African American, Asian American, or Native American. As a result, the United States eugenics movement is now generally associated with racist and nativist elements as the movement was to some extent a reaction to demographic and population changes as well as concerns over the economic and social well-being rather than scientific genetics. So it became a matter of poor and this color of your skin. The American eugenics movement was rooted in the biological determination ideas of Sir Francis Elton, which originated in the 1880s. Put that number in your hat. In 1883, Sir Francis Galton first used the word eugenics to describe scientifically the biological improvement of genes in human races and the concept of being well-born. He believed that differences in a person's ability were acquired primarily through genetics and that eugenics could be implemented through selective breeding in order for the human race to improve in its overall quality, therefore allowing for humans to direct their own evolution. In the U.S., eugenics was largely supported after the discovery of Mendel's Law, led to a widespread interest in the idea of breeding for specific traits. Galton studied the upper classes of Britain and arrived at the conclusion that their social position could be attributed to a superior genetic makeup. American eugenicists tended to believe in the genetic superiority of Nordic, Germanic, and Anglo-Saxon peoples, supported strict immigration and anti-miscrimination laws and supported the forcible sterilization of the poor, disabled, and immoral. So, um, the American and disease names will come up later. The American eugenics movement received extensive funding from various corporate foundations, including the Carnegie Institution, Rockefeller Foundation, and the Harriman Railroad Fortune. In 1906, J. H. Kellogg provided funding to help to found the Race Race Betterment Foundation in Battle Creek, Michigan. The Eugenics Record Office, or ERO, was founded in Cold Springs Harbor, New York in 1911 by the renowned biologist Charles B. Davenport, using money from both the Harriman Railroad Fortune and the Carnegie Institution. As late as the 1920s, the ERO was one of the leading organizations in the American eugenics movement. That's the ERO, Eugenics Record Office. In years to come, the ERO and the American Eugenics Society collected a mass of family pedigrees and provided training for eugenics field workers who were sent to analyze individuals at various institutions, 
such as mental hospitals and orphanage institutions across the United States. Eugenicists such as Davenport, the psychologist Henry Goddard, Harry Laughlin, and the conservationist Madison Grant, all of whom were well respected during their time, began to lobby for various solutions to the problem of the unfit. Davenport favored immigration restriction and sterilization as primary methods. Goddard favored segregation. Grant favored all of the above and more, even entertaining the idea of extermination. By 1910, there was a large and dynamic network of scientists, reformers, and professionals engaged in national eugenics projects and actively promoting eugenics legislation. The American Breeders Association, the first eugenic body in the United States, expanded in 1906 to include a specific eugenics committee under the direction of Charles B. Davenport. The American Breeders Association, or ABA, was formed specifically to investigate and report on hereditary in the human race and emphasize the value of superior blood and the menace to society of inferior blood. Membership included Alexander Graham Bell, Stanford President David Starr Jordan, and Luther Burbank. The American Association for the Study and Prevention of Infant Mortality was one of the first organizations to begin investigating infant mortality rates in terms of eugenics. They promoted government intervention in attempts to promote the health of future citizens. Several feminist reformers advocated an agenda of eugenics legal reform. And there's a lot of them there, all these movements. Um, And the one that came out of the group close to the United Nations is the National League of Women Voters. They're the first uh, feminist groups. All these feminist groups were... um, well, colluded with their people. One of the most famous feminist groups to champion the eugenics agenda was Margaret Sanger, the leader of the American birth control movement and founder of Planned Parenthood. Right now, today, Planned Parenthood is dishing out hormones to kids on their very first visit. Go into Planned Parenthood, Tell them you want to be a boy if you're a girl and you will walk out with a prescription and a bunch of drugs in your hands. That's who these people are. Sanger saw birth control as a means to prevent unwanted children from being born into a disadvantaged life and incorporated the language of eugenics to advance the movement. Sanger also sought to discourage the reproduction of persons who, it was believed, would pass on mental disease or serious physical defects. That was Sanger. Um, so yeah, that is how, um, that was the founding theories, right? All the founding people that start all this industry and stuff. Well, who are these people? Well, I'm wandering there. I'll get there in a second, okay? I have been rotating around New Orleans for a very long time, Louisiana. And something happened about this time, okay? And you'll understand why I'm going there in a minute, okay? Because there's this group that became identified as the robber barons, okay? Ruthless group of businessmen that came out of this whole thing. And I believe that was a group that took over and took charge. 
the robber barons, okay? But they didn't just become known. They became known by that name in the early 1800s. But that doesn't mean they just start operating in the 1800s, right? <laughs> I believe they start operating around this point in New Orleans. Because New Orleans has all of that past with all those people coming in. The immigration through New Orleans was lock, lots of loss of paperwork. Who knows where all those people that came in through New Orleans went to, right? I think a lot of the people from New Orleans ended up in um, Galveston, Texas. And what happened to all those people? Well, <laughs> who knows, right? Because the history of New Orleans traces the city's development. Because always follow the money, right? I found the first use of French money being used in New Orleans. And I talked about this oh, a few years ago, okay? The first money I found being used was being used in New Orleans. And it was called Dick's money. D-I-X, okay? Dick's money. Always follow the money, right? So the first history of money that I have found so far is Dick's money coming out of New Orleans, right? Louisiana. Louisiana, I found a whole lot of other stuff there, but I've done complete shows about it, okay? So the history of New Orleans traces the city's development from its founding by the French in 1718 through its period of Spanish control, then briefly back to French rule before being acquired by the United States in the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. During the War of 1812, the last major battle was the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. Throughout the 19th century, New Orleans was the largest port in the southern United States, exporting most of the nation's cotton output and other farm products to Western Europe and New England. And those boats were then bringing people back. Okay, so... Lots of lots of money going out in goods, which you want to pay attention to, right? Kind of a red flag with these people, money. So lots of goods going out of New Orleans and also lots of people coming back because they were loading those boats up with people for the return trip, selling them cheap steerage because they needed bodies in those boats to balance them out coming back empty, right? So, um, so yeah, that was going on in New Orleans, right? And then... Um, Right there at that juncture, as the largest city in the South at the start of the Civil War, Civil War was 1861 to 1865. It was an early target for capture by Union forces. With its rich and unique culture, anyway, so yeah, that was New Orleans. So think about this, okay? Easy target for capture by Union forces. So what was going on in New Orleans at that time that somebody had to capture them, right? So 1861, 1865 is a Civil War. And remember, they do not have pictures, any battle pictures of the Civil War. They just have pictures of the so-called dead bodies left afterward because they claimed they couldn't take any action shots. <laughs> well, that was just lazy, right? So... And right at that time, because the Civil War ended in 1865, and then right around that time, there was a big wipeout of people. And that happened in Galveston. It was a 1900 Atlantic hurricane season. It left between 6,000 and 12,000 fatalities. And Galveston, at that time, was supposed to be the biggest center 
for the United States as far as the money and stuff, right? So why did Galveston get wiped out right there at 1900, right? And also by a hurricane. <laughs> well, we know who created the hurricane, right? So, yeah, all those people coming into New Orleans, I believe a lot of them got shipped over to Galveston. A lot of them, because they've only found about 8% of the African population in this country really came from Africa, because they're kind of tripping themselves up with those DNA kits, right? Because I believe, yeah, people came on boat from different countries as slaves. I'm not saying that didn't happen. What I'm saying likely happened was those boats went in all kinds of different directions, right? Because any of those boats coming in through New Orleans had very high likelihood of not being kept track of whoever was on those boats, right? <laughs> and I, I did whole shows about this, about how they were keeping records during New Orleans. So yeah, and any money being shipped out by those boats was also not being probably highly kept track of, right? So we're looking at that date. So then why in 1900, the strongest storm of the 1900 Atlantic hurricane season? Interesting date, right? So then I was looking, now, now I put together this little timeline, now that I've kind of given you some where, I'm, where I've been thinking about. So I started looking at hospitals. When did they start all these things, right? So... And I've talked about all these, but I'm just going to give you a little timeline here because I love timelines, okay? Okay, because the founding of electricity happened by the bankers, okay? The bankers seem to trace back into all of this stuff, okay? Whoever rules these people rules it from the banker's nest, okay? But first we start off with the Pennsylvania Hospital, founded by Benjamin Franklin, became the first U.S. hospital in the United States when it's opened its door to patients on February the 11th, 1752. Okay, so 1752, we've got them opening the very first hospital, right? Then, follow the money, the very first bank of the United States was established in Pennsylvania in 1790. So, so we got the hospital, we got the bank, right? Because the whole premise of my show today is what they did was they rigged the system from the very beginning, whatever juncture they took over at, okay? What they did was they sent their people out to small town America. So each town was formed by a doctor, a sheriff, a banker, and the population. And so what happened was, was that that was how this entire structure was set up. It is so simple, right? So they put these things all in place. So each town, and I'll be giving you an example using the town in Nebraska that I'm in about how they set this up. And interestingly enough, while they were setting this up, they were also setting up mental wards. And this goes along with what I'm talking about today as far as this eugenics. So got them at the first hospital, okay, 1792 is the first hot excuse me the first that was that was a hospital okay let me get back here a second an actual hospital like for treating sick people right was opened in 1752 okay the first bank was 1790 and that's called the first bank of the united states 1792 which is a year after the first bank opens right no, the first bank opened 1790. In 1792, the New York Hospital opened a ward 
for curable insane patients. So right after the bank opens, the hospital opens a ward, special ward, just for what they consider curable insane patients, right? And in 1808, a freestanding medical facility was built nearby for the humane treatment of the mentally ill. And in 1821, a larger facility called the Bloomingdale Asylum was built in what is now the Upper West Side. So now we've got a hospital. We've got a nut ward for the people, right? We've got the crazy, crazy ward for the insane people. we got a bank going on, right? What comes next? Well, the smallpox. Smallpox supposedly had been roaring along up until this point, right? So it's convenient that they have this bank, and they have the bank, they have the hospital, and all this stuff going, right? Uh, well, the smallpox vaccine came about in 1796. Isn't that convenient? And that was physician Edward Jenner, and I've talked extensively about smallpox. So right along at the same time, and this is why I keep saying, always look to how this stuff got started, right? So right about that same time, they come up with smallpox, right? And smallpox happened to be the first vaccine to have been developed against a contagious disease. Now, my oh my, right? And they used cows to cross-infect. It was the very first time they started cross-infecting us with animals. And they have ever since. All this monkeypox. Which monkeypox, if you look at photos, the marks of monkeypox look just like the early cowpox. Just saying. Okay, so moving along. That was 1796. So, 1850. By 1850, that was only 55 years later, they had installed 9,000 miles of railroad had been built, okay? The federal government operated a land-grant system between 1855 and 1871 through which new railroad companies in the West were given millions of acres they could sell or pledge to bondholder. Big heist, right? They took a big, big group of property gave it to the railroads, okay? 1850. So, what they do next? That they get these railroads going. Well, never waste an opportunity, right? 1854, they started the orphan trade movement. That was a supervised welfare program that transported children from crowded eastern cities of the United States to foster homes located largely in rural areas of the Midwest. The orphan trains operated between 1854 and 1929, relocating from about 200,000 children. The co-founders of the orphan trade movement claimed that these children were orphaned, abandoned, abused, or homeless, but this was not always true. They were mostly the children of new immigrants and the children of the poor and destitute families living in these cities. Criticisms of the program include ineffective screening of caretakers, insufficient follow-up on placements, and that many children were strictly used as slave farm labor. So they barely get the railroads going, right? And they're already putting children on trains to populate the area, right? Because they, they took over, right? They took over, and now they, they got to get those trades going because I've been saying all along, they are rolling out pre-existing technology, okay? 
that's how this is working. And it's interesting how the time frame always worked because they kept the trains rolling and didn't introduce cars until after they got most of the movement done by train. This is not genius level stuff, right? Okay, so we got kids and trains from 1854, right? What happens next? The modern electric utility industry in the United States can be traced to the invention of the practical light bulb in 1879 by Thomas Alva Edison. So, um, and they had the first generating electrical plant in New York City of 1882, okay? And there's a thing about Edison and J.P. Morgan. Um, J.P. Morgan was trained by his father to do the banker's deal, which was the theory, which is how they still operate. They get other people meaning the depositors, to deposit money into banks, right? They use that depositor money for them to go out and buy things to get wealthy. That is the whole way that this whole thing was set up, right? To get poor people or working class people to put your money into a bank so then that bank has your money and they can take that money and invest it, good, bad, or indifferent, right? Because technically that money really isn't yours because if you go right now to a bank, if you have, let's say you have $10,000 in the bank, well, go down to the bank, tell them you want to get $10,000 today and just see what happens. <laughs> They're putting in some very tight restrictions about how you can get your money out because this whole thing was set up as a robbery set up by the bankers, okay? So what happened with J.P. Morgan is kind of an interesting story, but not that interesting. I'm going to go into a big ordeal about it. But J.P. Morgan, his father trained him to only use other people's money, like in the bank, like the bank's money, right? But J.P. Morgan was the first banker to step outside of the banking business into investing. And what did he invest in? Well, none other than electricity. <laughs> part of the eugenics program, right? Well, they say that he invented, they, they say this is how electricity came to be, okay? Because that was 1882. Now, this group of people, remember I was just at 1882, and they, they likely started before they became identified, okay? There's a group of people called the Robber Baron, okay? R-O-B-B-E-R, -B -B -E Baron, B-A-R-O-N. It is a derogatory term of social criticism originally applied to certain wealthy and powerful 19th century American businessmen. The term appeared as early as the August 1870 issue of the Atlantic Monthly Magazine. By the late 19th century, the term was typically applied to businessmen who purportedly used exploitative practices to amass their wealth. <clears throat> These practices included exerting control over natural resources, influencing high levels of government, paying subsistence, subsistence wages, squashing competition by acquiring their competition to create monopolies and raise prices, and schemes to sell stock at inflated prices to unsuspecting investors. The term combines the sense of criminal, meaning robber, 
and illegitimate aristocracy is a baron is a baron means an illegitimate role in a republic. It's it means an illegitimate aristocrat is a baron, okay? Because they have the aristocrats from Europe. Okay. This was the group after that group that's purportedly came in and took over, right? So they had the old money and these robber barons, which what they these people would have considered the new money, okay? And there's all kinds of shows about these robber barons out there, okay, now. So they just started becoming popular because the robber barons happened during a time called the Gilded, Gilded Age, G-I-L-D-E-D-H. So, so by the late 19th century, the term was typically applied to businessmen. These practices, exhorting control, completing monopolies, and um, the term robber baron derives from Rob Ritter, robber knights, the medieval German lords who charged nominally illegal tolls, unauthorized by the Holy Roman Empire, on the primitive roads crossing their lands, or larger tolls along the Rhine River. The metaphor appeared as early as February the 9th, 1859, when the New York Times used it to characterize the business practices of Cornelius Vanderbilt. Historian I've had to develop new skills. I can no longer just keep flying along as I'm talking. <laughs> They may have knocked us out a little bit with all this extra electricity, but trust me, we're, we're still moving along, okay? I don't think we have long to go. I'm not like China. I don't think it's going to be great, but all I'm saying is that keep those feet moving. Just keep those feet moving. Okay, so they used it first to describe Cornelius Vanderbilt in 1859. Historian T.J. Stiles says the metaphor conjures up visions of titanic monopolists who crushed comp competitors rigged markets and corrupted government. In their greed and power, legend has it, they held sway over a helpless democracy. Hostile cartoonists might dress the offenders in royal garb to underscore the offense against democracy. The first such usage was against Vanderbilt for taking money from high-priced government-subsidized government shippers in order to not compete <clears throat> in order to not compete on the routes political cronies had been granted special shipping routes by the state but told legislators their costs were so high that they needed to charge high prices and still receive extra money from the taxpayers as funding vanderbilt's private shipping company began running the same routes charging a fraction fraction of the price making a large profit without taxpayer subsidy. The state-funded shippers then began paying Vanderbilt money to not ship on their route. A critic of this tactic drew a political comic depicting Vanderbilt as a feudal robber baron extracting a toll. In his 1934 book, The Robber Barons, The Great American Capitalist, 1861 to 1901, 
they argue that the industrialists who are called robber barons have a complicated legacy in the history of American economic and social life. So he said in his book, they more or less knowingly played the leading roles in an age of industrial revolution. Even their quarrels, intrigues, and misadventures, too often treated as merely, as merely diverting or picturesque, are part of the mechanics of our history. Under their hands, the renovation of our economic life proceeded relentlessly. Large-scale production replaced the scattered, decentralized mode of production. Industrial enterprises became more concentrated, more efficient, technically and essentially cooperative, where they had been in the past purely individualistic and, they say, wasteful. But all this revolutionary area is branded with the motive of private gain on the part of the new captains of industry. To organize and exploit the resources of a nation upon a gigantic scale, to regiment its farmers and workers into harmonious crops of producers, and to do this only in the name of an uncontrolled appetite for private profit, here surely is a great inherent contradiction when so much disaster, outrage, and misery has flowed. In a Darwinist age, Vanderbilt developed a reputation as a plunderer who took no prisoners. How this um, historian said that the term represented the idea that business leaders in the United States from about 1865 to 1900 were, on the whole, a set of ferocious rascals who habitually cheated and robbed investors and consumers, corrupted government, fought ruthlessly among themselves, and in general carried on predatory activities compared to those of the robber barons of medieval Europe. Historian Richard White argues that the builders of the transcontinental railroads have attracted a great deal of attention, but the interpretations are contradictory. So, um, Robert Barron's standing for a gilded age of corruption, monopoly, and rampant individualism. Their corporations were like octopus, devouring all in its path. In the 20th century, all the 20, excuse me, in the 20th century and the 21st, they became entrepreneurs, necessary business revolutionaries, ruthlessly changing existing practices and demonstrating the protean nature of American capitalism. Their new corporations also transmuted and became manifestations of the visible hand, managerial rationality that eliminated waste, increased productivity, and brought values to replace those of financial buccaneers. So, yeah, um, robber barons, right? Okay, so robber barons, they were there from... Um, 1870, right? Well, what happened around that same time frame? Well, lo and behold, the Civil War. <laughs> so I believe the robber barons were in place before the term first appeared in August 1870 of the Atlantic Magazine, okay? But they didn't just crop up that week, okay? <laughs> so what happened right around that time where a lot of people also went missing? The American Civil War. 
April the 12th, 1861 to May the 26th, 1865, also known by other names, was a civil, civil, civil war. Think about that word, civil, right? Between gentlemen, it was fought between the Union, the North, and the Confederacy, the South. The latter formed by states that had seceded. The central cause of the war was a dispute over slavery. Many Civil War historians have believed that 620,000 estimated deaths to be low, especially on the Confederate side. Given the lack of written records and the estimates questionable assumption that men in the Confederate Army died of disease at the same rate as men of the Union Army. Well, also, I also think that that movie Gone with the Wind was there to imprint in our brains 99.9% of this stuff, right? <laughs> it's all been done by movies. Okay, so now we're at the Civil War. We already have the um, infants through the um, orphans on trains being zipped off right as soon as the trains were being done, right? Well, right, right after the Civil War, interestingly enough, there was a whole bunch of other children these people became concerned about. In 1969, what was that, four years after the Civil War, a group of Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic nuns established the New York Foundling Hospitals to help care for and place homeless infants. Now, we've gone from the children that they were helping out. Because remember, evil comes packaged as help. So in these people's minds, they honestly believe that, well, I don't think they, well, I think they believe this in their heads because a lot of people were likely making money off of these children, right? Because likely, if you found a kid and turned it into one of these other crooks, there was probably some transactions taking place, right? I don't, I don't have to be a genius to start guessing about this stuff, right? So along this child market deal were a lot of people trading hands and why they have to have all these kids because they didn't have any adults to do the work because of all the people missing from the civil war <laughs> well you gotta wonder right so 1869 a group of roman catholic nuns come up with a new plan and this is um, following the example of the already established children's aid society trains were used to transport children to new homes these became known as mercy trains. People, and these trains were more specific. Now, the other trains, the orphan trains, they literally loaded up kids on trains, okay? They made stops at different places. And I'll tell you in a minute how this all ties into how this whole deal was set up and cooked, okay? So, these kids um, on the mercy trains, okay? But this was different because people who wanted a child, they could request specific attributes of the child they wanted to adopt. So you could write to this organization and tell them, oh, I don't know, you want a one-month-old blue-eyed baby or whatever you want. So this was more of a baby by order a few, a few years after the other kids were bundled up and sent off on trains. So um, this segment, yeah, so that was the 1869, the tiny, tiny infants were getting bundled onto trains, right? And here is why I'm saying what I'm saying today as far as this was all cooked up, okay? And how did this work out? Because those kids get loaded onto trains, right? 
Well, who takes the kids off the trains? Well, the pastors and the volunteers that are already set up along those train tracks, right? The pastor, the sheriff, the banker, right? <laughs> they're there greeting these kids. The pastors and volunteers, Vackies found and created a network of pastors and volunteers in towns along the railroads. These concerned helpers would recruit families in their region to take these children into their homes. The volunteers back east would load the children onto trains with all their earthly goods and send them to their new homes in the west. The west was ready for them. At every stop, families and parents would be waiting at the train station for their new child. These children were scattered all over the Midwest and Plain States of the United States. So yeah, okay, so they're now they're now they're sending the babies, the little baby infants around, right? <clears throat> so then we start the era called the Gilded Age. That happened from 1877 to 1896. I propose these people took over, they started taking over somewhere around New Orleans. So now they've been busy, they got the railroads going, they got kids being shipped all over the place. The Gilded, Gilded Age. These people still remind me of cheap gypsies, okay? The Gilded Age can be characterized as an era of strikes. By the year 1900, 38% of the American population lived in cities, and these people usually had urbanized jobs at factories. During the Gilded Age, labor was very violent and horrific. So what I'm saying is they were certainly had their hands in control in the era they identified as the Gilded Age, 1877 to 1896 violent labor. Many factories had used children as their employees because they didn't have to get paid as much as the adults. This was a Gilded Age, okay? The Gilded Age was only beginning when the United States celebrate its centennial in 1876, which was marked by the first World's Fair ever held in America. 1876. Somebody took over, right? <laughs> Okay, so what happened right after the, the Gilded Age while these people were still... I contend these same people are still in charge that took over at this juncture here. We could argue all day, was it during the Civil War? Was it before that? I think it was before the Civil War about New Orleans. That's what I think. So right after the Gilded Age, they had the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution, there was a few of them, okay? This first one, also known as the First Industrial Revolution, was a period of global transition of human economy towards more efficient and stable manufacturing processes. So, and that succeeded the agriculture revolution starting from Great Britain. So, this transition called the Industrial Revolution transition going from hand production methods to machines, okay? New chemical manufacturing, iron production processes, increasing the use of water power and steam power, the development of machine tools, the rise of the mechanized factory system, output generally increased, and as a result, it was an unprecedented rise in population and in the rate of population growth. And that same period, 
this period occurred during the period from around 1760 to about 1820 to 1840. So what happened was, remember the robber barons are now in charge, right? And now right after that comes the, there's, there's always a given effect, right? On the structural level of the Industrial Revolution, it asked society the so-called social question. So they came up with new ideas, growing poverty on one hand and growing population and materialistic wealth on the other caused tensions between the very rich and the poorest people within society. These tensions were sometimes violently released and led to philosophical, philosophical ideas such as socialism, communism, and anarchism. So the Industrial Revolution is starting to bring out people who aren't too happy with their workload, right? So, but, but here's the part to pay attention to. The Industrial Revolution began in Great Britain, and many of the technological and architectural innovations were of British origin. We never left the British, okay? <laughs> the facts speak for themselves. By the mid-18th century, Britain was the world's leading commercial nation, controlling a global trade empire with colonies in North America and the Caribbean. So yeah, so the Industrial Revolution marked a major turning point in history, comparable only to humanity's adoption of agriculture with respect to material advancement. Always follow that material advancement the money, right? The Industrial Revolution influenced in some way almost every aspect of daily life. In particular, average income and population began to exhibit unprecedented sustained growth. Some economic economists have said the most important effect of the Industrial Revolution was that the standard of living for the general population in the Western world began to increase consistently for the first time in history. Although others have said it did not begin to improve meaningfully until the late 19th and 20th century. So not going to go all there because they, they come up with one era and then the next era is to uh, kind of change things around, right? But what I'm looking at are these key junctures, right? Because out of the Industrial Revolution, Early innovations, which I have been saying all along, were technologies that existed before, okay? And this is why I think this, these are the people and this is the turning point, okay? Because adoption of the industri Industrial Revolution's early innovations, such as mechanized spinning and weaving, slowed and their markets matured. Innovations developed late in the period, such as increasing adoption of locomotives, steamboats, steamships, and hot blast iron smelting. New technologies such as the electrical telegraph, widely introduced in the 1840s and 1850s, were not powerful enough to drive high rates of growth. Rapid economic growth began to occur after 1870, springing from a new group of innovations in what has been called the second Industrial Revolution. These innovations included new steel making processes, mass production, assembly line, 
electric grid systems, the large-scale manufacture of machine tools, and the use of increasingly advanced machinery in steam-powered factories. So yeah, I, that that's a period, right? And then there's another thing: the history of U.S. the, the period of U.S. history from the 1890s to the 1920s is. Okay, so this is a good recap here. The progressive era, progressive era, 1890s, which kind of starts in after the robber barons have set up all this stuff, right? They, they start rolling out the technology. The next era is called the progressive era, an era of intense social and political reform aimed at making progress toward a better society. Well, I have so they, they don't understand who we are, so there's different eras for them to kind of kind of get things rolled back in, right? Progressive era reformers sought to harness the power of the federal government to eliminate unethical and unfair business practices, reduce corruption, and counteract the negative social effects of industrialization. During the progressive era, protections for workers and consumers were strengthened and women finally achieved the right to vote. The problems of industrialization. Though industrialization in the United States raised standards of living for many, it had a dark side. Corporate bosses, sometimes referred to as robber barons, pursued unethical and unfair business practices aimed at eliminating competition and increasing profits. Factory workers, many of them recent immigrants, were frequently subjected to brutal and perilous working and living conditions. Political corruption enriched politicians at the expense of the lower and working class, who struggled to make ends meet. The gap between the haves and the have-nots was widening. The progressive movement arose as a response to these negative effects of industrialization. Progressive reformers sought to regulate private industry, strengthen protection for workers and consumers, expose corruption in both government and big business, and generally improve. Yeah, well, you know, they always do that, right? So this group comes in and says, we got all these laws, right? The world, world view... Oh, wait a second here. The worldview of progressive reformers was based on certain key assumptions. The first was that human nature could be improved through the enlightened application of regulation, incentives, and punishments. The second key assumption was that the power of the federal government could be harnessed to improve the individual and transform society. These two assumptions were not shared by political conservatives who tended to believe that human nature was unchanging and that the government should remain limited in size and scope. So progressive informers, they came up with legislation for um, drugs in 1906. Um, though progressive reformers achieved many noteworthy goals during this period, they also promoted discriminatory policies and espouse intolerant ideas. The Wilson administration, for instance, despite its embrace of modernity, 
Modernity and progress pursued a racial agenda that culminated in the segregation of the federal government. The years of Wilson's presidency, 1913-1921, witnessed a revival of the Ku Klux Klan, labor unions, So, and then they came up with the Immigration Act. So, um, I don't have a lot more to say about this. Um, you'll find in the clips that I have why I'm saying all this, because right now, Bill Gates is trying to say that the way forward, high-voltage power lines will save America. What does that mean? What does that really mean? Does that mean it'll save America from killing off some undesirable people? I don't know, because all of us have electricity, right? A lot of us have smart meters, so I still, I believe that electricity is their eugenics tool of things. So enjoy this show. I'm going to, I'm going to stop right now. So enjoy the show and I'll talk with you later. Because my conclusion is it's the same psychopaths that are in charge right now. They are crass. They're crude. They're ruthless. They seem to hate dark-skinned people with a passion. They seem to hate any of us who aren't part of their group with a passion, which Actually, I would rather be hated by these people than loved by them, okay? They can take their love and they can do whatever they want with it because I plan to exit this game board without becoming a hateful person like them. So let's work toward how we can regain some of our kindness toward each other and stop emulating these hateful robber barons who I would say are still, in fact, in charge today as some transgender 1% people running the world. Pretty crazy position we have ourselves in now, don't we? Before I close off here, um, the, the structure has been set up, okay, right, right in plain sight. I've been saying for years, hiding in plain sight. The United Nations has all the organizational things set up, okay? I've talked in the past about they're looking at signing this treaty so that who are you going to call takes over all health measures in the future. Well, this is how it starts to roll out. This is what they've done right now. What they have done, as of a few months ago, the UN member states, they agreed on taking over the oceans. I kid you not. So this is how it works. So it's called UN member states agreed on the first international treaty to protect the high seas. And what do I always say? Evil coming packages help, right? So just so you understand, so you can be on the lookout for the rest of these, because they're coming in to help the oceans, right? Remember, they're the people who polluted the oceans. But let me not get started on that. So let's just play this short clip. On March the 23rd, UN agreed first international treaty to protect the high seas. Antonio Guterres, I'm extremely encouraged that countries have agreed on the UN legally binding instrument to ensure the conservation and sustainable use of marine biology diversity of areas beyond natural jurisdictions. This is an important step to protect our oceans.
Well, I think they should be talking now. It must be my audio, right? What are the high C's? The high C's. That lie beyond country's national waters. These are the largest habitat. Okay, wait a second. Now they're talking. The high seas are areas of oceans that lie beyond country's national waters. These are the largest habitat on Earth and are home to millions of species. High seas comprise more than 60% of the world's oceans and nearly half the planet's surface. But only about... So they're basically talking about they're taking control of a half of the... <laughs> half of the water surface, okay? 1% of the high seas are currently protected. The UN High Seas Treaty is a framework to protect the world's oceans by bringing them under protected areas. The treaty is designed to ensure the sustainable and equitable use of marine resources. The treaty is seen as a crucial component in the 30 by 30 target agreed in Montreal, Canada in December 2022. 30 by 30 is a global effort to bring 30% of the world's land and sea under protection by 2030. Greenpeace data shows that 11 million square kilometer of the ocean must be protected annually until 2030 to meet this target. The new treaty will try and regulate activities like fishing, the routes of shipping lanes and deep sea mining. The popular belief is that the treaty will lead to restrictions on high sea mining and fishing. However, as experts point out, that might not be the case. The UN High Seas Treaty cannot touch fishing, shipping and mining and it never could. In 2017, it was agreed that the BBNJ should not undermine existing governance bodies, including regional fisheries management organizations, the International Maritime Organization and the International Seabed Authority. A lot of popular media is getting that point wrong. Although the treaty will enable equal profit sharing from marine genetic resources such as biological material from plants and animals in the ocean, a framework regarding this is yet to be designed. The UN High Seas Treaty is a huge step in the right direction. Many parts of the agreement is state-driven and will need a major step up. Well, that's plan A for the ocean, right? Once they, once, they, once they get into this, whatever percentage they're talking about, starting with, you know, 2030 by 2030 or whatever, uh, well, <laughs> uh, you can see where it goes from there, I hope. Anyway, on with the show. I apologize for how chaotic it is, but you can stick with it. I have all the clips out of, I tried to, all the things I've been talking about all this time that lead me up to my decision to say this today, that a hundred percent this is who these people are they came in around the somewhere around new orleans they became the robber barons and they are in fact still running things today but hey everybody has to decide for themselves so be safe out there